Patricia, my darling Patricia I can see all my dreams in your eyes Your smile is as gay as a bright summer day You're much fairer than Aaron's blue skies Oh, Patricia, my lovely Patricia You could make all my dreaming come true My heart is just drooling, Patricia, no foolin' I'm falling in love with you Patricia, my darling, Patricia, I can see all my dreams in your eyes. Your smile is as gay as a bright summer day. You're much fairer than Aaron's blue skies. Oh, Patricia, my lovely Patricia, you could make all my dreaming come true. My heart is just drooling, Patricia, no fooling. I'm falling in love with you. Patricia, my lovely Patricia, you could make all my dreaming come true. My heart is just drooling, Patricia, no foolin'. I'm falling in love. I'm falling in love. I'm falling in Hello, everybody. It is Saturday night, April the 28th, year 2018. Wow! We're almost into Christmas time here in Yesterday, USA. <laughs> 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 That's you're going to make me cough. <laughs> 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 it's going to be a long night. <laughs> oh, gee. And I got sniffles and everything. Yeah, so there you hit. It's true. The adorable mm-hmm. one is back after last week being sick in bed, and this week she got out of her sick bed to come be with us. Here That's she true. is. That's Here. true. You feel sorry for me? I always feel sorry for you. Cause you <laughs> I'm <laughs> pathetic. That's why. Because <laughs> you, you, we've been together so long. I, you know, we sort of know each other by the books. You know, we do. Uh huh. We do. We know each other for. At least 13 years. Oh, wow. Isn't that incredible? Oh, wow. Uh, do you know? Yeah. In a couple of weeks will be my crisis anniversary. Well. I don't even know. I don't know what dates they are, but I know it was in May. Well, you went to. to here I am. I fooled them all. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you went to. <laughs> you weren't feeling too good in April, though. But, you know. But, uh, oh, I sure wasn't. No, no. And, but, you know, everybody, she fooled him again. Here she is. The cat was 19, 
The cat with 19 lives. Most cats have nine. I think, I think I've used up the extra by now. <laughs> so I have to be very careful. She has bonus lives. Patricia. Hello, Patricia. Yeah. Oh, hello, Walden. Hello, everybody. I'm going to cough halfway through the show, and I promise not to make as much noise as I really could because uh, I've got something to bury my face in while I cough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gee, here we go. So... There was Patricia. Sorry. That's true. Yeah, yeah she, she 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 didn't she wasn't doing another radio show last night. She was really sick and bad. She could prove it by her sniffle, cough, and wheezing. What can I say? And I had yeah, I was wheezing today too. <laughs> and and I had sniffles and and like cough medicine and and do you feel sorry for me? I sure do. Christmas is oh, almost good. here. Christmas is almost here. That's why I feel sorry. You know, okay. We're the only show that does it twice a year. Please, I, I'm just so upset that we're almost through April, <laughs> and we're talking Christmas here. Holy cats! Well, um, I've got stuff tonight. What stuff do you have? Well, I think we want to give out the phone number seven one four five four five two zero seven one. Call. I don't, you know, Patricia's gonna try to be here for midnight, but she gets hacked, and we're gonna cut her loose. And what we're doing. In terms of radio shows, we started last night. We are featuring uh, shows from 1945, starting on April 27, 1945, up to May 8th. And this, the 27th one, we and the Russian shook hands, and we're surrounding the Nazis during the time frame. So we're hearing the shows, we're hearing the thing during the time frame. So it's a very interesting period of radio history yeah. we're going through. Um, and the so, shows, in, within the shows themselves, are they talking at all about a, what was going occasionally on? Occasionally, yes. Uh huh. Occasionally, especially the tail end on the flag, uh, you'll hear them relate to we're about ready to win, Germany's about ready to fall. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Different things. It's starting to allude to that whole situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, right. so we're, we're, we're doing. Don't hang up, caller. We're, we'll be there. We're doing that. And so. And then I think we should miss, we should plug. Uh, we have rescheduled Jim book review with Patricia till late late in the month of May, because you know Patricia been under the weather. She hasn't had done her homework, and we gotta get ready for next week live guests. And Carl, before we get to you, Patricia, you want to mention who, who what we're gonna be talking about a week from tonight? Oh yes, oh yes, I would be delighted. We are going to be talking with Ira Metesky. That is not a name that you know, except he is the president of the Wolfpack. It is the Wolfpack, am I correct? Correct. I, I don't have that up in front of me. Yes, no. the Wolfpack, meaning Nero Wolf. He is an expert on Nero Wolf. They have uh, a whole organization. I went to the website, Walton. If I had a week, I couldn't read every word that's up there. It is just so well done and so packed with information. So we're going to be talking with Mr. Matetsky about Nero Wolf and Rex Stout. Rex Stout, of course, was the author, and he's going to fill us in on all the quirks of Rex Stout and all of the really good stuff that only they can talk about. I mean, I can tell you how much I enjoy the books, and I can tell you why, but he has got um, a much more professional take on it, and he'll be talking with us. I'm going to be talking with him for a couple of minutes on Tuesday, and we'll get some information and uh, some kind of organization to my notes and i'm really looking forward to it so your homework for this week is to listen to a nero wolf radio show 
and then you'll be all ready to talk with Mr. Metaxi. <laughs> I, I already know. Amen. I know Jim Taylor wants to have questions, so I know um, we're going to open the line for questions. Uh, and I was, it's already promoted through the organization, even in their podcast. So we're going to probably have a nice big listenership that Saturday night, just from our normal family to maybe uh-huh. people who really love the literary work of Rex Stout. I know. Uh, Oh, excellent. I, I know uh, Rebecca, his daughter, had listened to our show once in a while. So i uh mm-hmm. very pleased. So we're going to feature next Saturday, May 5th, on yeah. Neil Wolf. So. Yeah. I, I think I told you in my note to you, he had just contacted me and said, can we talk Monday or Tuesday? Mm-hmm. So um, he decided Tuesday at about 7.30. That would be great. And then I let you know. Perfect. And that we're going to have that opportunity, so I'm I'm really looking forward to it. He's kind of, um, I don't want not stiff, almost it, formal in his emails, <laughs> but I think we'll fix that very soon. <laughs> um, couple things. John Lewis suggested this. Let's review the top five. You know, let's start opening votes starting in the month of May, and see are we okay what we're doing on the top five? Of course, Patricia might lobby for her awful shows on Friday. I think that's a given. I'm still going to end. Oh, oh, go ahead. Yeah. So we're going to start taking votes in the month of May and June and into, probably into July just to see are we okay with the lineup. Because um, John had a computer breakdown, so we haven't been doing the oh. – we haven't had the uh, detective lineup on Thursday nights for a while. Kim been filling mm-hmm. in. But John's got a new computer. John Larry going to have to buy two new computers. His computers are going kapoop. I don't know what it is that with computers. Yeah. Oh, gee. Um, oh, gee. And I'm still, people are looking and saying, <laughs> oh, what a cute little laptop. Where where did you get it? <laughs> thing is 12 years old. <laughs> Actually, 11 years old. So, and it, it's still here. So, and their poor computers are pooping. So, anyway, people, would you send some votes in? You can send to floridawriter at hotmail.com. Uh, so, we're going to start cowing. See, are we okay with the lineup? On, mm-hmm. And this is from 10 o'clock to 10.30, everybody, Eastern Time. On Monday, uh, Bob Bro runs Gunsmoke for us. On Tuesday, Ken Goff runs Amos and Andy for us. On Wednesday, is Family Theater. I, I sort of supply them, thank the worry to Kim. And then Thursday, both be detectives. And on Friday, it's Patricia's awful shows, and we'll we'll dip into the archives, and once Patricia got everything squared away, she'll be back and recording new new adventures of Patricia. Guess what? Guess what? Yeah. Guess what? Yeah. My computer is hooked up, and that's where all my awful shows are. Uh, As of yesterday, I have my big computer. Oh, yay. And the other... I'm, I'm... that's terrific and the other big announcements is Patricia's Refrigerator yes people have already got the jump of the gun and uh, and we're wanting to know what's in Patricia's Refrigerator and I am pleased to announce I'm honored and delighted that Patricia escaped today she went on her own and went to the store all by herself and got new supplies for the refrigerator. So there's new items. And I went all by myself. I know. All I by herself. my little car out in the parking lot. So I just got brave and walked downstairs because you have to sign out. 
And I went downstairs. I said, I'm going to Publix. And I, and I went out the door. I don't know. I don't know if, well, I suppose I'll hear about it if it's not the right thing to do. But um, on a Saturday, there, there's not a whole lot of staff down there. So I just walked out. We'll have to raise money and get you a cell phone. We're gonna if you're gonna be on the road, nobody wants anything to happen to Patricia. So we're gonna have to we're gonna have to do think you about it. know? Yes. Do you know? Yes. Are you hanging on to your little britches? Yes. I am eligible for a free cell phone here. Oh. Uh, three minutes. I don't know how many minutes uh, we get, but I am eligible for a free cell phone. So I have to talk to social service on Monday and get me a cell phone. Isn't that exciting? That is exciting. I mean. How, <laughs> I, I'm the only person in the United States of America who gets excited because I'm going to have a cell phone. Okay, <laughs> for you, a dumb phone with that. Oh, a well, stupid one. We we I'm still in a dumb phone situation too. So you know, but I, I think that's wonderful. Uh-huh. I think that's terrific. And that way, when Patricia escapes, now we'll know where to find her. So this would be perfect. Ah. Uh. Ah, now I know. Okay. Well, sure. you know, I mean, you know, if you get stuck in the grocery store in the, in the checkout line and it getting late coming to the show, at least you can let me know. Uh-huh. You know. <laughs> it's going to be that late. <laughs> the store closes at 10, so um, by the time I get stuffed, stuffed in my fridge, then I, could, then I could come out and play. Yeah. But anyway, I just, I was so pleased. This was my second maiden voyage. No, you can only have one maiden voyage. This was my second trip. Wonderful. And I got a whole bunch of stuff, and I'm expecting everyone to do very well tonight on guessing what's in the fridge. Who's on the phone these Okay, let's do that. Hello there, you're on with Patricia. Hi, Walden. This is Marilyn from Converse. Marilyn, how in the world are you doing? Fine. Hi, Marilyn. Thank, Thank you for being so patient. Oh, that's okay. That's no problem. Uh, I was going to tell you that uh, I got the Alexa thing to work by saying, um, listen to the podcast. Oh, you do? Saturday night show instead of Saturday night podcast. Well, you, you, you got, you got, we got almost 750 podcasts of Patricia up there right now. Oh, wow. Almost 750. We're over 700. And we got over 200 more to do, so you're going to have... Patricia's going to be here forever. She'll be here longer than you, me, and everybody. <laughs> and I have my funeral arrangements already made, so we don't waste any time. <laughs> when we get down to the wire, I'm all yours. <laughs> well, um, Walden, there was another question I was going to ask you about. Yeah. Uh, well, I was wondering if you could put it on the Victor Reader, too. Okay, what's that, Melon? The, the Patricia's live podcast. Uh, wow, let me think. Now, I'm trying to remember. I need to find out. Is it Old Tunes, right? I think it's Old Tunes is with Victor Readers. I got to figure out. Let's see. I got to figure out how we can do that. Um, Patricia, write, can you write down a note for me? Write down Victor, Victor Reader and Old Tunes. O two, I think they spell O O T U N E S, and email that to me sometime. And that, just in case, I don't f- remember, and I will contact them, Marilyn, and find out how we can do that. Because no, you did that on on the other the the Frank Brzee pro, uh, podcast was on the Victor. He is. Then 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 it should be then it, uh, it should be there. Well, I tried it and I I wrote. 
Saturday night radio shows. Okay. Come out that way. And then they, uh, they have you tried Saturday night or your Saturday show? Have you tried combinations like that? Yeah, I have. And yeah. have you tried the Golden Days of Radio or Golden Days of Radio? I tried that. I tried Golden Days of Radio and it came out. That was the one I tried out. Okay, try also the Golden Days of Radio podcast. Because the Saturday show could be listed under that way, too. I, I tried that one, and that one worked. It's on Victory here. Okay. Yeah, can I use the Golden Days. It's a universal name. So, uh, I'll see what I can do, Melon. It should be there. We just got to find it. That's all. Um, the thing is, I just think there's, there's uh, other people that are using the Victory Reader, and they might want to... Listen to that. Oh, on, listen to Patricia. Oh, I, oh, I think so. She, she's, she's an internationally known worldwide celebrity, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she, she, never knew, she never knew that her life would be in such an open book considering she's such a private person, but, you know, with over 3,000 3, of her hours on, on, on podcasting, you know, that's 3,000 hours of her life is there, you know. It's not an open book. You've just got the title. <laughs> but I had a heck of a time. I had a heck of a time trying to get the Patricia show to go onto my uh, Amazon dot. And finally, I. Oh, my. So finally, I said, listen to Saturday Night Radio Show. And it went on. It went on. Yeah, I'm thinking Great. about I'm thinking about buying something like that for my mom for Mother's Day. Um, yeah, oh, she would love it. That's what I'm thinking. Cause she's having trouble. You have a cell phone though. You have to have a cell phone. They said, well, does it work with a dumb phone? Huh? I don't know. I used to, I used a neighbor boy smartphone to set up my Amazon Echo, so maybe I could do the same thing. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, I will. They only cost fifty dollars at Best Buy. Is it Best Buy the time now? Okay, then I will look. Uh, because Best Buy, or you could order it off of Amazon. And they got down twenty five dollars. So uh, really, yeah. So I will look. It's amazing what's happening in the whole white world. I, I really think she would. Yeah, cause she's having trouble with her radio. AM radio, everybody. At least in California, we got a lot of static nowadays. And and that makes it oh, tough. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah, they probably cut back on the wattage. Well, and also I think nowadays they're showing it with the same freak as lights. The lights in your house are almost on the same. Oh my goodness! You're kidding? No. Me. No wonder you got static. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Radio was not meant for sharing except for listening. That is true. But I just thought it would be a good idea for you to put the Patricia show on the Victor Reader. You know? I, I agree with you. I will work on this. You know, what, what else I'm going to have? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to have to talk. Or maybe some of my family members have it on Victor Readers and they can give us an idea how they found it. Because, uh, you know, we, we all figured it out. I didn't know, know how to find Yesterday USA on Amazon Echo. And we... We found that oh, way. So all you have to do is ask for Amazon, uh, ask for Radio Yesterday USA. Uh, See, the blue or red. I wasn't smart enough to figure that out. So you guys helped me out to figure that one out. You know. Oh. <laughs> oh well, I will work on it. And, and how about your Friday night show? That would be good to put on the Victory. 
on our, the next thing's going to be our, all, t- all the interviews uh-huh. and the Friday night shows will be included in that. And so it's taken. John and Larry will be on the Amazon dot, right? Yes. All yeah. Right. And also Frank Brzee. And so uh, it's going to be a major. I hope my mom has enough hours in the day to upload everything. It's just amazing what uploading. Bill Bragg should do the same thing. I mean, um, well, of course, he doesn't have the Amazon dot, but Mike does. Ah, uh, well, he should. He should. I think Kim would be happy for him to volunteer himself to do that, but, you know, poor Kim does everything else for the yeah. station. So I think you're right, Marilyn. Now, Mike knows how to do it because Mike has it on, or, you know, Mike said he listens to Yesterday USA on his Amazon dot, you know. Boy, the whole world's moving moving in different directions, what can I say? Yep, beyond me. I'm just sitting here on the phone. Well, you know, Patricia has her laptop and she's at the refrigerator, so she's happy. What can I say? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I have my refrigerator. Oh, that was such a uh, gift from Bill and Kim. I was going to ask you if you drank milk because I was going to guess that milk was in your... Milk in the refrigerator, Patricia. Milk is in the refrigerator. All right, Melon. Good job. I didn't buy it, but it's in there. <laughs> I, it, it, uh, well, I'm, you know, I mean, I was telling people what I bought for the refrigerator, but we get a carton of milk with every meal there's just so much milk a person can drink so i keep some in the fridge and then i make chocolate milk so is it lo- is it two percent or regular milk what kind of milk do they serve you regular guys? regular milk holy cats oh. now, mm-hmm. they give they give me low-fat milk uh well i'm on meals on wheels they give me low-fat milk but you know mm-hmm. gee i wonder if meals on wheels will come to patricia's place she's not getting good food service everybody maybe the oh. week Boy. Maybe we could. It's brutal. <laughs> it's brutal. <laughs> I'm gaining weight because I keep eating what's in the refrigerator. <laughs> if I were stuck with the institutional food, I'd be down to the leaf size. I'd be like blowing leaves on oh. a tree. Wow. Oh. Dreadful. Dreadful. Uh, Patricia, it was good to hear from Bubbles last week. Yeah, I'll have to mention it to her. <laughs> she is such a hoot. I'll tell you. She'll be making an appearance. She really she's a good sister. Hmm? She'll she'll be making an appearance in two weeks from now. She had to do her poem, so, mm-hmm. yeah. so you know. I, she's getting carried away. She's not doing a poem. She's doing some kind of an essay. <laughs> so I think we'll have to put our foot down and make sure that from now on it's poetry. Poetry. Then she got to work on Memorial Day. Do we, do we designate Flight Day? I'm trying to figure out how. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Alexa, I mean, uh, Walden, how is that guy from Hawaii? Is he doing okay? Ron called me about two weeks ago off air just to say hi. And I think Ron is, is he still faithfully listening to us. You know, uh, it's just. Hi, it's, Ron. Yeah. We love you, Ron. Yes. You know, so he, he is still he's still listening to us. He'll call me once in a while just to make sure we're all still awake. And so. Yes. Does he play his keyboard? No, I don't think so. I think that's the one thing he hasn't gotten to the point to doing yet, you know. Um, but, you know, Ron, it'll, Ron will keep 
plugging it at it until it eventually all comes back. Because he, oh, yeah. He, he is like... Very resilient. He's like Patricia. Yeah. You know, he and Patricia and John from Maryland all have 35 lives, at least. Another Ron from Illinois, how's he doing? Ron from Illinois has moved to Arkansas, and he's doing fairly well. He broke both his shoulders. He called Patricia about two two weeks ago, and he's still in pain. Um, I think... Patricia explained, anytime you hurt your shoulders, it's one of the most uncomfortable injuries to have in the body because oh. you can feel it. Yeah. So painful. Yeah. yeah. You know. So painful. But he, he sounds like he was really doing well, and he's keeping up with his physical therapy, and he said he's got use of both arms. He's still restricted in some movements, but he's really done a remarkable job to get where he is already. Yeah, absolutely. And Jim Taylor, I'm I'm really pleased with the way he's doing too. I am too. I I talked to him. We're working I on him one time, but I know he probably doesn't remember me. But I called him one time. Well, Jim got a photographic memory. Anybody in the family has a photographic memory. It's Jim Mel Mel, and he he will remember everybody. You know. Oh, good. Yeah. He never forgets. Nah. He's better than an elephant. That's true. Did you hear that, Jim? <laughs> Well, Marilyn, it is so good to hear from you, and thank you for being so patient. You waited and waited and waited, and I appreciate that. Thank you. I have no problem with that. I mean, I heard uh, some of the people kept, on the previous shows, the rerun shows, they kept hanging up on you, you know. Yeah. Well. Just hang in there, guys. Because they don't know. It's the bonus picks. Yeah. Yeah. Because what is, everybody? No faith. If Patricia and I are talking, and if you call in, I I can put you into the board, and you can hear our conversation. And then once Patricia and I are ready to talk to you, then I rate the little pot. These are little sliders. Then that way, you can everybody can hear you. So that's how we can do it. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know. Well, listen. I'm gonna let other people get a chance to call in. All right, Melon. Thanks for the updates and thanks for the ideas. I will work on it. Okay. All right. All right, my dear. Thank you, Marilyn. Good Thank night. Thank you. Good I've got milk. 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 She? milk. I've got milk. Hmm. 714-545-2071. What does Patricia have? Milk. There's, there's one so obvious, Walt, and I really thought you would get it. Mm. Milk. Mm. Milk. Hello there. Do you know what's in Patricia's refrigerator? Oh, uh, she's got the frosted. The frosted flakes, maybe? Is that what you think, John? John from Maryland, who's living in Texas? Well, I'm, I just arrived home at 10 o'clock Eastern. Holy cat, John! Oh, my goodness! But I have to make it quick. I'm awful tired. <laughs> Bet. Oh my goodness. Well, well, make, Forget the refrigerator. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm totally fine. I had I got sick one day in Texas, but I'm all right now. Oh, good. Did you have a good time seeing your son and everything? Did you get a chance to do anything? Yes, we did, and we did something very special. He took us up to College Station, and we went to see Barbara Bush's grave. Oh. Oh. Oh, my goodness. What a lovely gesture. 
I'll tell you what, that place is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, well, it's one of the most beautiful campuses, Texas A&M. Oh, my. And, and, and then I imagine the library, the George Bush Library, is something else. I, I would not be surprised. I went there about five years ago to the library. Uh-huh. When I was a lot better. My son and his wife took us there, and we went to the library, and I, I sat at the Oval Office and on the, on the uh, hot phone to Russia. <laughs> so did you call? Did he call? Did he pick up the phone and call? And, and call? I tried to get to Kremlin, but they wouldn't talk to me. Uh, because he didn't have enough. <laughs> you didn't have enough quarters. Is that why? Do they? Did the hotline <laughs> take quarters? It was AT and T. Can you hear me now? <laughs> actually, actually, didn't work. Phone, you can't get the phone off the hook. It's glued shut. It's glued down. Yeah. 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 What is? I, I'm trying to remember how it works. I think it's in there. I think it is it the Marine Corps. A couple guys actually have it in a suitcase and walk around with the president of the United States. I'm trying to think. That is true. I'm trying to think the, the what branch of the government. I think it it the Marines. Maybe I'm wrong, but it's actually I'm, you know. I I got. Hmm. CIA or FBI or you know, I thought it was one of the law enforcement agencies that they could draw a gun. I don't know. I don't know. That's a great question. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I have something to say to you, John. Well, if was, I don't know if you can get ever get a chance to go there, but it's absolutely out of this world. I'll put that on my list of things wow. to do. Wow. Go ahead, Patricia. I wait. have something, to, John. Um, but, uh, I got you have to, you, you have to I'm, take you have to, hold on you have to take a trip <laughs> I have to send I have to get my daughter fix it up so I can send you some pictures okay the, oh great and Patricia got Patricia got a question for you with some information go ahead Patricia John yeah. you have to take a trip you have to take a trip more often you sound fabulous. You do. I just love it. You sound perky and you got to do this more often. This was so good. I'm glad you're doing this. Yeah, we had a, we had a good time down there. And my son, he took me to different places in Texas. He took uh-huh. us to one place. He took us to one place. That, he said, it's not far. It took us about 40 minutes to get there. <laughs> it, well, that's called, not far. In Texas, that's not far. <laughs> It was it was uh, called Fayetteville, Texas, and we went uh-huh. to a place to eat called Joe's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gee! Oh, and we gee. went in there, and they're, they're famous for their uh, excuse me, they're famous for their chicken fried steak. Like I was, it really was good. Mm. Then we went. I'm not crazy about that. Mm. Now, John, because you're from Maryland. Um, besides oysters, besides oysters, because I think everybody knows I'm not a big fish fan, what would be the right thing to eat in Maryland? What, are, you, are there a specialty dish in Maryland besides oysters? Crabs. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Oh, well. Crab meat is excellent. I know. Yeah, crabs are good, but I can't eat steamed crabs anymore because of the salt. Uh, 
I, I came in. My son is in the same situation because of his heart attack. He's on a salt-free diet. So, oh. So neither one of us hmm. can have crabs anymore. But once in a while, I'll eat a crab cake. Good for you. Yes. I like them, too. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, crab cakes are good. And, uh, okay, so when I come... When we come to visit you, we get crab cakes, right? Yes, you would. You... <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. You clear out the spare bedroom. Ralden and I don't take up very much room. <laughs> <laughs> oh, John, I'm amazed you called us on the night you traveled. That, that, that is terrific, John. You know, I, we, we got in the house about 10 o'clock. Wow. I turned up. USA on right away. So, I'm assuming you're going to sleep in tomorrow, right? You're not going to go to church tomorrow, are you? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to church tomorrow. You are. You're, you're a good man. I went to church in Texas also. To my, good. I'm going to go to all church. <laughs> I, got to, I, I kept a bulletin so I can show my pastor I went to church. There you go. <laughs> maybe, maybe he can figure out what they're doing down in Texas. You never know. Yeah. Well, that's a he and a she, which is a husband and wife. Uh-huh. They're, they're both ordained. Ah. And uh, they, they, each Sunday, it's a different one, so I don't know who's going to be there. I see. They have another church in Baltimore. Got it. That needed a pastor that's German. Right. My, my pastor was born in Germany, and uh, she met her husband at the seminary, or so somehow they got... I didn't really get the correct story. Sure. But uh, they they keep turns going back and forth to this German church, so they are able to get a pastor. So got it. I don't know. I don't know who's going to be there Sunday. So, but so, I've got the bulletin to prove I was in. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! So have you unpacked, or are you going to unpack tomorrow? Tomorrow, my only thing about my. Wife did tonight was get my medications out. Okay, and I took them because I'm two hours late. Oh, that's right. So, so all you need to do is find your pajamas if you haven't done it yet, right? Yeah, I'm I'm ready to go. Well, I I haven't brushed my teeth yet. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, go brush your teeth and you behave and no noise. Go to bed, no noise. Okay, because I got to get up early tomorrow. Perfect, John. Okay. We'll talk to you soon. Well, thank you for. Thank you for calling. You sound wonderful. You do, John. Okay, thank you very much. You bet. Take care. Good night. Boy, our family was sick last year. Patricia yeah. and John and everybody so much better a year later. We're, we're very grateful about that. So That is the best I have heard, John, in two years. I know. That's he something. He sounds so wonderful. 714 Hey, the phone is working. That's good. Hello there. You're on with Patricia. Good evening, Walden. Good evening, Patricia. Hello, Jim. Oh, hi, Jim in California. How are you? I'm doing fine. I'm sorry to hear, first of all, about, I know what it is about that institutional food. (laughs) I mean, why? You know, they, considering what they have to work with and so many people to cook for, what, what, when I was in rehab, what would happen a lot is one, I had one person who was really my back or my speech therapist, you know, the person that helped me with swallowing. Uh-huh. She kind of backed me a lot. 
and she would tell me what the menu was, but a lot of times the nurses would not tell you. Sometimes they would give you two choices for lunch or dinner, and um, sometimes they'd forget to tell me the menu. So mm -hmm. I'd sometimes get, if I didn't want something particularly, you know, I would tell them. I told them, like, I, as you know, I'm not an egg fan. Right. And they bring eggs. Oh, geez. Every morning. Every single morning. So so what I would do, you know, I was finally able to drink coffee. The biggest treat for me is when my housemates brought me a Frosty from Wendy's. <laughs> Ooh, what a treat. They did it twice. And my friend, my friend Dennis Terry, the oldies radio man from San Jose, uh -huh. brought, me a, brought me one, too, one time, he and his friend Karen. And they tasted oh, good. Oh, gosh. Um, well, they taste, while, they know, taste good no matter what. But yeah, in, true. in the situation, they must have been wonderful. Well, it tasted so refreshing. The worst, and when yeah. I, even when I had gallbladder surgery in 98, the, it, the worst thing wasn't hunger but thirst. Oh. Because, you know, when you're on a feeding tube or you're being fed mm -hmm. intravenously, your mouth gets dry. Sure. And yeah, and I was I had I had some minor a block an intestinal blockage at Christmas of two thousand, and the my Christmas dinner, which was all I could have on Christmas Day in two thousand, and uh, seven I'm sorry two thousand seven, was ice cubes and I love the ice cubes just to get my mouth wet. Mm-hmm. Sure. Because you sure. your mouth it wasn't quite I much of a dinner. Pretty uncomfortable. I, I remember when I was a little boy, and when I was seven, about 1973, 74, I was going to a lot of eye surgery, 72, 73, 74. And, the, and in those days, uh, for eye surgery, it was a 10-day hospital stay. Nowadays, that's unheard of, everybody. They just try to kick you out of the hospital as quickly as possible for anything. Even when a pregnant woman, even when a woman gives birth now, they want to get her out. Yeah, it seems like it. I couldn't keep anything down. Yeah. I couldn't keep anything, and I kept asking for pizza, because I was hearing the, the Pizza Man TV commercial, so I kept asking oh, for Lord, pizza, no. and finally, finally, they were serving pizza one night, in the, and I smelled it, and so my poor mom gave in, gave me a slice, and I was so happy, I kept it down, so that they knew I was okay. I was just going to ask, <laughs> I should have listened to you, oh, you poor baby. Well, in the, in the rehab center I was in, they had a lottery every couple of months where they would do a candlelight dinner in their dining room. And mm -hmm. it, I wasn't going to go because I was in it because I was just kind of tired. But then when I heard my housemates were going to be attending because the social worker called them, that's when we learned about our first apartment. Oh. Liked at that candlelight dinner is I had fried chicken and they and pizza, and they gave us cake. Which was a normal tr a treat compared. Well, some of the food that you that I had was okay. Their their chili dog was okay, and their taco was okay. Their lasagna was okay, and their salad was okay. But when they did things like uh, oh, what was it? I didn't care for uh, some of the pastas. I wasn't really a fan of. You know the hospital pastas. Mm -hmm. Do they give you a menu at your center. We have a menu. Of sorts. <laughs> everybody, two choices. Every, everybody has on their tray a list of what the meal is that day. Uh-huh. One time in the last four months, 
has what's on the tray matched what's on the ticket. Well, at least they're consistent. What was that last they're thing you said? One wrong, day one. I know the secret. You show that kind of a menu to the state when the inspectors come in and they say, oh, you're doing a really good job. They don't go around and ask the people, is this what you got? <laughs> only, one, help. only one day out of the last four, four months, they've been, they, they, what's on the menu have matched what's on the, t- on the plate. Oh, really? So not only they, they'll really? things on the menu, but they'll bring you something else. Well, you they got just, it. Yeah. And that something else is never as good as what the ticket looks like. Yeah. Well, are the, mm. I mean, considering, are the desserts just adequate? Do you get, like, yogurt or jello or? We get a cookie and sometimes baked apples and stuff like that there. All the stuff I'm not supposed to have. <laughs> Can you get coffee or tea if you want it? Oh, I get hot water yeah. or a tea bag. They rarely come together. <laughs> I'm serious. Chocolate I, I, water. I kid you not. Tonight I got a cup of hot water and a tea bag. It was just remarkable. I loved it. I had a cup of tea. Can you get hot chocolate if you want it? No. Okay. Okay. Patricia, Patricia loves Bill and Kim. Patricia loves Bill and Kim more and more every day because she just loves her refrigerator. It's her. Oh It's, it's her oh, godsend. I know when you get out, you'll be the hap. To quote an old song from the seventies, the happiest girl in the whole USA. When you finally get out and are able to get in your own place again. Oh, I, you know, I, I may have an opportunity coming up on that. It's a little unnerving, though, because of the kind of trouble I got into this last time and twice before, but certainly not this this level. So, you know, being independent in an apartment just sounds so wonderful. I would love to do it, and yet I've got this little bit of an antsy yeah. on the other side. So. Is there an assistant to decide. come and help you, like a caregiver in an apartment? Well, they, they would have, I, I have an opportunity, if, if I were in an apartment, they would have people come periodically, like um, a home health Therapy. nurse or a home health aide or something like that, and not, not uh, seven days a week, but somebody just to check in and see yeah. you know, how are you doing, which would be great, except if I die on Monday and they're not due until Thursday. It's going to be a problem. Well, I, I, think it, I think the family would vote and if we, we can't take a question, we want you to have one of these lifelines around your necks or something. We just don't so want like to. Medic alert, yeah, we don't want to take oh, any I, we don't want to take any chance. Return the equipment. Yeah. Uh, we don't, yeah. Want, to, we don't want you to take any chances on that. Are you able at uh, least uh, are, you able, are you able at least yeah. to enjoy OTR in your, in your room? Well, she, well, I've got my, I've, maybe you heard, I've got my big computer up and running now. Bless my roommate. Her, She's an elderly woman, and her great-grandson came in to visit her the other day. He's one of these 13-year-old whiz kids, and I'm sitting there with a mess of cables. <laughs> his, his grandmother said, see what you can do for Patricia. And 10 minutes later, <laughs> the embarrassing thing is he had it all set up and running. She, well, I had a couple of things to yeah. So now it's Patricia yeah. get to her old time radio collection. My whole collection is on that computer, Jim. So now I can start doing the awful shows again and I can I've got a headset with a very long I think it's about twenty five feet of cord. So I can plug it in and just 
listen to my little heart's content. Right. And so I'm feeling very good. Yeah. We, we, and have you had a chance? I know you have so many things to listen to. Have you had a chance yet to hear that Christmas chronology we talked about? The listing of all well, the music. I have, I have, yeah, I have something labeled Christmas chronology. Is that, That's it. Is uh-huh. that what I'm supposed to say? Yep. That's it. Okay, it's, it's on my big computer, and I can listen to it now. Yay! By next Christmas, we can talk. It's a great show. <laughs> you really, I cannot recommend it enough. Now, are we talking about Christmas yeah. in July or Christmas in December? You know how we celebrate, Jim. Whatever she wants. Okay. <laughs> um... <laughs> By the way, I, I heard. Uh, family. <laughs> I don't remember what you did last night. It was your awful show last night. I'm trying to remember what it was. It was. Uh, oh, oh, it, oh it was down. It was down my down our way. Down it's our a, way. It was the first time I ever oh heard it. Oh my gosh, wasn't that dreadful? It was the first time I ever heard it. I thought it was an interesting concept. But you, you just tell the it, acting it was. was uh, the acting was atrocious, and, and the storyline was equally bad. But yes, it was an interesting concept. Yeah. I think. That's the only surviving episode. It's the only one I could find anywhere. I think we. I think more have popped up now. I think. I, really. I think so. Maybe I'm wrong. Or, or well, I, I, no, but, but I am that, really. I mean, that would be great to have more to to pick on. <laughs> I am really looking forward <laughs> to next Saturday night when you talk to the person about Nero Wolf. Yes, our Brian oh, McKesky. Yes, he's the uh, president of the Literary Society of the Wolf Pack. And uh, he and Patricia will catch up on Tuesday, and I think we'll get a lot of work. We'll be live on Saturday, right? We'll be live on Saturday. We'll yes. be able to take calls, and we'll be playing on the blue. We'll, we'll give them a copy of it so they'll be on their podcast. And so, well, it was, this is just going to be so cool. I am so looking forward to this. Well, he was such a fascinating character to me. I mean, it. When I read, the first Wolf book I ever read was in the mid-60s, and it was a book called The Doorbell Rang. It was in 1965, Mm -hmm. where Wolf confronts J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI. And the whole idea of a detective never leaving his house, having these idiosyncrasies, you know, strict rules, the two hours in the morning and the two hours in the afternoon with the orchids, no variation. uh, Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, no, no, no discussion of business at dinner. The, and and I'll, sometimes when you hear him, dis- what Archie describing what Fritz served for mm-hmm. the meal, you know, you know, you don't know if you'd like the stuff or not. But you had that eloquent image of lamb and yes, uh, yes. who knows what else? You know these. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Oh gosh, yes, and but that's one of the things that I certainly want to talk to Mr. Bertetsky about is that um, I got the impression, and I think I'm probably on top of that, that Rex Stout was a gourmet. He just, he just could not come up with this material without having an intimate knowledge of food and food preparation on the highest level. And, in my, and, always, and I always imagined having a beer with Nero Wolf, you know, and, and there was always oh. in the last chapter or the next to the last chapter, when all of these potential suspects would be sitting in the chairs in the office. Mm-hmm. And he would confront and capture the last... In one, ap- in one book, I forget, one book the, the murder suspect was caught, and Inspector Kramer was there to take her away, and he said something to the effect, I have beer for the rest of you, 
But I don't have one for you, Miss Frazier. I don't want to risk being poisoned. Oh, gee. Oh, wow. But it was just uh, a fascinating character. and uh, Yes. And Archie was fascinating, too. You know, him doing all the leg work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, and it, I, I know it would be chauvinistic today, Wolf's attitude towards women. But yet, that was that's another thing that kind of made him unique. Yeah. Never really thought well, women were, I don't know if the word was, in, what the word would properly be. I don't know if until, I guess he thought women like, were too emotional. He, yeah, he just didn't like women. I don't, I'm not sure the term chauvinistic would fit here. It's not that he was treating them in a way that was inferior. He just didn't like them. Right. If, if, if they didn't exist, he would have just been, been as happy. But he was a oh, he would have been killed. Well, now, the way I heard the radio show, Sidney Green, Green Street played him as sort of a gruff mm-hmm. individual in general. Would, would right. the book be right. the same way? Yes. Yes. Yeah. They all were. Um, and, a little more sophisticated than Sidney Green Street. He, uh-huh. I find his voice very disturbing. It's irritating to me. And, that and, yet, the and now, you've heard the one with Francis X. Bushman, haven't you? Yes. Did you and like his portrayal? Good. Excellent. And did you like, uh, well, I don't know, if, have any of the Senator Ortega ones turned up yet? I've never seen them. He did it originally. Yeah. Most people recognize Senator Ortega's voice as Commissioner Weston on the shadow. Enjoy his, did you enjoy, have you seen any films of the short live TV series where William Conrad played Nero Wolf? No. I don't recall that. It was in 1981. It was on NBC. Very short lived. I forgot who played Archie. Well, I know Tim, I know Patricia and many others loved the A&E series on Neil Wolf. Right, that was like about 1988 or 99. Something like that. That was so- Oh, that was good. With Maury Schaefer yes. and Timothy Hutton did yeah. a wonderful job. And you did not like, as I remember, the Canadian radio Nero Wolf shows. That, that one was flat. I, I, I listened to him, and didn't I, I didn't keep them. I was not impressed with the Canadian versions at all. It had, it had no Rex Stout spark to it. None. none. And I've heard rumors, and I don't know if this is true, that the reason there were so many Archies on the Sydney Green Street show is none of the Archies got along with Sydney Green Street. Oh, Really? I've heard, I don't know where I heard that. You remember Walden where we heard? No, I don't know. I mean, we could ask Herb Bell. I could Herb was in was an Archie for, for a couple of weeks, but uh, uh but Johnson did it once. Okay. And then you had Herb Ellis. You had Harry Bartell, Lawrence Dopkin. Gerald Moore. Yeah, and Gerald Moore. Yeah. Maybe maybe they were trying to look for the right chemistry. My guess is they were trying to look for the right chemistry. <laughs> Could made the ratings. It could made the ratings just want where, where they wanted to be. I mean, yeah. it's it only stayed on for twenty six weeks. And it was unsponsored. I don't, I don't know. That, even rated anyway. Many. Remember what Jim Ramsberg said. I realized, didn't realize this. Unsponsored shows weren't even rated. That's right. So, I guess you can take that any. Uh, Rex Stout did make one appearance. We saw my mom and I saw him on the Dick Cabot show in 1969, and he was interviewed. Really? 
You can, maybe you can find it on YouTube or whatever, or Google. You can, uh, it was September yeah. 2nd, in fact. Of course, we have him on Information Police. Yeah, several times. Uh, we have him. That's right. He had his he own, was good, too. He had his own series during the war. Yeah, Democracy, something about speaking of liberty or something like that. Right. And I also heard, according to Dunning, on Information Police, didn't he get one of, one of his own questions wrong? Oh, yeah, he didn't know the answer. About one of his own books. Yeah. That is correct. Sometimes they, di- sometime they did that to the poor authors when they have a guest mm-hmm. on the author. They ask That's a question and he they knew. James Roosevelt got one wrong, too. Do you recall that one? <laughs> got one wrong? <laughs> Clifton Fadiman read um, a paragraph of something and he said, Okay, now that's something you should recognize. What is it, Mr. Roosevelt? He said, I don't know. He said, it's your mother's column from today. <laughs> okay. Uh, oh, Elliot, when Elliot was on. Uh-huh. Roosevelt, James. Oh, Elliot, I'm sorry. Was it Elliot? It, was it James or Elliot? It was Elliot. Elliot, okay. Now, you know, Elliot later, know you do know Elliot later in his life wrote novels where Mrs. Roosevelt solved crimes. Oh, wow. I did not know that. I didn't know that. I think it was one of the Roosevelt boys. Yeah, Elliot solved, I mean, Mrs. Roosevelt solved murders and solved crimes. Well, one of the Roosevelt, I think it was Elliot, started the Texas Radio Network, and it's still in the system today, in the the 30s. And, of course, Margaret Truman wrote all those novels about the murder at the Pentagon, murder at the Supreme Mm -hmm. Court, Mm -hmm. all those things, and was fairly successful at it. But maybe you can check out Elliot Roosevelt on Bard and see what some of those books were. I okay. will do that. I hope it's better than Elliot Lewis. <laughs> so you weren't impressed with his novels, were you? I was not impressed, which was a great disappointment because as far as I was concerned, he was superb at everything he tried. But this just, this just was not his milieu. Did you get to read some of Carlton Morris's not later novels? No. Killer at the Wheel was one, right, Walden? And yeah, I think a lot of people are somewhat disappointed in Carlton's uh, effort, and he worked very hard to try to become a writer after by mm-hmm. becoming a radio script, trying to write for... The print media. Yeah, because he... I asked... Yeah. It was interesting. I asked... Um, you know, Carlton said he felt... Because, you know, he was a newspaper man who wrote for radio for, you know, over 30 years... And he had to throw away a million words, he felt, in order to try to change his style from writing for the ear writing, than writing for yeah. the eye. And when I asked Earl Hamner, he thought a writer is a writer and it shouldn't make any difference what format that you're writing what for. What Merle said, the whole I thing can... of writing for the ear was totally different than writing for the eye. What do you think, I, Patricia? I, I think Jim is right on that because it's in the delivery. The writing might be similar, but you write for oral delivery. You don't have the he said, she said. You don't have to separate. Um, you, they're, they're, it's just so different that you I, ever, I cannot. Have you ever imagine. read? It's uh, like saying, well, you wrote a play. How come you can't write an opera? Have you ever mm-hmm. had the experience of reading a print book and then read, here listening to an audio book, the same book, and getting a different impression? Mm-hmm. Um, I have, I have, or had, some CDs of Sue Grafton's Mysteries. Yes. And 
I did not ever cross over. The CDs that I listened to were not of the books that I had already read. But I can tell you it, would, it was a disappointment for me to hear the book because what I heard was so much different. It set up so many scenes and people that were different from what my mind set up for myself by reading the book. Well, when we, 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 we were been blessed, those of us who used like, the NLS program, the talking book program, because many of the readers who read for years, were uh-huh. long, some of them were a long-time radio actors who actually acted in the Golden Age. What it was a reader named, yeah. actor named Ralph Bell who did gangbusters and so many crime mm-hmm. shows. And when he, when he would do a detective novel or a crime novel, he could bring those characters to life. I also think, though, because I've been involved in the process when you adapt a short story into a radio drama, and I'm, I just feel there's a different pacing system. Uh, there is. For, With inflections, you, you hear different inflections from what you would put in yourself if you were reading it. Right, because I think for, for audio, it, it needs to be a quicker pace than for the, than reading the book. I think you're willing to go through all the description and how they how they set up the scene. You're looking at the grass while you while you're walking on the sidewalk and you see a car go by and they're describing mm-hmm. the personality of the gentleman who you see. And you don't do that in audio theater. You you leave that more to the imagination. And so reading a print exactly. book. I mean, Walden would know this, and I'm not that good. My Braille skills aren't that good. I can do enough to do small things, but I have a lot of coordination issues. But is reading it with the finger different than listening to an audio book? Yes. Okay, I think think a Braille version is more tedious. Yes. uh, Because it works out for every three Braille pages is one print page. And so the pacing, just getting through the physical... Whoa. Yeah. Oh, and the other problem I have with Braille is, with my coordination problem, when they abbreviate the words and contract them, some of those contracts, mm. to me, look look like the, the like K and ST look exactly alike to me. Right, and that's why I explained to Patricia and others that really only 10% of the blind people are really read Braille. I mean, I, I guess John and Larry are very good at it. They're good at it. I'm good at it. But really, we're sort of a very small minority. Yeah. They do it yeah. well. And also, if you have a book, they would have to put it in in probably 10, 12, 20 vo- you know, volumes to get one book. My, oh, for, for example, sometimes when you have the encyclopedia, you're looking at 36, 40 volumes. It takes up a whole wall unit for just a small encyclopedia. Oh. You know. One of the things that, that Larry mentioned one night, and it has stuck in my brain, that he was so involved in an exciting book that he was reading in Braille, mm-hmm. and he just kept going and going and going. He did not even be- understand or recognize that he had irritated his fingertips so badly that they were bleeding. Yes. He was, he was that concentrated on the, on, on the, book. the story as it was unfolding and did not even know that he had hurt himself. Well, most that, of the, the, the library because of the I understand so it now, most of the books are recorded. I don't. I don't know. I guess there are some books that there are both Braille and recorded versions. I suppose Braille would be appropriate for things like reference books, you know, encyclopedias or 
mm-hmm. dictionaries, I suppose. I, uh, I I use Boyle nowadays as a note taker. Yeah. Um, that's how I use it. Most of it's like using uh, computer to search for things. It's so much easier to use the search feature to find things rather than trying to find it through a book. Um, in volumes. It's a it's a much quicker system nowadays. I'm trying to read it. Let me, let me it. ask you this: cool. yeah. If you were writing the word sometimes, which is, yeah, it's a very long word. How many characters would it take to write that word? Okay, what we do to do sometime, there's there is abbreviation. So this is how it would be done, and grade two, grade two is where you use abbreviation. You would hit point five dot the letter S. Point five, the letter T. So it would take four cells to to abbreviate to make it sometime all run together. And I I knew that that's what was going to happen, but I didn't know how many. Uh, and I say characters. You're talking about cells, so right? That, right. You know, it's, example, it's about um, two and three in different dot, directions. Yeah. For example, dot right. five M is mother. Right. And dot five F is father. Father. And dot five H, I think, is interesting. Yeah. It, Shorthand. This is literally shorthand. It's like somebody somebody wrote that shorthand braille or contract to. It's like learning a foreign language in shorthand. Because there's so many rules and so many abbreviations. Understand in the last year or so, hasn't there been some new reforms in braille in the United States? I guess so. I've heard that some but, new. But you know, it's sort of like uh, the younger generation, my my neat my uh, first cousin. Has kids, or her daughter, like turned thirteen. They have learned math a totally different way now, and they, in school than what we have grown up with. And mm-hmm. what they're more interested in now is the process rather than the answer. Tom Lear made a whole <laughs> song about that. You uh, remember the Saturday Tom Lear? He did a song about 1965 called "New Math." I guess this must be even worse, but they're more interested. They're more interested. New math got abandoned. This one is new to me, Walter. Yeah, this is cool. Is, so they're interested in the price. So you can't, you can't, if you come up with the answer in the in the old way, that's not good enough. They're, they're, they're grading on so, you follow the process. So if I go to the bank and I say we've made a mistake here, and and the woman looks at me and says. Oh, but we use the process. <laughs> that's, 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 going, that's going to work. Right? Yeah. You ought to hear, Patricia, if you can Google it, you ought to hear Tom Lear's song, New Math, where he attempts to do subtraction with a piano. You'll find it amusing. Oh, gee. Oh, um, gee. But the other thing about Braille that was always hard for me was in school, I finally got it learned, someone helped me learn it where I could at least do grade one fairly good. But in school, my problem was when they put you in a class with other students doing it, I could never keep my place, my coordination. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you know, someone could read faster than me, and my finger would wander sure. all over. You know, it was hard to keep wandering on the page. Mm-hmm. You could lose your place easy. Sure, and once you do that, you're toast. Yeah. And, of course, the other you're thing, toast. every time uh, I yeah, went to print, a new school. Yeah, print people could catch up on it, but, my God, you couldn't do it with Braille. And when I would go to a new school or something and they would test, they would always give me Dick and Jane books. And, of course, I finally had the Dick and Jane books so memorized <laughs> that I knew what the words were in it. You know, look, 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 oh, Dick. It's like the 
guys who memorized the eye chart yes. so that they could get into the army. Well, you know, do you ever remember the movie No Time for Sergeants, where he, I guess, he had the eye. Uh-huh. He had something memorized, Andy Griffith. But the funny thing was, yes. on Dick and Jane, they would give you the books, and the teacher would have her copy with the pictures, mm-hmm. and she would say, "Well, when it said." See, oh. see Tim go down. Tim was the teddy bear. And what happened was Spot, would, Spot the dog would kick the wagon. The wagon would fall over, and Tim would go down. And she would tell you that. But if you were reading that without her telling you, the dialogue is meaningless. Yes. See Tim go down. See Spot go up. They're illustrated books for a reason. <laughs> they were the most boring kids. Well... <laughs> oh, gosh, wasn't it terrible? Um, spot, run. Run, spot, run. <laughs> well, he, uh, well, I won't think of one of There was a disc jockey on a FM station up here who does movie soundtracks, and he one time he did the theme to the film Fun with Dick and Jane, which was a Jane Fonda comedy, and he said, in my opinion, Dick and Jane were always one-dimensional characters. Dick was always running. And then he paused and said, <laughs> well, maybe he had the... Better watch that. This is a family show. <laughs> oh, gee. Oh, well. Oh, but it was, well. you know, but... Well, but Jim, I am excited I that you are more, going to... I got far more going, from the teacher's... I'm excited that you're going to be calling in. <laughs> I got far more from the teacher's like description <laughs> than I did the reading. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, well, we're, anyway, Patricia, I guess in about a couple of months... We'll, well, well, later on in May, we'll do our review. That would be great, Jim, and I won't let you down this time. Oh, my goodness. Well, anything is you're feeling good, and, and that's what really counts. Yeah, I mean, is she sneaking, is she, is she walking out of the facility, driving a car to get to the grocery store? She's feeling much better. Right. Well, they, can they let you I'm can doing much bring better. in food you like for you in? She has to go get it herself. Oh, I'm the ask- Ask that again. Um, can no, you can can they here in my? Can they bring in food that you like? Can do it if yeah, pe- yeah. People can. Oh, you mean from the kitchen? Uh huh. Or your friends or family? That's can hopeless. they bring food in that you? That's hopeless. Or can they killed kill a grilled cheese sandwich today? Yeah. They killed a grilled cheese sandwich. They killed a grilled cheese. How can you kill a grilled cheese sandwich? <laughs> Let me count the ways. <laughs> they burn it. No, I wish they had. <laughs> it was warm bread with. Cheese in between. Oh dear. Yeah. I mean. But yes, they. I'm so glad I have my Worcestershire sauce. Yes, they are. Uh, they, 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 they. You can friends and friends and family can bring in food for for Patricia. Well, my throat is beginning. So I want to yes, say yes. thank uh, you very much. All right, Jim. Okay, Jim. Thank, thank you. you. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye bye. I'll talk to Nero Wolf. Yeah. You bet. Bye bye. Yes. Great. I already know what I'm getting. I already know what I'm getting for picture for her next big day anyway. So we're gonna keep feeding her. We she you know, she is so important. We need to feed Patricia. Oh yes. Yes. Oh yes. 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 Seven one. Oh yes. Oh yes. <laughs> 714-545-2071. We got about twenty two minutes before Patricia got to run up. Update on the Debbie Rounds. I, yeah, I got to do this real quick. Okay, go ahead. Because people call, and I want to tell you. Do you recall? I told you that uh, Debbie Reynolds. There was a Debbie Reynolds. 
Yes. Um, Norman Rockwell painting, painting up right. for sale. It's actually up for bids. Yes. And the opening bid was four hundred thousand dollars. Right. Well, the bids are up to six hundred and fifty thousand dollars. What was it? This is a picture of painting of Norman Rockwell painting Ben Franklin for the one hundred and fiftieth anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. And um, maybe it was the Declaration of Independence. And what would the bid? I didn't well, hear the, the current whichever, bid. It was yeah. Hmm? And what's the current bid right now? What was that? $650,000. 650000 For a piece of paper with pen. With my, my dad was watching a TV show yesterday, Patricia, and it was on movie posters. <laughs> it was on a little classic movie posters yeah, that you keep yeah. track of. And he, he did not oh. he did not know... They were showing those Frankenstein, yeah. those Frankenstein picture movie posters from the thirties, and he came. You know, those things are almost going yeah. for a million dollars. Yes, we knew. Yeah. <laughs> we did indeed know. Hello. We did indeed have a heart attack when we saw some of those prices. Hello there. Who's on the phone? Yo, Patricia. Hello, you two. How are you? Hello, Celeste. We're fine. Hi, Patricia. How are you? Oh, I'm oh. doing fine. You can hear me coughing, but oh my goodness, much better than last week. Thank oh, you. Oh dear, that's all right. You deserve to cough whenever you want. That's right. Oh, thank you. Yes, and it's going to make now. you feel better. And we're glad to hear uh-huh. your voice again. Just... Oh, thank you. Thank you. Boy, was I miserable. Wow. <laughs> you know, I was... And I had a, I was... And I had a horrible ring. Mm. You see, I was uh, thinking about maybe I ought to call in and tell you, uh, and say you had celery stalks in your refrigerator, but it wasn't, it was milk, wasn't it? Milk, yeah. But we need more it items. Milk, but. We need you to get some more items for us. But, oh, no. wait a minute, wait okay, a minute, okay. wait a minute, wait a minute. Yes. Last, <laughs> you guessed it, you guessed one, celery. You got one. You got celery. I called. Yes. I heard yes. uh, Walden talking to you, and I thought, well, if he said milk, well, that would be the final one. So I didn't call in. I thought, well, celery stalks. You know, I think you and I like a lot of the same stuff to eat. Okay, now, uh, now let me ask Patricia. Yes. I'm going to ask Patricia and Celeste the the great question. All right, go ahead. Okay, what? <laughs> <laughs> what do you put on celery stick? What do you put on celery Ricky. stick? Yes. Yes. Celery stick. Do you mean a celery stick like you would serve it at a cocktail party? Uh huh. Yes. I'm I'm going yeah. to my pimento cheese. Or have it for a snack. Pimento cheese is what Celeste goes with. Okay. What about you, Patricia? Mm. I go with cream cheese. Cream is good, too. Yeah. I like cream cheese, but also, I've been ready to put peanut butter on celery. Now, am my family crazy, or, or is that acceptable? Uh, join me in this one. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I've never tried it. <laughs> <laughs> no. I've never tried it, though. Patricia, go ahead and tell him he's crazy. Anyhow, peanut butter. <laughs> Tell him what? Now, am, I, am I crazy that I've been raised with, with peanut butter on a celery stick? No. No, that's a very popular combination. I've just never tried it. 
I never have either. Well, you haven't tried. You, you haven't tried about it. You haven't tried pineapple on pizza either, my dear. So what can I say? I have. True. I have. Now, so what's that? Let me tell you what we have. What I Hawaiian pizza and it's ham and uh, uh, pineapple and various things. It's very good. I like that. Okay. Now, Patricia has never had pineapple on pizza. Never. Uh, it's just just kind of a. You know, like a, a Hawaiian flavor to it or something. It's just, and it's on a thin crust, which I like. Now, see, Patricia, as we all know, is a double helping of anchovy person. That's why she would be happy. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> or onions. I like onions on it, too. Sometimes I like onions and anchovies. Mmm. Well, you know what I think it's underrated on a pizza? I, you know what I think it's underrated on a pizza and it does very well? What's that? I think olives are wonderful on pizza. Oh, I do too. I do too. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I like olives on anything. Okay. I like olives. Period. Yes. Yeah. On anything. I don't know what... Tell, tell me the equivalent of what... I have had called around the world, meaning everything in the kitchen is on this pizza. Right. What what is and they called it around the world. What would it be the what would be the equivalent in Texas or California? What would you call it? Oh, in California we call it a combination. A and, pizza? Yeah. Everything 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 you can think of is on the pizza. In California, we call it a combination, or they would call it the King Arthur special if you order it from uh, Round Table in California. King Arthur special sounds like it might make the deal. What about you, you, Celeste? If you had everything on a pizza, do they call it a certain thing in Texas? Well, some people have. I, I haven't ordered one lately, but I think my granddaughter had ordered a kind of... Uh, you might not have it there, but kind of a Mexican flavored um, pizza, you know, with salsa and. Uh, I never tried that. Yeah, almost uh-huh. sound. It's almost sounding like a taco, but not quite. Okay. Sounds Places here have gone into that, and it had a. I had, I ate a piece, and it was good. Yeah. But if you order a pizza that has that had everything on it, what would they call it in Texas? Do they, do they have a certain slang or a certain? Yeah. Do they have a certain phrase that they I use? Think, yeah. I I don't know unless they uh, usually what they'll ask you when you're ordering by number on the phone is that all you know. In other words, uh, they'll they'll give you a few minutes to take something off or uh-huh. put something back on. And but I, I, you know I don't know. It was interesting. They don't call it full. I know that. It was interesting when Bill and Kim took me to a Waffle House in Richardson or Dallas or whatever. Uh-huh. And, you know, hash browns is sort of the big thing, everybody, when you go to a Waffle House. Right. And I asked, they they wanted to know how I wanted my hash brown fix, and I said, put the works on it. They never heard of the ter- that term. I guess that must be a California terminology. You just put the works on it. I've heard, oh, the I've word. heard the word. Yeah. No, I hear people translate that here. Give me the word. Uh-huh. I hear that. What, what is the work in a 
I, I'm trying to remember what they have a certain phrase I, uh, that you, you use at Waffle House if you want everything on your hash brown, and I, I can't remember what they call it. But um, if you if you ordered if you ordered the works, what would you expect to show up on your plate? Well, they had all these choices on it. They had do you want a little uh, cheese? You want a little salsa? You want a little? And so I said, well, what, instead of me trying to figure out, I want onions in it or whatever, just give me it, and then I can just pick and choose rather than going through this long list of what what you add and what you take it off. It's sort of how I remember, but, yeah, you know. And that, that for you was the work? Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense to me. How come they didn't know? I don't know. <laughs> Boy. <laughs> oh. Well, we know one Waffle House where they're not too smart. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Now I barked. <laughs> That's cute, yes. yes we'll just, cross that one off our not, the works. See, they don't chat at night about these. They don't know anything because they don't chat at night about these earthquake-shaking issues that all of us talk about. <laughs> So if Patricia has milk in the refrigerator, then that means you have cream cheese, Patricia. That's my guess for tonight. On in your refrigerator. Cream cheese, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. Cream cheese is in there. Okay. Yes. So so what you, you go ahead, give 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 a guess. You 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 she got the she got the celery. She got the celery, okay. Uh-huh. But you know what I like in that celery? Do you, I can't find them anymore, but a, for a long time they put out little glass jars of uh, cheese. Do you, do you ever see that, like olive pimento? and um, sure. yes. It's put out, it's not craft, I don't think, or maybe it is, I don't know. But it's in the Velveeta put it, refrigerator. Yeah, Velveeta probably put it out. Yeah, like a cheese bread. I had cheese bread. Mm-hmm. Cheese bread. That's yeah. what I love on celery stock. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's good on celery stock. I, I haven't seen that. I haven't looked for it either. Well, I couldn't find it the other day at the grocery store, and I asked, mm-hmm. and said, oh, it hadn't come in, and I've been kind of under the weather, so I, my son... Yeah. The shop, and he couldn't find it either. So. Well, I noticed now that they sort of filled out your cream cheese in a plastic container. Right. Now, and then you have to take mm-hmm. the seal off to yeah. get to the cream cheese. Okay. Right. Well, these would be not in the freezer area. I don't mean that. Right. No. The little jars no. in the, where you had the blown in ham and all that. They'd have those little yeah. jars of pimento cheese. And I, I would look I for it in the in the section with the Doritos and stuff like that there, where the salsa or the cheese spreads yeah. are. I would look yeah. for it over there. What I would think when I'm over there by the ship, I always think of those bean dips that come in the in the in mm-hmm. the in the tin can, so you have to yeah. open mm-hmm. up and it's like a, a bean dip. It's what I always think mm-hmm. of being over there. Do you like bean I would dips? Look, at, look for it. Yeah, where the Doritos are. I think I do, so I I don't eat it all. I don't have it a lot, but uh, I do. I think I do like it. Uh-huh. Been a long time. Yeah. You know. Well, I like it on Doritos when you 
just have a kind of a yearning for something and you want to eat something. Every once in a while, I'll eat bean dip with but with Doritos to dip them with. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I really like salsa on my, to have salsa. I like the corn chips and I can dip yeah. in, into that. Yeah. Now, do you like hot salsa, medium, or what? I think the older I'm getting, I'm gone. I'm gone to more medium. I think when I was younger, uh, hot I, I was good. Hot. Yeah, but now, yeah. I'd rather be happy with a medium now than. Uh, yeah. I I figure I don't want to burn my insides forever, right, Patricia? Fried <laughs> 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 intestines are not good. Mm-mm. <laughs> Now then, is our question still up? Because I want somebody else to call in. Is our question still up now about which first lady carried a gun? Oh, you can take a guess. Somebody called, a new caller called in from San Diego that uh, they gave it to her. But if you know, take a a shot. Well, I'll tell you who it was. Okay. It was Eleanor Roosevelt. You're good, Celeste. That is correct. Uh huh. Now let me correct. tell you, and I'll tell you why. Yeah. You know, we don't think about it in our history very much, but we've always had assassination of public officials and yeah. things. Not with, not like it is now, but we have automatic guns and all that. But you know, he was riding with the mayor in Miami, and the mayor got killed. Right. He had, you know, he didn't. And and so uh, they began to think about it. And, you know, Eleanor took on herself to help poor people. So she would just strike out from there, from the White House or wherever in her car, and go to West Virginia where it was so poor, you know, horrible yeah. during the Depression. Yeah. Yeah. And she would just strike out like that. And I think one of the guards would always ask her, Mrs. Roosevelt, do you want me to go with you? She said, oh, I'll be fine. And he said, do you have protection? And she said, no. And he said, I'm giving you some protection. Wow. Well, you know, when, when she I... Never, she never had Secret Service with her. No. When I interviewed... Ma- when I interviewed Margaret Truman, one of the things she and her dad loved to do was to get out and walk. And Harry liked to dump security. He would like to try to lose security somewhere in his walk. Can you imagine living in this time today? Oh, my word. They would never. I know. You know, but but Margaret Margaret said my dad loves sometimes like to shake security in the walk. Yeah. He would go walking by that black fence by the White House. They used to, every once in a while, he would allow one photographer to take a quick picture and then he'd tell the rest of them to get lost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know how poetic he was with his language. Oh gosh. I, I, instead, and, of you, instead of I don't need you anymore, he'd say get lost. <laughs> yeah, and I was talking to one of the newspaper reporters Ed Silverman and he said I was a daily ritual with Harry. Harry liked to go out and walk so occasionally the whole newspaper staff would go out and walk with him. That's where they would get a chance to ask questions, even though when he was retired. Right. And then... And then, you know, he had his dog, and he'd take his dog with him, and he'd say, sometimes they'd try to get a question, and say, ask the dog, he'll... (laughs) (laughs) 
Everybody's finally getting recognition. I wonder, I wonder who spilled the bean when Margaret and Harry had a watermelon seed fight in the in the White House dining room. I don't know. I thought it was Now, let me tell you why he got mad at the reporters, because, you know, uh, his his daughter had a... Did she sing or play the piano? She she sang. She sang and Harry... did both. And Harry played the piano, yeah. Yeah, and they gave her a bad review, and boy, howdy, from then on, he was after those reporters. (laughs) He wrote a... He really wrote a, a letter... And I don't know if it got published, or did we see it later, Patricia? Remember, he was defending Margaret singing, Bill. Yes, and, and he was going to punch the reviewer in the nose. <laughs> That's what he threatened to do in the letter, and I, I, I don't know if it ever got published. That sounds exactly like him, doesn't it? And it just, it just gets in there, you know, and they'd say, ask him about a friend or this and that. He said, I don't have any friends. If you need a friend, get a dog. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, you know, also what I think is interesting, um, I guess, and this tells you that we are so different today politically, but back in the 30s and 40s, the U.S. Senate, they met what party, they got together every Friday to have a few drinks. Uh-huh. And, you know, Harry part of the U.S. Senate, and once he still became president, he would still like to come down and have drinks with the boys because he would, uh-huh. you know, let's, let's face it, hopefully they're still socializing among each other party. But it's nice to know that at least once a week they would set aside their differences and at least, you know, have some time together wow. as a group, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Oh, great yeah. Great civility. No, there, I, there yeah. was a great civility yeah. until yeah. when. Yeah, I don't, I, I just, I just think, Civility's almost gone. I ran a congressional office mm-hmm. a long time, and it wasn't like that. We we used to kind of socialize with everybody, but I I know the days of Ronald Reagan, Tip O'Neill. I'm afraid are gone. I mean, those days. They are gone. It, oh, sure. It's just sad to think about that. They it are is, gone. and what what nobody you know people choose aside, and what's happening is without us knowing. It is tearing our country apart. Yes. Tearing it apart. Agreed. Yep. And yep. yeah. It's just it, it, it doesn't need to be that way. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. You know. It's just too bad. Well, I did what I did. Promised I wouldn't do. I wouldn't take up a lot of time. <laughs> Good to talk to the two of you. It's always fun and talking with you, Celeste. <laughs> All right, so as we'll talk to you soon. Oh, Walden, real quick. Yeah. Was the sound off last week? Uh, it was down Thursday. Uh, I Bill, yeah, Bill, Bill and Kim had internet problems. Internet went down in Dallas, and they waited for AT and T to hook them back up. So we were down this week without yeah. without any audio because there was no internet in Bill and Kim's house for a while. Yeah. So that yeah. Well, you got it. Hey. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Good night, Celeste. Thank you. Bye-bye, honey. I'm glad you're feeling better. I am, too. Thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, Patricia, you want to take one more call, or it's almost midnight? Sure. 
if we have a call before midnight, we will take it. Otherwise, okay. midnight is my witching hour. Okay. So the last flipper turns into what? A mouse or something? A mouse. So you got two minutes. So can you get a call in before two minutes? This will be our last call before Patricia runs upstairs and sneezes and whimpers and does all sorts of stuff like that there. And stuff like that there. We have oh. a call. All Somebody right. made it. Hello there. You're on with Patricia. Hi. Hello there. And who's this? Hello. Sitting here for about the last hour listening to you two. Oh, my friend Jeff Gilbert from California. Hello, Jeff. <gasps> Jeff, hello. How are you? And That's you, who it was. You and your lovely wife guest carrots. <laughs> Carrie guest carrots. That's right. That's right. So how you doing, Jeff? Doing just fine. Patricia, Jeff, and Carrie are be taking a cruise here. When are you guys going on your cruise? We are going on the New England Canada cruise. Wow. That's where we're going. So you're leaving in September. So you're leaving a port in. Uh, are you leaving a port in California and sailing north? Well, you're flying to New England, right? You're going to. You're flying to New England, and then grabbing a boat and going up to sure. Canada, right? The uh, boat north from there, like wow. in uh, America, and then the others will be going up the east coast of Canada. That will be fun. Really, what's really going to be fun for us is we are taking our upper Lillian with us on this cruise to help us. That'd be good. And she's never been on a cruise before. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, will she like to eat? Yeah. Okay, well, hopefully you seem like all... I mean, everything you read about cruises, they got the dining room open morning, noon, night, and midnight, seems like. I don't know. That is true. They, <laughs> they have the 24-hour buffet. I don't think Patricia would starve. Would you, Patricia, with a 24-hour buffet? She could pick and choose what you need, right, Patricia? Oh, boy, wouldn't that be wonderful. <laughs> that is correct. You can pick and choose what you want. And then cruises you least, have. And, and there would be something good to choose from. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so what's the best meal... Have- What's the best meal you ever had on a cruise? I know you've done, done, done some cruising in the past. So what's the best meal you and Carrie's ever had on a cruise ship? I don't know. What's the best meal you've ever had on a cruise, Carrie? Her best meal was lobster. Well, I, think Patricia, I think Patricia would be okay with that. <laughs> Patricia would be okay with anything that's edible. <laughs> <laughs> We're not doing too well on that front down here. Oh dear. Oh dear. Mm-hmm. So Jeff, you have a, you got you and Carrie have another a guest for Patricia Refrigerator? For Patricia what? Refrigerator. She went and bought new product. The refrigerator. You have another guest, Carrie, for the refrigerator? You and she scored a home run with the carrot. I know. What else? I heard about it. 
<laughs> We're so excited. I know. Whoever guessed oh, that. Oh, yeah. This would be America's favorite game. If who What's in Patricia Refrigerator? It would be the Amer America's favorite game. She's guessing cottage cheese. Cottage cheese, Patricia. Great guess, but it's not there. I considered oh. buying it today, but I do get that sometimes with fruit, so I passed that one. I love That's a good guess, though. I love cottage cheese with pineapple. Oh, me too? Yeah. You can buy, buy it that way. Oh. I'm, I used to buy cottage cheese and pineapple separately because then I could have a whole bunch of what I wanted. Well, well that's, that's not right. bad. In the right measure. That's not bad. Mm -mm. So, Jeff, anything else? Correct. Anything else going on over there? Oh, what else is going on over here? Um, Terry is going to get started in a wagathon. What's a wagathon? Well, what the, her school is having a. It's like a marathon, but you. It even gives you a, a schedule depending on how many days you want to walk. And you walk the entire month of May until you've done 26.2 miles. Wow. Well, that's pretty cool. You you can spread it out. You don't have to do it all in one shot. Exactly. And, uh, and it's a very healthful thing to do. She has a... She signed up with them, and you can go to your page. Yes, but I'm not sure. I don't want to buy You can go to... Her page. Okay. And, uh... And what is the address of her page? Is it on Facebook? What, what's the page at, Jeff? Well, um... She doesn't remember her page at the moment, but you did it on Facebook? Yeah, and then I She has Facebook, and then she can email it to you. Okay, why don't you do that? Have Carrie email it to me, and I'll send it to Patricia so anybody want to keep track of right. her 26.2 miles. A fundraiser for the school, so... Okay, we'll get it out there. Can oh, excellent. Donate how much, uh, how much you want to. A penny a mile? <laughs> I would hope more than a, than a penny a mile. Yeah. I think minimum is twenty. Uh, twenty. Oh, whatever the whatever you people want to donate. Okay, that's nice. That's nice. So. That sounds good. That sounds good. Uh, well, I am so happy that Carrie got carrots. Oh, she gets right. really a gold star for that one. And Celeste got the celery. So the, the, the rabbit combination can solve. So we know Patricia definitely have her rabbit ears on. So what can I say? Uh-huh. All right, Jeff. I will talk to you soon. All right. 
We'll talk to you. You bet. Take care, Jeff. Excellent. Thanks for Bye. calling, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Bye-bye. The world of welcome, Patricia. Been too long since we talked to you. That is true. I agree. That's true. All right, Jeff. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Good night. Good night. All right, family. We're going to let Patricia run off to Never Never Land. Okay, she's got a big day tomorrow. Because and stuff like that there. Because the nurses get her up. That's why it's a big day. And she's got to get ready. Oh, gosh. She's got to get ready. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And she's got to get ready for Nail Wolf next Saturday. So she's she got plenty uh-huh. of homework. Plenty of homework to do. I certainly do. All right, my dear. So we're finished? We're finished. Okay, you did good. You, you, didn't, you didn't cough and sneeze too badly for the last 90 minutes. You did good. I'll- I I, caught, I brought a face cloth with me and coughed into that. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There you go. Do not make me laugh. <laughs> we are fine. Well, thank you for being with us, everybody. Good night and good night, Walden. Good night, Patricia. All right. Thank There's, you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, what we're going to do, we're going to feature the radio shows uh, heard tonight from April 30th of 1945 and May 2nd, May 1st. Of 1945, we're going. We're picking up the last 12 days of the European War, of World War Two. We picked. We started last night on Friday, April 27. We got to the 27, 28, 29, and into some of April 30th. That Monday, we'll continue on Monday, April 30th, 1945, and Tuesday. May 1, 1945. Our goal ultimately get to VE Day, which is May 8th of 45. But first, let's say our prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for the opportunity of being here. Bless this wonderful country we live in. Bless the opportunities we have. Look after the needy, the poor, and the hungry. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Alright, hang tight everybody. I'm going to the other computer. Jaws Professional Zero Fort Item Items View Fit fourteen Cavalcade of America for Fanter The DuPont Cavalcade of America. Tonight, Edward G. Robinson stars in The Philippines Never Surrendered, the story of guerrilla warfare against the Japanese on Mindanao, on the Cavalcade of America, sponsored by the DuPont Company, maker of better things for better living through chemistry. Before we begin our play tonight, we want to tell you about DuPont Speed Easy Wall Finish, the new wall paint that you use right over wallpaper or most other interior wall surfaces. Although Speed Easy is an oil paint, you just thin it with water, 
Then apply with a large brush or roller. In less than an hour, your walls are dry. For less than $3, you can refinish the average room. So for your home decoration, get Speed Easy. It's speedy, it's easy, and it's made by DuPont. A few weeks ago in the Saturday Evening Post, Edward Cooter first told his story of guerrilla warfare against the Japanese on the island of Mindanao. Tonight, that story is told for the first time on the air. The DuPont Cavalcade presents The Philippines Never Surrendered, starring Edward G. Robinson as Edward Cooter. May 5th, 1942. In the shortwave monitor stations of America, in San Francisco and Seattle, up and down the West Coast, the engineers hold the tuning dials, trying to bring in the signal, trying to make it louder. And then they get it. And they hold it. Somebody is calling from the Philippines. Corregidor calling. Corregidor calling. Corregidor. I can't say much. They got us. All around and from the skies. I, I can't think at all. Everyone is bawling like a baby. They're piling the dead and wounded in our tunnel. My love to Pa, Joe, Sue, and Mac. Stand by. Stand by. In San Francisco and Seattle, the engineers wait at the receivers. They wait. And the brute silence of the Pacific flows in. Nothing more from Corregidor. It is as though the sea has rolled over the Philippines. The Philippine Islands have been drawn into the bosom of Japan. What happened there after that message died? People were alive in the Philippines. What did they do? What did they think? What happened to the people? People like me, for instance. I'm Edward Cooter, and I'm a school teacher, for 20 years superintendent of schools on the island of Mindanao. I'm a small man, not very rugged. I suppose you'd call me scholarly. And in the quiet years of my life, I'd often talked about the philosophical concepts of human dignity and human freedom. But that dark May day in 1942, there was no place or time for philosophy. There were facts. The Japs were about to occupy the town of Dansalan, and with minutes, with less than an hour to spare, I sat in my office. Outside, there was the fury of approaching battle. And opposite me, across my desk, sat a United States Army colonel. You've got to make up your mind, Mr. Cooter. The Japs will take this town in less than an hour. Yes, I, I, I know, Colonel, but uh, maybe uh, it's, it's the words that bother me. Words? Yes, well, they're, they're strange to me. Uh, sabotage, guerrilla. Uh, I'm not a soldier. I, I've never even fired a gun. All I'm asking you to do is to stay here and organize the people. Tell them how to resist. I'm not asking you to fight. Yes, but it, it, it seems to me that uh, someone like you... No, be... my orders are to go to the mountains, establish a center for resistance. And you know the natives better than I do. Yes, I know them, and I like them. And they like you. Yes, but uh, telling them to resist means bloodshed, killing, torture. Well, they don't want to live under the Japs all their lives, do they? Well, I don't know. Do you want to? 
Well, uh, that's that's a different matter. I, I know that uh, someday I'll get away from this island. The Murrows have to live here. Sure. It's their home. All the more reason for them to fight. Well, it's easy for you and me to say that, Colonel. It's true. Well, it's easy for us to talk about what a man should fight for or die for, but our talk isn't enough. Listen. Listen, Colonel. Those guns are real, and the people they're turned against know they're real. Look, I can't argue any longer. I have to get out of here. But I wish you'd say that you'd try. I'll try. Well, that's enough for me. I know that if anyone can get the Moros to fight, you can. Yes, I'll try. I'll, I'll talk to them. But, <laughs> Colonel, don't, don't expect miracles. Lord knows I didn't expect miracles from the Moros or from myself. The Moros. Those brave, wonderful people. Small, broad-chested, almond-eyed. <laughs> we, we call them the Irishmen of the Pacific. Great people for a story or for a fight. But resistance. After all, the Moros were few and unarmed except for knives and a scattering of rusty rifles and... When I put myself in their place, well, how much could I expect of them? And I wanted to keep my promise to the colonel, but first I wanted a safe place to hide out. So when I walked into the jungle that day, I was looking for a man I knew I could count on, a man named Pendangaman. I sent out messages, but it was a few days before I found Pendangaman. Mr. Coulter, fine thing. It takes war to bring you here again. How are you, Mr. Coulter? Yeah, pretty well, Pendangaman. <laughs> well, good to see you. Uh, this here friend, Malalao. Oh, how do you do? Me good friend with Americans, Mr. Coulter. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Uh, did you get my message, Pendangaman? Uh, yes. Have house for hide you. Uh, by mine, Mr. Coulter. Come, come. I, I show you. Well, I hope it's really out of the way. Oh, a job never fine. All days when Moro be chased by American police, we fix him up there. <laughs> American police can no find job, can no find. <laughs> yes, well, that, that, that sounds safe enough. Uh, uh, how, how has it been for you here, Penangaman? You mean Japs? Yes. No want no trouble. No want war here. Too busy with Americans far away. So we must attack. Be quiet, Manalao. I know quiet. We must kill them. Mr. Kuder, we call Pandangaman our leader. <laughs> Better he be leader for a flock of chickens. Manalao talk big, but... My people no want to fight, Jap. Well, they haven't bothered you at all? Oh, Jap captain come this morning, say road blown up. Say bandits blew up road last night. <laughs> Me bandit to do this, Mr. Cooter. You, man alive? Yeah. Well, congratulations. Then Jap say, more people must repair road. I say no. Must repair. No repair... Jap kill everyone. Mr. Kuder, tell Pandangaman. Um, wh wh when are you supposed to repair it? Tomorrow morning. We go, uh, many people, other side of town. We no go. Tell him, Mr. Kuder, you American. Well, I know the danger, and I, I don't want to be responsible. But Americans come back, yes? Yes, yes, someday, but I can't promise when. The, uh, road is useful to the Japs. Now, if you repair it, you're helping them. If you decide not to repair it... But we must repair. No repair, we be killed. Yes, but if you decide not to, you have to know the risk you take and what you're taking it for. Uh, Pendangaman. Yes, Mr. Kruger. Uh, you remember the American colonel who was in Lance Allen? Uh, yes. Well, he asked me to tell the people here something. Tell them fight. 
My people no want to... Well, I, I'm not so sure. Uh, anyway, I, I'd like to tell them what's needed if they do want to fight. Yes. Tell us, Mr. Kuder. Well, I'd, I'd rather speak with as many people as possible. Uh, you repair the road in the morning? Yes. Sunrise. Well, then I'll say a few words to all the people going to repair it. Uh, just a few words before they start. But, uh, uh, please, uh, remember, I, I don't want to mislead you. Now, uh, resistance will not be easy. It, it will mean sacrifice and struggle. It, it may mean you will have to kill, and perhaps some of you will be killed. We brave people! We kill! We no kill! Well, uh, I, I'm not trying to tell you what you should do. But you must choose between resistance or possibly a lifetime of slavery under the Japanese. Now, if you decide to resist, you mustn't repair the road this morning. Resistance should begin in ways like that. Uh, uh, not working, uh, wrecking trucks, blowing up bridges. Then when the American army comes back... The... When Americans come back? Yeah, when I, I don't know. We'll be soon. Well, I can't lie to you. I don't know. Maybe two months, maybe a year, maybe two years. But General MacArthur said he will come back. I believe that. Come. Time to fix road. No, Pandangaman. Mr. Kodarai, no fix road. Why, I am leader here. Pandangaman, Mr. Kuder, I know way, good way, not to fix road. You know a way? No kill Jap. Oh, no kill Jap. Listen, we go now to road, start work, we work good, no trouble. Then after a while, crawl in the jungle and then... They went to the road to start work, and I went along and crouched in the jungle with Manilau and Pendangaman beside the road. There were six Jap guards who handed out picks and shovels. It was getting light. The Moro men started digging and clearing the debris from the road. They worked for two hours while the Japs sat and watched. Then Manilau crawled away from my side and disappeared into the deep jungle. And suddenly... The Jap guards ran up and down the road, trying to see into the jungle, looking for the men who'd fired. And when they peered toward Pendangaman and me, I was cold with fear. But they didn't see us, and they wouldn't venture into the jungle. They fired a few shots blind, and then waited. In a few minutes... You will continue walking. Go to walk. The men went on working. Manilaus silently returned to my side. Then, after another two hours, he crawled away again. Captain? Yes? We like very much to work for Emperor, but can no work if all time somebody shoot. Continue working. We were finding these bandits and killing them. We like to work, Captain, but we're not brave like you Japanese. I know, but you must try to be brave. We're afraid, Captain. When you kill bandits, we come back and work. Come, people, we go home. <laughs> What are you thinking, Pentangaman? Trouble coming. Why? This. We work for Jap. They make very nice for us. But Jap, no, we hate them. So if we no work and if they win war, Mr. Kuda, I think they will kill us all. They're not going to win the war, Pentangaman. Maybe. Long time Americans go away. What happened to them? 
Maybe they don't want fight no more. You know that's not so. When they come back, Mr. Kuda, when? I don't know. I've been thinking, uh, you know, ever since what happened at the road, I, I know your people do want to resist. All they need, Pendangaman, is a real leader. I know, can tell them to fight. Well, you ask when the Americans will come back. That depends on many things, and partly on how much trouble you make for the Japs here. It's your freedom, too, Pendangaman, and I've come to this conclusion. Sabotage is not enough. It's time for the Moros to kill Japs. You, Mr. Kuda. Now you sound like Manalao and, and my wife, Maruki. Maruki, too? Well, soon every Moro must decide, no matter what you, their leader, may think, that to have their own country, to be free, they have to fight. You are listening to Edward G. Robinson as Edward Cooder in The Philippines Never Surrendered on the Cavalcade of America, sponsored by the DuPont Company, maker of better things for better living through chemistry. As we come to the second act of our play, Edward Cooder resumes his story of the building of a native underground movement on Mindanao during the Japanese occupation. After I knew the Moro people were ready to resist the Japanese, I became a man of action, trying to bring together the threads of courage, ingenuity, and strength I'd seen in the Moros, trying to fill the gap left by the weakness and the hesitations of their leader. Days passed and weeks, and then I saw that the temper of the Japs began to change. I sensed that they were getting pushed back somewhere, that the war wasn't going too well with them, because fear crept back into Japanese faces and they began to make mistakes. How much for this? Twelve pesos. Here is the money. Uh, you give me only five pesos. You will take five pesos? No, sir. Twelve pesos. Don't tell me what to pay. There. You are a lucky man, you get anything. Next time, maybe you know better. Huh? Well... What are you going to do? Do? Nothing, Mr. Kuda. You let the chap slap your face? You, one of the Moro people? Me want to kill, but cannot. Why? If you don't, you're a man without honor. Pandangaman say no killing. Yes, but if you do kill him, you will be honored and named by your grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Wait. Wait, Mr. Kuda. I go. Sir, good, Captain. So, you speak to me? Sir, I worthless man. I no want to take more than five pesos. Oh, next time you know better with Japanese. Yes, sir. Uh, sir, you tell me, please, what is great Navy ship there in harbor? That one? Yes. Oh, fine ship of Japanese Imperial Navy. Name Kachuk. <laughs> Clean through the throat. You Jap cannot slap Moro. Even you have many guns. Pandangaman! 
Where are man who is killing my soldier? Don't know. Where is this man? Pandaman. Three months ago. I am to giving order. All knives must be turned over to Japanese army. How's this man having his knife? Don't know how this man have knife. Pandangaman, tonight we are going to every house. Give the people order to reaving all knives in doorway of their homes. We are picking up knives tonight. Goodbye. Pandangaman. You can come out now, Mr. Kuda. He gone. You're not going to let them take the people's knives, are you? What can I do? Pandangaman, don't you see they're afraid of you? The Americans must be closer than we think. Quiet. My wife coming. Say nothing about it. So, you still sit here like woman? From you, only insult. More and more Jap kill our people. Beat steel. And you sit here like old lady with no teeth. Pandangaman, you can't let the Japs take your people's weapons tonight. Call them together. Let them decide if they want to fight. <laughs> That night, in the darkness around Pendangaman's house, the people sat and talked. I moved among them, listening, putting in a word here and there. They all had their rifles with them. They had come expecting to fight. And yet Pendangaman sat without speaking, and I knew he wouldn't give the command. Then it happened. A young man came up to Pendangaman. Pendangaman, many Japanese coming up road, coming this way. Oh, not so good. Everyone, Japanese coming. Put down rifles, then sit. Everyone. I could feel the nervousness rising like a fog from the people. All eyes were on the road that passed Pendangaman's house. But Pendangaman was turned a little away, and he seemed to be hardly breathing. We heard the troops approaching, and then from another direction out of the jungle, a man came running. Everyone turned to see. It was Manalao. Pendangaman, boat wreck on shore. Japanese soldiers swim in water. American submarines, Pandangaman. American submarines sink Jap ship offshore. They come back, Pandangaman. We fight now. We fight now. Well, now what do you say, Pandangaman? Quiet, Maruti. Bah! You old woman. I go after them with my knife. I will lead people. Quiet, Maruti. Quiet. Mr. Kuda, go into your house before they see you. All right, I'll go. You can see what your people want, Pandangaman. If you're really their leader, you have to prove it. Now is the time to act. I went into the house and watched. I saw the soldiers pass the house and vanish over the little hill road. And then I saw Pendangaman get to his feet. I knew now he felt the pulse of his people and he was ready to leave them. The thing that happens over and over in human history, it happened in Mindanao. The people needing a leader had created one out of their own strength, their own fierce needs. Pendangaman stood up and the Moro people rose without a word and followed. Moving noiselessly, the people spread out behind him and started running. I ran out of the house behind them. They filled the jungle on both sides of the Jap column and then caught up with it. For a moment, we could only hear the sound of marching and then... From that night on... The Japanese on Mindanao had died in many ways. By bullet, by stone, by knife, and by rope. The Japs had swallowed up the Philippines and the feast had killed them. Well, my job's done here, Penangaman. 
You leave us now, Mr. Kuda? Yes, I... I think I should go to the mountains and join the colonel. The people are organized now, and they have their leader. Yes. Tell colonel we fight for him. We make way for American to come. And tell him come soon. I'll tell him. And he'll thank you. And I know, Pendangaman, you've made yourselves a great people in this war. You will not be forgotten. Well, Cooter, how's it seem being a hero? <laughs> oh, I don't know that I am, Colonel. I, I told you I was no soldier. <laughs> Maybe not, but you certainly started things popping down there. Well, they're fighting, yes. Poisoning Japs, knifing them, throwing them off cliffs. They're organized, Colonel, but uh, <laughs> I still haven't fired a rifle. <laughs> Remember? I told you that wasn't important. Yes, the Moros are fighting like people who deserve their country. You know what I mean. To me, that's a fine thing. I know. Colonel, your answer from MacArthur's headquarters, sir. Uh, what's it say? Well, General MacArthur's sending a sub. We're to meet it on the coast. Here are full directions, sir. Good. Well, Cooter, I guess you're going home. On that black day of May 1942... They listened in Seattle, and the radio was dead on Corregidor. But in February 1945, I lay in a New York hospital, and beside me the radio was tuned to the same wave band. The voice had returned to Corregidor. To Manila and to those islands, the speech of free men had returned, and it soared like strong birds across the long Pacific, soared in the voice of General MacArthur, President Osminia, my country has kept the faith. On her behalf, I now solemnly declare the full powers and responsibilities under the Constitution restored to the Philippine Commonwealth. We come here as an army of free men, dedicated with your people to the cause of human liberty. Manila has regained her rightful place as a living and heroic symbol of democracy. The level voice of Douglas MacArthur rose out of the sea, and the silence of the sea was rolled away. And I knew then what I had stayed behind to prove. The Philippines never surrendered. Our thanks to you, Edward G. Robinson, and to all members of tonight's DuPont Cavalcade cast. Now, here is Gain Whitman. As each day brings us nearer to the end of war in Europe, we turn our thoughts westward. Westward to Japan, and currently to San Francisco, where at the United Nations Conference, men of goodwill are striving that world war may never come again. Lamont DuPont, chairman of the board of the DuPont Company, recently said about the San Francisco Conference, as an official of an American company, which, like the great majority of American industry, has in two world wars been forced by events to turn its peacetime production to making the materials of war, 
I should like to say of the United Nations Conference on World Organization in San Francisco that I hope with all my heart that the nations which are winning this conflict will be successful in perfecting a workable way to secure the future peace. Obviously, we cannot wave a full-functioning world organization into being at the point of a magician's wand and guarantee by that act that there will never be war again. It is a harder task than that, for I can appreciate that it will be difficult to agree upon the best method of preserving the peace. By that token, it must be undertaken immediately and cooperatively. And I hope the United Nations will find it in themselves to reach a constructive agreement and exert the long-term, ceaseless effort necessary to make the machinery effective in the amicable settlement of international questions. It takes only one nation to make a war. It takes many nations working together to make peace in the world. I take pride in the part our company has played in World War I and World War II in helping provide the physical weapons to enable ourselves and our allies to defeat those nations that have twice in one generation made war on the civilized world. But in each case, it was a contribution to the national welfare inspired by a sense of responsibility and not one that we would have sought for business reasons. We have wanted, and we want now, a world at peace. This is not a new attitude on the part of the DuPont Company. Time after time, during the Civil War, on the occasion of the Disarmament Conference in 1921, and on various other occasions, responsible officers of this company have made it clear that not only the strong natural sympathies of its management, but also the plain business interests of the company lie overwhelmingly in the direction of the continued maintenance of world peace. We prefer, both for selfish and humanitarian reasons, to do the economic work of an industrial company in a world of peace, and not the uneconomic work of a world at war. This is our desire, too, for the future. That is why my hope for the successful outcome of the meeting is deep and strong. No organization that comes from the deliberations at San Francisco will mean that the United States or our allies can automatically cease to rely on their own resources to protect their ultimate security. But I believe it has been demonstrated that no nation can of itself be secure and that the peacetime association, politically, economically, and scientifically, of the nations now cooperating to win this war offers the best chance that we shall not have to do it all over again in another quarter of a century. I hope the United Nations Conference will succeed so that the fullest resources and genius of American private enterprise can be turned soon and from then on to producing for peace and to creating the post-war jobs that all of us so urgently want." Unquote. These words of Lamont DuPont express the hope of all of us in the DuPont Company whose peacetime work provides you with better things for better living through chemistry. Next week, the DuPont Cavalcade will bring you the story of an attractive young illustrator who suddenly found a way to use her talent as an artist in a personal crisis brought on by the war. Our play is called Artist to the Wounded, and our star will be the charming screen actress Geraldine Fitzgerald.
Edward G. Robinson may be seen currently in the international production, Woman in the Window. The music for tonight's DuPont Cavalcade was composed and conducted by Robert Armbruster. Our Cavalcade play was written by Arthur Miller and was based on a Saturday Evening Post series by Edward Cooter and Pete Martin. This is Frank Graham inviting you to listen next week to Artists to the Wounded, starring Geraldine Fitzgerald on the Cavalcade of America, brought to you by the DuPont Company of Wilmington, Delaware. This is the National Broadcasting Company. April 30th, 1945. Let's switch over, I think, to CBS, where the screen guild is. Fifteen. Screen enter. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight, Lady Esther presents the screen guild players in a story that is part of the legend of California. Each year, it is performed at a great outdoor festival in Hammett and each year thousands make a pilgrimage to see it. This year, that pilgrimage has been impossible, and so we bring this story to your homes. Lady Esther presents the Screen Guild players in Helen Hunt Jackson's immortal story, Ramona, based on the famous 20th Century Fox picture. And bringing to life those early California days are Ann Baxter as Ramona, Joseph Cotton as Alessandro, and Reed Hadley as Felipe. The Lady Esther Screen Guild Players in Ramona. A very long time ago. And the land was warm with sunshine and with happiness and peace. I remember I just returned from the convent. I'd come home again to the Rancho Moreno, where I lived with my aunt and my cousin Felipe. Oh, what a joyful day that was. They were having a great fiesta for me. All the countryside had been invited, and in the courtyard of the hacienda, many hands and tongues were busy. Come show more peppers. Pedro, shell the beans. Carlos, more wood for the fires. A fiesta, as for a princess. She's more beautiful than a princess. Our Ramona is a saint from heaven. <laughs> Aye, Senor Felipe thinks so too. When he looks at her, his eyes are like... Stop the... bleating, you old sheep. Oh, I have seen it ever since she returned from the convent. Turn that spit. You want the meat to burn? <laughs> Young Senor Felipe does not fool me. <laughs> he will have much to confess to Father Salvadera. <laughs> one, two, one. Senor... Oh, and Senor Morena with him. Now you'll hold your tongue, you old fool. One, make ready. The Indians are bringing the sheep from the hills. Oh, si, senor. Senor Felipe, will Alessandro lead them again? Will he come in time for the fiesta? Yes, Margarita, in time to sing and dance and maybe to steal a kiss from you. <laughs> Felipe, you shouldn't encourage them to mingle with the Indians. But, Mother, Alessandro is more than just an Indian. He's my friend. Ever since we were little boys, we... Alessandro! 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 Senor? Senor Felipe. How are you, Alessandro? Very well, Senor. And yourself? I've never been better. Nor have I ever seen a finer horse. Where did you get him? 
I roped him out of a wild herd this spring. He's really a beauty. He's yours, senor. Oh, no, Alessandro, I couldn't. But I'll race you for him. Will you match him against my black three-year-old? You name the term, senor. My horse, saddle, and bridle against yours. That would not be fair. I have no saddle. <laughs> oh, I'll accept that handicap. We'll race tomorrow. Now go freshen up, Alessandro. Tell your men to make ready. We start our fiesta within the hour. So? Oh, oh do you like you, Ramona. I'm so glad. Ramona? Yes, Felipe. Oh, for shame. You spend your time with girls while we men die of loneliness. <laughs> I had to give them their presents, Felipe. Come, we'll join the company. They're all here, Ramona, for 40 miles around just to greet you, to dance with you. I must admit, I'm a little jealous. You jealous? Why not? You're the gentlest, the kindest, the loveliest. Oh, the... such a pretty speech. You should say that to your sweetheart. I am saying it. Felipe, you're sweet. I missed you so. All the time I was at the convent, I kept wishing I was here, home with you. Ramona, darling. I couldn't love you any more than I do, not even if you really were my brother. Your brother? But Ramona, listen, there's, there's something... But Felipe, they started the dancing. Come along, we'll have to hurry, darling. I've saved the first one for you. Felipe and Ramona, they dance so beautifully. Don't you think so, Signora? Father Salvadera, I need your help. My help? I'm afraid. Ever since Ramona came back, the way Felipe looks at her, I never dreamed anything like this would happen. Uh, then you've been blind. Felipe has loved her ever since they were children. I'm sure he hopes to marry her. I'd rather see him dead. Senora! I want to look at my grandchildren without shame. Senora, you remember your oath? How you kissed the crucifix in your dying sister's hand and promised to care for Ramona as if she were your own? I remember, Father. And I shan't break my promise. But neither shall she marry my son. Felipe, who is that? The one who's singing. That's Alessandro, head of the shepherds. His father was a great chief. He sings so beautifully. So beautifully. Wait until tomorrow morning when they march to the chapel. Then, Ramona, then you will hear Alessandro sing. I used to dream about it. The servants, the Indians, the whole household marching together, singing. The padre blessing the rancho as they crossed the patio. Chapel bell, the altar boys in white, the shrine piled high with spring flowers. And the music, the music. The sunrise hymn. Heavenly, heavenly morning. 
I kneeled. And all about me, I could hear that voice. The shepherd singing sweet and clear. Slowly as in a dream, I turned. His eyes found mine. And something strange and holy passed between us then. Until it seemed that only we were there. We two alone. We two before God. And then the mass was done. And all was gay again. Padre, you must come to the race. A good race deserves a blessing, too. Who rides today, Juan? Felipe and Alessandro, horse against horse. That morning began so happy with us. The entire household, everyone was there, excited and eager for the race. And now the two riders took their places. Now they look for the starting signal, and now... They're out! The two of them so closely matched, neck and neck across the field, shoulder to shoulder at the halfway's mark. Not an inch between them as they made the turn. Now they were headed back, both riding hard and clean, both laying on the whip until... Felipe! He's down! Felipe is down! He's so quiet, so still. He's dead. No, senorita, he lives, but we, we must get a doctor quick. Where? San Diego. San Diego, that's a full day's ride. I will hurry, senorita, I promise you. Perhaps it was the promise that he made. Perhaps it was our prayers. In less than 20 hours, he was back. The doctor with him, at Felipe's side. Uh, I thought he'd kill me and the horses, too. 11 hours in the saddle. Only stopped to let the horses drink. But, Felipe, doctor, can you... Oh, I'll pull him through, senorita. He'll live. You must be very tired, Alessandro. Yes, a little. Oh, and you haven't eaten. I'll get you some food, some bread and milk. <laughs> Let me, senorita. Why, Please. why should... It's the very least I can do. If it hadn't been for you, Felipe would have... He might... We'll never be able to thank you enough. Senor Felipe is my friend. Could, could you send me word, perhaps, how he is getting along? I will be at the Ortega Rancho. Must you go to the Ortega Rancho? Well, my men are waiting for me there. Well... The, the doctor says Felipe will be sick a long time. Uh, I know that he would want you to stay until he's better. He is very dear to you, Senor Felipe. Oh, yes. If anything ever happened then, to him... if you want me to, I will stay. All these weeks I've watched her, Marta. She has not fooled me for a moment. Every place he goes, she is always there. Why not? Ramona has always been in love with Felipe. I did not say Felipe. It is the Indian, Alessandro. Margarita. But I can tell you now, it will do her no good. Soon Felipe will be well, and Alessandro will go. Be still. He'll go. Those Indians are all alike. He'll vanish like the snow on the hills. You wait and see. <laughs> You mean you're, you're going, Alessandro? Senor Felipe is well. I am finished here, and my people need me. Is it so much nicer there that you'd run away from us? <laughs> well, it's very different from this, senorita, but the land has always been ours, and there are cattle and sheep for everyone. Yes, I know. Father Salvadera says it's very beautiful. Temecula. Even the name is beautiful. We are content with what we have. We live at peace with everyone. When are you leaving? I had planned to speak to the senora today. We, we won't see you again for a whole year. 
No. It will seem very strange without you. I will miss you. Senorita, there are tears in your eyes. Are there? Why, cry. Because you're going away, and everything here will be empty. empty. Senorita, I am an Indian. Sandro. Then I can tell you what is in my heart. Oh, how I've waited to hear you say it. Since that first morning, when you sang the sunrise, and I said to myself, he's singing to me. I was, I was. This is what I wanted, Alessandro. This, only this. Ramona. Senora. Marina. Ramona. Go to your room. Senora, please, let me, let me explain. Don't get please. your pay and leave the round show at once. I should have known better than to trust an Indian. Ramona, you can't mean it. It isn't possible. It is, Felipe. I love Alessandro. I'm going to marry him. I won't let you disgrace the name of Morano. I'm not a Moreno. You've been brought up as one in my house, as my daughter. Though I knew that someday your mother's blood would show. You speak that way of my mother. She was your own sister. She was not. She was an Indian squaw. Mother, what are you saying? I never told you. I tried to spare you both. Senora. You were born to someone my sister loved deeply. When he was dying, he brought you to my sister. And when she passed away a little later, she made me swear to raise you as my daughter. My mother was an Indian? Yes. And I belong to Alessandro's people. Your father died thinking he had saved you from that. It doesn't matter. You will never set foot in this house, in any respectable house again. Cut off from your own people, no friends, an outcast. No one to turn to. Because to all decent people, you'll be a squaw. Does that matter? Nothing matters, nothing. Except that I belong to Alessandro. The second act of the Lady Esther Screen Guild play will follow in just a moment. Now, a word from Lady Esther. Have you the courage to look ten years younger? Have you the courage to look so much lovelier and more romantic that all eyes are attracted to you as though by a magnet? Women say my new shade of face powder, Bridal Pink, does just that. They say they can actually see the years slip away when they apply Bridal Pink. They can see the faded yellow look vanish from their skin. See it take on a quality of beauty and radiance that's truly like a magnet, attracting all eyes. Does that sound like an exaggeration? Well, the fact is, women tell me words just don't exist to describe the effect of Lady Esther Bridal Pink on the skin. They tell me it's simply fascinating to watch the change take place in their mirror. And here's the most important thing about Bridal Pink. It's not just another powder shade. It's a new kind of shade based on an entirely different principle in color blending. Bridal Pink is not for just one particular skin coloring, but for four basic skin types. You can't possibly go wrong if you choose Lady Esther Bridal Pink. It's intensely flattering to practically every skin it touches. Your druggist may be sold out of Bridal Pink because of the unexpected demand for it. You may have to try several stores before you can get it, but keep on trying. Ask your druggist to order it for you. 
you simply must give yourself the benefit of Lady Esther Bridal Pink, the shade that wakens your whole face to new freshness and life. And now, Lady Esther presents the second act of Ramona, starring Joseph Cotton, Anne Baxter, and Reed Hadley. that night. Felipe was our witness. And that same night we left for Alessandro's home. Temecula. It was our home now. We lived and worked and we were very happy. But we were blessed as only those who loved him. The rabbit had a great big tail that long. Hurry, Ramona. We're hungry. Are we not, a little one? You see, she says yes. Oh, it happened one day in two years that he went out to play Everything we wanted. In the, forest the house, so dark the little one, the land. Soon we'll harvest our first wheat. Then my two Ramonas will have new dresses. Oh, you like that, huh? <laughs> Hello there. Alessandro, those two men. White men. Howdy. Welcome, senors. We're just preparing our meal. Will you stay and eat with us? What do you say, Bill? No, I think not. Are you going far, senor? Yeah, yeah, quite a piece. I'm going to San Diego tomorrow. If you stay over, we can ride that way together. Oh, going away, huh? Sell my sheep. I hear that prices are very good this year. Yeah, it's a nice little valley you got here. Take a look at that dirt, Bill. Yeah, it ain't bad. Oh, anything will grow here, senor. That's what we heard. Well, we got to get going. Come on, Bill. Goodbye. Stop in again. Alessandro. Yes? Alessandro, don't go to San Diego tomorrow. Why? I don't know why. Don't ask me, but stay here, Alessandro, for me. But, Ramona, you speak so foolishly. It is for you that I must go. We will soon be home again, Alessandro. We can see the village from the top of the hill. Yes, Pablo. Four days is a long time to be away from Temecula. And from Ramona. I think she'll like the present I have bought. Madre mia, who would not like a gift like that? A holy Madonna carved in wood to bless your home, to watch your child. Pablo, listen. Guns and fire against the Just sky. Just over the hill. Pablo, the village. Come on, now, clear out the lot of you. Senor, this is our land. Temecula has always been ours. Not no more, against. The courts up in Frisco say your grants ain't no good. I'm claiming this land. This is my home, senor. I must ask you to... And that goes for the rest of you, too. Now, look here, ma'am. The quicker you go, the better it's going to be for you. But I can't. I can't go now. Not until my husband comes. Alessandro. You, senor. What are you doing on my land? This ain't your land. I haven't sold it. Well, maybe not, but I just bought it from the governor. Get off, get off before I... Alessandro, no, he'd only shoot you. Now, that's horse sense, ma'am. Ain't no use going against the law. 
You better take my advice and just go peaceable. And so we went. Our household goods piled in a little open cart. We went and sought for land to make another home. We traveled far, but never did we find a place to rest. For something new and strange and cruel was in the land. You can't camp here. This land is claimed. Keep moving, Indians. You're on private land. This here valley is took. That's just to remind you. Higher we went, and higher still. Our hearts grew heavy with sorrow and with pain. And then at last we were in the hills, in a land we told ourselves the white man wouldn't want. And there, in a driving winter rain, we found the only kindness of all those bitter months. Learning to live in what you folks doing out in such weather. And with a baby. Well, come in, come in. You are very kind to us. Nonsense, this ain't no time to be polite. Look, ma'am, you get right up close to that fire and get dry. Oh, thank you, senora. And you needn't bother with that seniority business. Back Tennessee way, folks call me Aunt Ree. Now, let me take them things of yours and... Bless my soul, a figure of the Holy Virgin. Yes, she always goes with us. I hope we won't be any bother. Who's talking to bother on a night like this? Ah, oh, the little darling. She don't like the rain either, does she? I'm... I'm afraid she's not well. And no wonder... Here, let me have a look at her. Well, what is it? Why don't you tell me? That's a mighty sick baby. You gotta get a doctor. Where? There's one in San Badu. Will he come here? He must come. Well, Ramona, we're Indians. What difference should that make? He must come, he must. You've got to bring him. I'll bring him here, Ramona. I promise you. I tell you, it's impossible. Half the town's down with fever. I can't leave now. But if you don't come, she'll die. What do you want me to do? I have a hundred sick to watch. Is it because I'm an Indian? Good Lord, man, I'm a doctor. What do I care who you are? I promised I'd bring you. I promised to mother. I will bring you. I'll make you come. I... I'm sorry, doctor. I'm sorry, too. It's your baby against a hundred. She's going to die. Nonsense. I'll fix you some medicine. That's all I could do if I were there myself. Except pray. full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is Oh, please don't let her die. She's such a little thing. She's always been so happy, so good. Hardly ever a whimper out of her. You know, you've stood beside her bed night after night. You've seen her when her father sings to her, the way she smiles and laughs. You can't, you can't let her die, you can't. Ramona! Alessandro! Ramona, I'm back. But the doctor, you didn't bring him. He's coming later. Alessandro, whose horse is that? Oh, I, I borrowed him along the way. My horse went lame. Yes, but... I'll take him back later. It'll be all right. Here, get me a bowl and water quick. The doctor gave me something to make a poultice. There's very little water left. Enough to start. Keep stirring the powders in. I'll bring more water. Oh, blessed lady, forgive me for my words. Forgive me for the things I... Oh! The doctor... One moment, one moment. In here, Doctor. Where's the fellow rode up here a few minutes ago? Well, he's down at the spring. He... Thanks. Oh, Doctor, wait. The baby's in here, inside. 
Is there something I can do? I'm his wife. He's, he's getting water for the baby. She's sick, you know. Well, what is it? Who are you? What do you want? Why don't you tell me what... That gun. What are you going to... Oh, no, no. Here's how we treat horse thieves around here. Alessandro! Ramona, what is it? Ah! Alessandro! Alessandro. <laughs> Ramona, listen to me. Try to understand what I say. This is Felipe. You're home again. You've been here for weeks. Ever since the good woman brought you. All these weeks without saying a word. Please, Ramona, try to remember. Try to speak. You've nothing to fear. The senora is gone. There's just the two of us now. Just we two and the child. See, I... I've brought her to you. For her sake, you must live. Ramona, listen, it's spring again. Do you hear it now? The sunrise hymn, remember? Remember the last time we heard it together? Alessandro. You do hear it, Ramona, you do remember. Alessandro's song. Praise be God. Felipe. Oh, Felipe. Thank you, Ann Baxter, Joseph Cotton, and Reed Hadley for a memorable performance. And to you, Ann, special thanks for stepping in at the last minute to play Ramona when Loretta Young's illness prevented her from being with us tonight. Well, of course, Mr. Bradley, I love the story of Ramona. And I can say for all of us, we love this program. We all know what magnificent work is being done by the Motion Picture Relief Fund and, and its country house. Work is made largely possible by this Lady Esther Screengill show. And we're all proud to share in it. Joseph Cotton will be back in a moment. But first, a word from one of America's best-known beauty authorities, Lady Esther. Thank you, Miss Baxter. Why my new powder shade, Bridal Pink, is such important news, it's not just because this new shade is so unusually flattering to the skin. Bridal Pink is a new kind of powder shade that ends all guesswork, ends all element of... For this one specially blended shade has the amazing quality of flattering almost every skin it touches. The texture of Lady Esther face powder is unusual, too. Because of the way it's blended, my powder gives a delicate, youthful appearance to the skin. It makes every tiny imperfection invisible, blends out and hides little lines, little blemishes. You look and feel more fascinating the instant you apply Lady Esther Bridal Pink. It's so simple to make this dramatic change in your appearance. All you do is pat on Lady Esther Bridal Pink gently to cover all your face and neck. Then just look at yourself in the mirror. You'll say, why, I do look more interesting. I do look more vital and alive. The demand for Bridal Pink has been far greater than expected, and your druggist may be temporarily sold out of it. You may have to wait for his new shipment or try some other store. But accept no other color for there is no color that can give you the happy, radiant look of a woman in love. 
like Lady Esther Bridal Pink. And now, here again is Joseph Carton. These past few weeks, the news has been mighty good from the fighting front. But remember, ladies and gentlemen, they are still fighting fronts. The war isn't over yet, not by a long shot. Save gasoline, save tires, save a soldier's life. Sign up for a carpool today. Lady Esther Screen Guild players will present Heaven Can Wait. It will star Susan Hayward, John Carradine, and Walter Pigeon. Be sure to listen. Joseph Cotton appeared through the courtesy of David O. Selznick and can now be seen in the Selznick national production, I'll Be Seeing You. Anne Baxter can currently be seen in the 20th Century Fox Ernst Lubitsch production, A Royal Scandal. Reed Hadley can soon be seen in the 20th Century Fox production, Billy Rose's Diamond Horseshoe. Music on tonight's program was arranged and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. You save enough on the largest size jar of Lady Esther face cream to buy a box of Lady Esther face powder. So remember, ask for the largest size. This is Truman Bradley speaking for Lady Esther, saying thank you, and good night, everyone. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Monday, April 30th, 1945, which switched, I believe, to mutual. Sixteen. Sherlock, enter. This episode from the life of Sherlock Holmes will be transmitted to our men and women overseas by shortwave and through the worldwide facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Petri Wine brings you... Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petrie family, the family that took time to bring you good wine, invites you to listen to Dr. Watson tell us about another exciting adventure he shared with his old friend, that master detective Sherlock Holmes. It began on a, on a, on a summer evening in 1906. I'd been for a long walk in the park. I remember when I returned to Baker Street and entered our rooms, Holmes looked up at me with a twinkle and, uh, and spoke. You look positively glowing with health, Watson. Well, I had a splendid walk, my dear fellow. You should have come with me. The park was looking particularly beautiful. Well, well chap, during your absence, I've decided to write another monograph. Oh, uh, what's the subject this time? Occupational liability to murder. For instance, the mortality rate is naturally high among policemen and detectives. Physicians are murdered with fair regularity, but the murder of a dentist is rare. And who ever heard of a murdered veterinary surgeon? That's quite true, but what's the occasion for this little homily? I've been browsing over my newspaper clippings. Yeah? You recall ever hearing of a murdered tobacconist, Watson? No, no, I can't say that I do. Oh, why? 
And yet my clippings inform me that no less than three tobacconists have been murdered in the past six months, and all the murders have occurred in the same small shop at the East End of London. <laughs> now, why do you suppose three tobacconists would be murdered in the same shop? Come now, old fellow. Give me a logical solution to the problem, will you? Well, uh, let me see. You say that the shop's in the, in the East End? Yes. Is it near the river? As it happens, it's on the water's edge. Then supposing the tobacconist shop was the headquarters of a smuggling ring. Perhaps boxes of cigars were unloaded from the dock and mm -hmm. brought to the shop. Cigars containing pearls or opium or something. Watson, my dear fellow, you're doing splendidly. Oh, you must walk in the park more frequently. You're positively scintillating. Oh, no, no you're, you're making fun oh, of I me. I assure you I'm not. You're expecting anyone home? No, no, probably a visitor from Mrs. Hudson. Go on with your fascinating theory. Now... Why are three tobacconists murdered? Well, because they they know too much. Perhaps they demand a share and the profits, so the head of the ring decides to kill them. Plausible enough, Watson. I really must congratulate you. Oh, I can see that I'm very lucky in having a biographer with such a lively oh, imagination. Thanks very much. Come in. Imagination. Oh. Oh, hello, Stan. Stan, I'm glad to see you. Uh, I hope I'm not intruding. Not at all, my dear fellow. Come along, sit down. Oh, thank you, Miss Holmes. Anything uh, remarkable on hand? No, no, Miss Holmes. Nothing very uh, particular. Ah, then tell me all about it, Lestrade. <laughs> Can't hide anything from you, can I, sir? Yes, there is something on my mind, and no mistake. And it concerns the three murdered tobacconists, I see. Splendid. Now, how the blazes did you know that? Yes, Holmes, that's pure magic. Not at all, Maddie Watson. It's simple deduction. Observe the five cigars peering out of Lestrade's breast pocket. They are of a far superior quality to his usual brand. Obviously, the scene of his latest investigation has profited certain, well, shall we say, uh, professional perquisites. Am I right, Lestrade? <laughs> of course you are. Careful one, Mr. Holmes. Thank you, though. I'll stick to my pipe. Well, how about you, Doctor? Oh, thank you, Lestrade. I do. Coronas. And now, Inspector, tell me about the murdered tobacconists. Well... How much do you know about the case? Oh, that's what I've read in the papers. Well, curiously enough, we were discussing the affair as you walked in, Lestrade. It's a strange business, gentlemen. I only got hold of the old story today when I had a long talk to young Jack Longworth. Uh, he's the owner of the shop. Well, in relation to what, Gerald Longworth, the taller member of Parliament who battled so successfully against the slum clearance bill? His son, Mr. Holmes. Oh, nice young fellow, too. Uh, when his father died, he inherited this shop along with a lot of other property in the East End. Well, uh, how big a shop is it, Mr. Oh, just old in the wall, Doctor, like all the other shops in that part of London. Young Mr. Longworth tells me he first rents it to a man by the name of George Grillet. He lives there with his daughter, Lily, and made it quite a nice go out of the shop. Six months ago, when Jack Longworth was abroad, George Grillet has a stroke and nearly kicks the bucket. Kicks the, uh, kicks the bucket? He nearly dies, Doctor. Oh, Kicks a bucket. <laughs> Remember that. And then what happened, Lestrade? Well, while he's in the hospital, his daughter gives up the lease on the shop. A few days later, an Italian takes it over, and a couple of weeks later, he's found with his throat cut. Did you investigate that first murder yourself? No, Mr. Holmes. It seemed like any of a dozen killings we get in that part of London. A shopkeeper cut up, his till emptied, no clues. Well, who was the next tenant? A Scotchman, bloke by the name of Mackintosh. A few weeks after he moved in, the same thing happened to him. That time, I did go down there. But I couldn't find out nothing. Was robbery again the apparent motive? Yes, sir. But the killing wasn't the same. He was strangled with a silk scarf. Silk scarf, eh? And who was the third tenant? The man who was murdered yesterday? A Hindu fellow. A man by the name of Mukherjee. 
He takes it over a week last Friday, and yesterday we find him knife through the back and his money gone. Of course, I was down there before you could say Crystal Palace. But once again, I didn't find out nothing. No knife, no fingerprints on the till, no footprints, just a very dead Hindu. Was young Mr. Longworth the landlord in England when these murders occurred? Yeah, that's the funny thing about it, Mr. Holmes. He docked at Tilbury yesterday morning. He didn't know nothing about what had been going on. Well, I imagine he'll have difficulty in renting the shop after three murders. Well, that's just it, Doctor. That's why he comes to me at the yard. George Grillet, his first tenant of the shop, moved back there today with his daughter, Lily. And young Mr. Longworth worried about them. <laughs> well, if you ask me, he's more worried about the daughter than he is about old man Grillet. So the original tenants of the shop are back in residence again, eh? And uh, what do you want me to do? Well, I thought perhaps you'd be interested enough to come along with me and look at the shop, Mr. Evans. I should be very glad to, my dear fellow. Get your coat and hat, Watson. Oh, that's your... Oh, dear, that wretched instrument. I'll answer it. Hello? Mike Craft, how are you? What? Yes. Yes, he... He's here now. Why, of course. I'll do everything I can, certainly. Let's have dinner together soon, shall we? Splendid idea. All right, goodbye. Well, was that your brother, Holmes? Yes. Lestrade, I do think you might have told me the whole truth. Well, how do you mean, sir? I thought your visit was prompted by a need for friendly assistance. I didn't realize that you came here virtually on a government order. Well, it wasn't just quite like that, Mr. Holmes. What's the government got to do with the case? And how does your brother Mycroft fit into the picture? Not eh? sure yet. But of one thing we may be certain, there's obviously a great deal more in this case than Lestrade would have us believe. Why do you say that, Holmes? You must bear in mind, old fellow, that occasionally Mycroft is the British government. Yeah. Nice part of London to take a walk in on a foggy night, ain't it, gentlemen? <laughs> All our policemen work down here in pairs, you know. Yes, I don't blame them. It's a vile neighborhood. There's the shop just ahead of us, with a sign hanging out. Hello, hello, there he is again. Oh. See that bearded Hindu skulking off around the corner there? Oh, yeah. He's been haunting the place ever since I came down here. Hmm. So a bearded Hindu haunts the place, eh? Yes, and yesterday, Holmes, the Hindu proprietor of the shop was murdered. Exactly. Well, here we are. I'll go in first. Depressing looking place, huh? I'll be out in Jiffy. That's Lily, George Grillet's daughter. Helps him with the shop. Sorry to keep you wet. Oh. Oh, it's you, Inspector Lestrade. Yes, Miss Lily. Uh, I brought some gentlemen to see your father. Uh, this is Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Pleased to meet you, I'm sure. How do you do, Miss Grillet? Uh, how do you do, young lady? Is your dad home? No, Inspector. He won't be in till after dinner. Went down at the docks, he did, to see about some cigar shipments. Mr. Longworth's here. If you want to see him, we were just having some tea in the back room. Yes, oh, I'd like these gentlemen to meet him. Jack, come out in the shop, Jack. What is it, Lily? Oh, Inspector Lestrade. And this must be Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, I'm sure. How do you do, sir? How are you, Mr. Longworth? I'm very glad the inspector was able to persuade you to come down here, Mr. Holmes. I'm dreadfully worried about this business, particularly since Lily's father insisted on coming back here. I'm afraid they're in great danger, but I can't make Mr. Grillet see it. 
Young lady, I wonder if I might ask you a few questions. Well, of course, Mr. Holmes. Before your father had his stroke, did he receive any threats concerning his occupancy of the shop? Well, if he did, he never told me about him. But it wouldn't surprise me. I often told him his biggest enemy is himself, if you know what I mean. Yes, I think I do, Miss Grillet. When your father had his illness, who decided to give up the lease on the shop? I did. No money was coming in, and, well, it looked like Dad might be an invalid for life. Mm. Of course, I couldn't run the shop by myself. Anyhow, I never did like this part of London. It wasn't the right business for Father. Uh, what was his reaction when you told him uh, to give up the lease? Oh, he was awful angry with me. Said I'd no right to do it without asking him. Uh, by the way, uh, we saw that bearded Hindu again as we walked up just now. He's been hanging around ever since we came back here, Inspector. Well, has he actually come into the shop, Miss Grillet? Mm, no, but he keeps walking by and looking in the window. I'm sure if we both went into the back room or left the shop for a little while, well, he'd come right in. Then I suggest we give him the opportunity he's seeking. Miss Grillet, I wonder if you and Mr. Longworth would mind leaving the shop for a while. Of course not, Mr. Holmes. Make your departure rather ostentatiously, shall we say, so that he can't help noticing it. Give us half an hour or so and then come back. Perhaps you wouldn't mind going with him, Lestrade. But, Mr. Holmes, this is my case. I know, I know, but um, in a situation like this, Watson and I work much better alone. We may have to go a little outside the law, and your presence might embarrass us. <laughs> You'd never think I was a detective, too, would you? Anyway, we'll be Mr. back in Holmes. half an hour. <laughs> poor, poor old Lestrade. He gets very touchy as the years roll by. See, I blame him. I'm leaving him completely in the dark. Come on, Watson. Behind the counter. No, 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 my oh. dear fellow. Not oh. under it. Not under it, old chap. We lift the flap. So... Ah, now, I suggest we crouch down behind here. Come on, that's it. Have you got your revolver, Watson? Yes, it's in my pocket. Good. In the meantime, make yourself as comfortable as these cramped quarters will permit. We may have uh, quite a wait ahead of us. Look, look, Holmes. There's the Hindu now. hands up. I got you covered with this revolver. Now, my man, what are you doing here? Who? Who are you? Never mind who I am. Just answer my question. I do not speak very good English. From Hindustani Bapur, Sector? Ah, Sector, hi. Iko tum ida aya? Dekne koasti ya. Tumara bai, humko hukam diya. Tumara bai. Tumjani Sector. Bota cha. Salam. No, 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 you don't, my man. Just you stay where you are. It's all right, Watson. Let him go. He's on our side. I wish you'd tell me what in thunder's going on, who that man was, and why you let him go. He's an investigator from the foreign office, old chap. Given his instructions by my brother, Mycroft. Mycroft? Yes, old fellow. When my brother fails to tell me all the facts concerning this case, I begin to think these triple murders have far greater ramifications than we ever dreamed of. Dr. Watson's story will continue in just a second. Just about time enough for me to mention that any meal becomes a better meal when you serve it with Petri wine. And say, you'll find that Petri California Burgundy and Petri California Sauterne are just made to go with food. That Petri Burgundy is a rich red wine that's bosom pals with any meat or meat dish. 
Boy, what a flavor. And that Petri Sauterne is the delicate white wine that's just perfect with chicken or with fish. Yes, sir, with food, you just can't beat a good Petri wine. And now back to tonight's new Sherlock Holmes adventure. A puzzling case is occupying the attentions of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Three murders have taken place in a small tobacconist shop in the east end of London. As we rejoin our story, it's late at night, and Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, accompanied by Inspector Lestrade, are once again walking toward the ill-fated shop. Well, I don't see that you've accomplished much, Mr. Holmes, except that you've just bought me a nice dinner. Oh, I'm making progress, Lestrade. If only by the elimination of obvious suspects. But there's a pattern to this case, and that should give us a clue. Well, how do you mean, Holmes? My dear fellow, consider the obvious motive of these murders, and particularly observe the results they've obtained. Well, the motive was the same in all three killings. Robbery. Oh, no, Lestrade. Not only for theft of a few pounds, from the till blind you to the real motive. Look, 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 look. Here's Miss Grillet now. She's coming out of the shop. Good evening, Miss Grillet. Hello, Mr. Holmes. Is your father home yet? Yes, he is, Mr. Holmes. And I can't tell you how anxious I am for you to talk to him. I'm going to meet Mr. Longworth. He's taken me to the music hall. I should be home just after ten. I hope you'll be able to stay with Dad until then. Well, don't you worry, Miss Grillet. We'll keep an eye on him. Oh, thanks ever so much. Oh, um... Oh, Mr. Holmes. Yes, Miss Grillet? Please don't go into our rooms in the back, will you? I've left things in a frightful mess. I quite understand, Miss Grillet. Well, ta-ta all. See you later. Let's go into the shop. Who is that? Oh, oh, it's you, Inspector. Yeah, these gentlemen are uh, Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Oh, good, evening, sir. Sir. Uh, good evening, sir. Uh, good evening, sir. Good evening. Did you meet young Lily just now? Yes, she uh, told us she was going out to the music hall with Mr. Longworth. Yes. I'm afraid we had quite a set to about that. A very strong-willed girl, Lily, very strong-willed. I'd assume that uh, you disapprove of your daughter's association with Mr. Longworth. Yes, of course I do. He's a top. He's got lots of money. Lily's so blind she can't see that he's up to no good. Hmm. I'm pretty sure he's afraid I might find out what's really at the back of these here murders. And what is your theory, sir? Well, I'll tell you this in confidence. Got nothing to back it up now, you understand. There's been talk of widening the docks around here. That'd make property values go up, you see, of course. Well, young Longworth's been trying to buy up all the other shops along the waterfront here, but they wouldn't sell. If you ask me, he's had these murders done just to frighten people away so that they, he could buy cheap. Now, I'm not saying that he did the murders himself, you understand, but he planned them. Why, in these parts, it's easy enough any night to get a throat cut for a couple of quid. Yeah. That's why I'm glad you're here, gents. You see, I... Uh, I just got another warning. Warning? What do you mean, it's a warning? Found this note slipped under that door there not three quarters of an hour ago. Let see, please. Well... What does it say, Holmes? I shall call on you at 8.30 tonight. You know what's good for you. You'll be waiting for me alone. If you try any funny tricks, you'll go where I sent the rest of them. Well, that's obviously from the killer. Possibly. What's the time now? Mm, look, it's, uh, very past eight. I, uh, was hoping you gentlemen would wait in our rooms back of the shop. You can hear what's going on in here, and if he tries any rough stuff, you can pop in and nab him. Just what I was about to suggest myself, Mr. Grillis. Either way, will you? Oh, yes. Just step behind the counter, gents. Now, through here. Ah, here we are. 
ain't exactly Buckingham Palace back here. But you can make yourselves comfortable, can't you, gents? Oh, don't you worry about us, Grillin. Oh, I better turn out the gas. If this bloke spots a light under the door in here, he might smell a rat. Well, there we are. Now, as soon as I see him coming in the shop, I'll knock twice on the door. Like this. And that'll give you the signal that he's here. Is that right? Right, you are, Grillin. All right, now keep your ears open, gents. I may need your help. Where are you, Holmes? I can't see a thing. Over here, Watson. You know, I've, I've got another theory why Jack Longworth might be at the back of all this. You listening, Holmes? Yes, I'm listening, old fellow. What is your theory? Longworth knows that Grillet doesn't approve of his having anything to do with Lily. So when he goes abroad, he leaves instructions to murder the tobacconist. The assassins don't know about Grillet having a stroke, of course, so they keep murdering the, uh, the wrong fellow. Well, that makes very good sense, Doctor. What do you say, Mr. Holmes? Holmes. Holmes. Where are you? Oh, bless my soul, he's, he's disappeared. No, I haven't. I was just exploring. Shh. That's the signal. There goes the front door. Somebody's come in. We'd better go in. Right, watch him, listen. We've got to get in there at once. Open the door. Well, it's locked. Never mind that. Get your shoulders into it. Come on, come on, help me. Come on, one more. Poor devil. He's been slashed with a knife. Willett. Willett. What, the killer got away? I'm going to... No, no, Lestrade can save your energy. Your murderer lies there. But that's grilly. Of course it is. Search his pockets, Watson. I think you'll find a bloodstained knife. Uh, Let's have a look. Uh, good Lord. He has a razor in his pocket. It's covered with blood. You mean to say that he slashed himself? Let's uh, the handcuffs on him, Lestrade. While he's still play-acting, he may be more difficult to handle when he realizes the game's up. Take your hands off of me. Come on, quick. Come on, yes. Come on. Very neat, Lestrade. Well, now that I've knocked a wounded man out cold, perhaps you'll tell me what's going on, Mr. Holmes. Yes, I'm completely in the dark, too. Oh, it's very simple, really. Willett has just staged a fake attack on himself. Fool us into believing that someone else is the murderer. Yeah, but the threatening note he received. Composed by himself for the occasion. Yes, but we heard voices. We heard the shop door open. We heard Grillet talking to himself. And as for the shop door, that's how he gave himself away. Well, how do you mean, Mr. Holmes? Whenever the shop door opens, there's a bell that jangles. You will notice, uh... So. Yeah, that's right, there is. There's no bell jangle when we were in the back room. Willett got us in there, locked the door on us unobtrusively, and staged his little drama. Yes, but we heard the door creak open and close, Mr. Holmes. The creak of this flap in the counter would sound exactly the same, my dear fellow. Now, listen. Yes, but why, Holmes? How did you spot that Grillet was a man? It was obvious from the beginning that since nothing had changed about the shop except the ownership, that the attackers were directed against any tobacconist who was not Grillet himself. Of course, his daughter, Lily, obviously knew what was going on. Well, I don't see how you figure that one out, Mr. Holmes. Every remark that she made showed that although she loved her father, she knew his failings. In any case, she gave me the final clue. Well, what clue was that? in very pointedly asking me not to go into the back room of the shop. Of course, she meant the reverse of what she said. I followed her advice when you were explaining your theory to Lestrade. Well, what did you find, Mr. Holmes? Miss Grillet had obligingly left a secret door open 
a door leading to a passageway that seemed uh, to go down to the waterfront. We'll examine it more thoroughly in a minute. Yes, but I still don't understand Roulette's motive, Holmes. Neither do I, old chap. Though I suspect that from uh, the interest of the foreign office in the case, this shop has been the headquarters of, a, of an espionage ring. I'm afraid the final answer to that question will have to be given by someone else. Oh, who, Holmes? By my uh, elder brother, Mycroft. Humiliating, isn't it, Watson? <laughs> What was the final answer to the question, Dr. Watson? Well, Holmes is right as usual, Mr. Foreman. The shop had been the headquarters of a spy ring operated by Grillet. Many international criminals had been smuggled in England or foreign ships moored up the river. And did Mr. Grillet hang for his crime? No, 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 he didn't, my boy. Before the, he came to trial, he, he had another stroke and he died. Probably just as well for his daughter's sake. Oh, his daughter. <laughs> Lovely girl. Did she marry Longworth? Indeed she did. As a matter of fact, I danced at her wedding. It was a very wonderful wedding reception. <laughs> you would have been there yourself, Mr. Foreman. In fact, you'd have liked it very much. They, they served a pretty good wine. <laughs> was it a Petri wine by any chance? Hmm? Oh, well, it was so good it easily might have been. <laughs> <laughs> you mean because Petri wine is the kind of a wine you can't forget. That's exactly what I don't Well, mean. that's because the Petri that's family really knows it. all there is to know about the fine art of turning luscious, sun-ripened grapes into fragrant, delicious wine. You see, the Petri family's been making wine ever since they started the Petri business way back in the 1800s. And they've been able to hand on down in the family from father to son, from father to son, every bit of their skill and experience. That's why Petri wine is so good today. Because Petri took time to bring you good wine. And say, don't forget to take a moment yourself and send for your free recipe calendar. Remember, send to Petri wine. Petri wine, San Francisco 26, San Francisco 26, California. This offer is intended to apply only in those states and other localities where its acceptance is permissible by law and regulation. And now, Doctor, do you feel like giving us a hint about next week's story? Yes, I do. Next week, Mr. Foreman, I'm going to tell you a strange adventure that happened to Holmes and me in the West End of London. It concerns the death of a famous actor who was portraying the part of an equally famous man, Sherlock Holmes. Thank you, Doctor. See you next week. And say, from the news we've had so far today... Maybe by next week at this time, we'll hear some really good news from Europe. I certainly hope so, Mr. Foreman. But let us remember the war won't be over when Germany quits. We've still got to lick Japan. That's going to take a long time. So instead of celebrating when VE Day comes along, let's just strengthen our resolve to support the war more than ever here at home. Keep that war job. Don't leave it till you're released. Keep on buying more and more and more war bonds and, and keep them. Don't turn them in. Help all you can with all home front activities and observe all our wartime regulations, such as price ceiling. That's the real way to celebrate a victory in Europe, by working harder to end the war in the Pacific. Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure is written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher and is based on an incident in the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Adventure of the Six Napoleons. Mr. Rathbone appears with the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Mr. Bruce to the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. The Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invites you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. Meanwhile, don't forget to take advantage of our offer of a free recipe calendar. Oh, the Petri family took the time to bring you such good wine. So when you eat and when you cook, remember Petri wine. To make good food taste better, remember... 
Foreman saying goodnight for the Petri family. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studios. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Frank Bickey told me that's done over a KHA studio. All right. We're going to move over to Michael Shane here on Yesterday USA. We're playing show. One more from Monday, April 30th, 1945, before we move to Tuesday, May 1st, 1945. Seventeen. The Adventures of Michael Shane, Private Detective. The people who make 76 gasoline and Triton Motor Oil, Union Oil Company, present The Adventures of Michael Shane, Private Detective, starring Wally Mayer and Kathy Lewis. Anything can happen in San Francisco, well, almost anything, and when it happens, you usually find Michael Shane, private detective, somewhere around. That's why Mike and Phyllis Knight, his observant and easy-on-the-eye assistant, are locking the office at 9 a.m. and heading for the nearest corner to join Inspector Faraday on what the inspector describes as a wild goose chase, or as Phyllis more aptly puts it, a junket on office time. It It seems there are pirates in San Francisco Bay... Oh, it's spring, Angel, wonderful day, and I've always wanted to go aboard a yacht. Yacht, my eye. It's probably phony, too. Hmm? What about our clients? You haven't cleaned up on that insurance case Oh, let them wait, let them wait. Sixteen men on a dead man's chest, yo-ho, and a bottle of rum. Oh. Here's the elevator, darling. Oh, this is going to too many pirate pictures. Pirates in San Francisco Bay. You suppose they're related to the Indians at Stanford? What are you muttering about? I always mutter when some publicity-seeking chorus girl lets herself be found drugged in her pajamas, wrapped in a blanket in the bottom of a canoe. She's no chorus girl, honey. She's the wife of a college professor. But when she says pirates boarded a yacht, killed her husband, and kidnapped her, well, now, really, Yeah, yes, Mike, I know, I know. You just... don't believe it. Well, I'm the open-minded kind, darling. You certainly are. Here's where we get off. Oh, smell that air. As I said before, honey, it's spring. Mm-hmm. And in the spring, the sap rises. Over oh. here, folks. Oh, hi, Inspector. Hello, Inspector. Well, I'm in. Here, darling. Thank you. Sausalito, first stop. Oh, what a day for a motorboat ride. <laughs> Why, Inspector, you're actually glowering. What's happened? Lenny, I think I got my finger on the guy at the bottom of this deal. A movie press agent by the name of Jim Fonda. Never that guy pulling his Hollywood shenanigans in my town. Why, Inspector? No pirates. Oh, plenty of them, Phil. Too many of them. A whole brigful. There's 200 of them. What? You've already got 200 pirates in jail? Holy smoke. A brigantine is a pirate vessel, Mike. Huh? <laughs> right, Inspector? Right, Phil. Uh-huh. They might as well be in jail. For that anchor doesn't budge until I give the word. Lafitte's men, I suppose, from around the hall. No, no, nothing so romantic, my dear. They're Captain Kidd's men from Central Casting in Hollywood. There's a movie company aboard the ship, and they're getting ready to sail down the coast on location when I clam down. Oh, aren't you a bit rough on them, Inspector? After all, press agents have to have their fun. Or do you know something I don't know? No, not a thing, Mike. I guess I lost my sense of humor. Hollywood had its laugh this morning. 
Now I'm going to have mine. Huh? <laughs> you know, they have to pay those pirates every day, you know. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Investigations, questions, delays. <laughs> well, where do we go first, the pirate ship or the yacht? The yacht. Maybe Professor Porter will be there himself, if he isn't still playing dead. Um, where's the wife? She'll be there, too. And so will Jim Fonda, or I'll fire every detective on my staff. Well, that might not be a bad idea. Save the sarcasm, Mike. <laughs> That's only fooling. Well, there's the yacht. Wow. There's nothing phony about this baby. She's big enough to go to sea. Yeah, but she hasn't been away from that dark side since the professor bought her. See, this doesn't look like a college professor's layout. A nice, tidy little investment there. Yeah, teaching's a sideline with Professor Porter. They tell me he's got oil wells working for him. If that's Annabelle, his wife, coming out to welcome us, they better be gushers. She looks very expensive. Inspector Faraday? Yes. Oh, and uh, this is Michael Shane and Phyllis Knight, Mrs. Porter. How do you do? Good morning. How do you do? Uh, uh, please come into the lounge. Thank you. I'm a courteous man, Mrs. Porter, but I haven't time for courtesy this morning. I can't understand why an apparently sane woman would expect us to believe such a story. Do you mind if we stroll around, Mrs. Porter? I've never been on a yacht before. Well, yes, certainly. And now, Inspector, will you please explain why you doubt Big-hearted Mike. He just can't bear to hear a beautiful redhead bald out, so he takes the powder. Oh, look, Angel, this doesn't add up. You don't plot publicity gags in a playhouse like this one. Huh? You've seen something, Mike. Or maybe it was just one look at the redhead. Hmm, I guess this is the master's stateroom. Two beds. What are you doing? The one bed layouts in the guest cabin. Mike, what did you see? Huh? Oh, just Mrs. Porter. She uh, used to be Annabelle Armstrong in the movies. Well, so what? Hey, now it's my turn. Hmm? I spy something beginning with the letter P. Give you one guess. Pills in a blue bottle by the bed. Yeah, <laughs> think I'll have a look. Mike, this entire bottle wouldn't put a child to sleep. Let me see it, honey. Oh, it doesn't spell anything backwards. <laughs> It spells something for me. These pills prove Annabelle went canoe riding with her eyes open. Mm -hmm. Ow! What did you expect to find in the closet, pirates? Oh, that bag that hit my foot felt like it was packed. Hey, it is. And so is this one. Mm -hmm. Everything for a nice long trip. You know, I could take a honeymoon with this bag. <laughs> Say, the professor's a snappy dresser. Oh, Just fine. look at this sport coat. Come on, Mike. Let's quit playing house. I want to watch Annabelle act. Okay. I might have known how it would turn out when I brought you along, Mike. Why, what's up, Inspector? It's murder, my boy. While we're playing houseboat. So her story stood up. I'm buying it up to here. Well, I haven't heard it, but I think I'll shop around. Well, fond is the guy, all right. I just telephoned a general alarm. Ought to pick him up any minute. You telephoned? Yeah, there's a phone. The yacht's permanently tied up to the pier. I also sent for Porter's secretary. He may have some information. Inspector, do you mind bringing us up to date? We've been sightseeing. Well, Mike, here's the story. Jim Fonder is Porter's nephew. Yeah? Sort of a family black sheep. He's been causing trouble. Everything from forgery to some sort of blackmail. Uh-huh. Well, it seems Fonder headed for the professor's home as soon as he hit town. The professor's secretary sent him to the yacht. That'd be yesterday afternoon. There was a row. Porter threatened to send Fonder to jail and shoved him off the boat. Yeah? Fonder yelled he'd be back and told Porter he'd better have it ready. Mrs. Porter thinks he meant a sum of money. Maybe the secretary Taylor can clear that point. Uh-huh, but uh, where do the pirates come in? Well, I'm coming to that. I'll tell you, Mike. After Fonda left, Mrs. Porter developed a headache. That night she couldn't sleep. The professor went into the lounge to read, and uh, Mrs. Porter took two sleeping pills. Uh, three, my dear. Mrs. Porter took three sleeping pills. Uh, <clears throat> later, she was aroused by loud voices, and then... And then a big, burly pirate with a red beard leaned over the bunk. I believe his beard was black this night. Oh, yes. The light was on. No, the cabin was dark. 
This man, dressed like a pirate, seized me, threw a blanket over me, and carried me to the canoe. It was one we kept tied to the yacht. There was a body wrapped in a blanket on the bottom. He paddled for several minutes and then put the body overside. Maybe you'd better ask the questions, Mike. Well, you're doing fine, Angel. Thanks. Uh, Mrs. Porter, the uh, cabin was dark. There was no moon. How did you know the man was dressed like a pirate? He struck several matches. Oh? Yes, he was smoking a pipe. I see. And uh, why are you so sure that this man dressed as a pirate was Jim Fonda? I knew Jim. He was publicity man on one of my pictures. Oh, maybe I should explain. Uh, I'm Annabelle Armstrong. Oh, not at all. I recognized Annabelle Armstrong the moment I came aboard. Thank you. Well, Jim Fonda had two peculiarities. His eyebrows were highly arched, and his left eye twitched. Hmm? I recognized him despite his disguise the first time he lighted a match. Did uh, he know you had recognized him? I'm not sure. He might have worn the pirate costume as a prank. Jim had an odd sense of humor. I believe he intended taking me with him. He tried to arouse me when he landed the canoe. I was too heavy to carry far. Those sleeping tablets must have been pretty powerful. Mr. Shane, those tablets are a mild, harmless sort. I was wide awake. Limp from fright at first, and then I acted. Don't forget, I used to be an actress. Why did you stay in the canoe after he left you? Well, I yelled my head off and nobody came. It was dark and... Well, I, I was afraid I'd fall into the water. I, I can't swim. Well, that's sensible. Do you uh, think you could locate the spot where your husband's body was dropped into the water? I pointed out the spot when the police brought me to the yacht this morning. That's right, Mike. We've had men grappling for the body all morning. There's no current and the water is quiet, so we ought to bring it up. Well, that's the police launch. We found the body, Inspector. That ties it up. Bring it in, boy. Well, you satisfied now, Angel? No, I am not, and neither are you. Mm-hmm. Say, I guess that'd be Mr. Taylor with the briefcase over there coming down the pier. Huh? Oh, yes, the secretary. Dark and handsome. Huh? And not too tall. <laughs> In just a moment, we'll rejoin Mike Shane and Phyllis Knight in their adventures. Probably no other possession you may have requires the attention and constant care that your automobile does. The hundreds of bearings and precision gears in a car need continual protection against rust, friction, heat, and abrasion. That is why regular stopwear lubrication is so vital to the condition of your car. You see, stopwear lubrication is more than just a grease job. It's a system that's been worked out from years of experience to give your automobile the best possible care. When you leave your car at a Union Oil Minuteman station for stopwear lubrication, you can be sure that nothing on your automobile will be overlooked or hurriedly serviced. Each fitting is carefully and thoroughly lubricated according to the manufacturer's specifications. While your car is on the hoist, the Minutemen inspect out-of-sight points and check them for danger signs. Finally, as complete proof of Stopware's reliable lubrication, you receive a thousand-mile written guarantee with each job. You'll find your car rolls smoother, handles easier, stands up better with regular Stopware lubrication. Stopware guaranteed lubrication is available only at Union Oil Minuteman stations. Professor Porter's body has been recovered from the bay, and Inspector Faraday is hurrying to meet the launch at the end of the pier. Mike and Phyllis are following, 
but Phyllis is reluctant to leave Mrs. Porter and the professor's secretary, Bill Taylor, together in the lounge of the yacht. Come on, hurry, honey. They'll be here in a minute. You're getting awfully careless, Mike. I know what I'm doing. I wonder. Oh, cut it out, Angel, please. Oh, Mike, get tough. Be yourself. Why, what do you mean? Well, don't let a good-looking redhead blind you. So far, she's got all the answers, Angel. Good answers. All of them. All right, take it easy now. Yeah, okay. Bring it over here. Hey, give me a hand. This is heavy. Okay, Sergeant, cut the ropes. Right. Hey, what are all those lumps? Some sort of weights. Made a sack out of the blanket. Open it up, man. Okay, here we are. Holy jumping catfish. Well, I'll be... I knew they were heavy reading, but I never thought of them as weights. Well, the professor went down wrapped in culture, the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah. One, two, three, four. Twelve volumes. Mm Mm-hmm. From A to J. Mike, look over by the inspector. Mrs. Porter and Bill Taylor. Of course, darling. They've got to identify the body. Look out. She's fading. Take her back to the yacht, men. This I've got to see. Annabelle in a swoon. You better go with her, Angel. Now hurry. Doc says, can he have the body now? Okay, take her to the morgue. What about all them books? You know what to do with evidence. The blank and everything go to headquarters. Right. Inspector. Yeah. See any marks on the body? Not a scratch. Hey, where's Porter's secretary? Right here, Inspector. Bill Taylor. Does Jim Fonda strike you as the sort of fellow who'd pull a job like this? Well, I wouldn't like to accuse anyone of a thing like this. How long have you known him? About a year. Ever since I've been with Professor Porter. Uh, Shall we return to the yacht? I'm afraid Mrs. Porter's ill. We can talk here. Miss Knight will look after her. Oh, uh, this is my friend, Mr. Shane. Oh, how do you do, Mr. Shane? Fine. Well, looks like Fonda put his trademark on this one. I don't know. I only wish I'd never sent him to the yacht. Hmm? Uh, When was this? Sunday. Uh, Yesterday afternoon. Well, uh, why did you send him? Well, I never dreamed it. Uh, he was insistent. Did uh, Porter tell you to keep Fonda away from him? Well, this is embarrassing, Mr. Shane. <laughs> Murder usually is, Mr. Taylor. Come on, let's have the story. Well, uh, Professor Porter disliked seeing his nephew. Why? Was he afraid of him? No, no, not exactly afraid. It was just that... Uh... Well, look, Inspector, can this be kept confidential? Well, how can I tell you until I know what it is? Well, a good many years ago, Professor Porter was involved in a rather nasty divorce case. Nothing like that, stand up. His past is clean. Maybe he took on a new identity, Inspector. It's been done, you know. Yes, Mm. yes. Professor Porter did take a new name and arranged an entirely different past. You see, Professor Porter was William Steele. Mm. Hey, wait a minute. I remember that case back on Long Island. Mm, I don't know a great deal about it, however. But uh, Fonda did, huh? And made the most of it. Well, I'm not sure, Mr. Shane. But you see, I took care of Professor Porter's bank account, and uh, he gave his nephew large sums of money. Hmm. How much does Mrs. Porter know about this? I don't believe she knows anything about the divorce. But she knew Fonda had something on her husband? I suspect she did. She knew about the money because she spoke to me about it. Mm-hmm. How often has Fonda been tapping the professor? Well, almost every month. This was his second trip this month. Uh, speaking of trips, where were you going on your vacation? My vacation? Oh. Oh, you found my bag. What's this about a bag, Mike? I found two bags fully packed in a closet. One belonged to you, Mr. Taylor, I believe. And the other one? To Mrs. Porter. Oh, well, uh, that's uh, that's easy to explain. You see, the professor sold the yacht, and I was moving my personal possessions. Uh, I presume that Mrs. Porter had the same thing in mind. What about Professor Porter? Well, he always put things off until the last moment. Meaning? Well, the moving van isn't due until tonight. 
All right, Mike, that explains the bags. Now let's get back to my office. I want Fonda. And uh, I'd like to see how Mrs. Porter's feeling. All right, go ahead. The coroner's inquest hasn't been set, but I want to see you and Mrs. Porter tomorrow morning. Okay, we'll be at Mrs. Porter's home. Mike. Huh? Michael. Yes, Angel? Now I've seen everything. Hmm? How is Mrs. Porter? Oh, she's beautiful, but bereaved. She's repairing her makeup. Come on, I want to get to my office. Mike, Mike, did you ask Mr. Taylor about the bags? Yes, Angel, yes. But he knows the answer. Messages? Hollywood's been calling every 20 minutes, Inspector. What do they want? Tell her at Apex Studios. Wants his pirates. Tell him we got a murder case to settle first. Well, says you're going to have a lawsuit, too. Claims this is costing him thousands. Why don't you turn him loose, Inspector? The guy says you better do it pronto. That boat's stuck till I get my hands on Fonda. Come on, Mike. Fellas. Okay. Now, let's get down to business. Yeah, let's go to work. Well, it's about time. What do you mean, Phyllis? Fonda left a trailer yard wide. Too wide, Inspector. You, uh, want to do me a favor, Inspector? You too? What is it? Check on that story about the sale of Porter's yacht. Yes, Mike, I had that in mind. Yes, Inspector? Is Bolton back from that pirate ship? He's waiting out, sir. Send him in. Pick up any leads, Bolton? Not a line. The guy just vanished. Oh, he can't do that. What did they tell you about Fonda? Everybody had a good word for him. He came to town ahead of the picture crowd last Friday. Oh? When was he on the boat? Yesterday. They said he seemed worried about his uncle. Hadn't been able to see him. Did uh, he tell uh, anybody why he wanted to see his uncle? No. Nope. Seems that he didn't do much talking. Does uh, Fonda smoke a pipe? Hmm? So you haven't found him, have you, Mike? No. Why? The pipe's a part of the description they gave me. Mm-hmm. Left eye twitches, too. You must know the guy. No. No, just the woman he kidnapped. Well, he can't get out of town. Must be holed up somewhere. You searched the boat? Yeah. Even turned up some girl pirates. Any pirate costumes missing? Wardrobe man says they're all there. Well, how about the odd parts? Wigs, scarves? I uh... thought of that. Could be. But it'd take a week to check. Okay, take a week, but check it. Okay. Hello? That Hollywood guy's on the wire. Crying. Tell him I got a murder in my hands. The boat stays here. Fonda's not on that boat, Inspector. His friends are. Get back to that boat. If I stay out there any longer, I'll turn pirate myself. Got any ideas, Mike? Well, I'd like to know about the... About that Porter yacht, Inspector. Yes? Professor sold it all right. That satisfy you, Mike? Well, that cooks one idea, anyhow. I've got an idea, Inspector. Let's have it, Phil. Remember when lovely Annabelle was giving us Act Two? Oh, let's don't be catty, Angel. You be quiet. I know when you're getting ready to spring something. I wish I knew as much. All right, all right, Smarty. Well, Mrs. Porter spoke of Jim Fonda in the past tense. A natural reaction. Probably glad to have him out of her life. Oh, you don't. Just heard from the coroner's office, Inspector. When's the inquest? Tomorrow. Funny thing... What's that? Doc says Porter's been in the water two or three days. Did you hear that, Mike? Well, that knocks the whole case into a cocked hat. But Mrs. Porter said it happened last night. Well, maybe she'll know the answer to this one. Maybe I know the answers. What? Remember when we went through the staterooms on the yacht? Yeah, yeah, you admired the bed. Uh-huh. There were two in the stateroom and one in the guest cabin. Yeah, they'd all been slept in. Uh, maybe yes, maybe no. But, but there was something missing. Hey, hey, I remember. The blankets. Now you're cooking. Look, this is no time for guessing games, Mike. Let him alone, let him alone. I thought he never would wake up. One blanket to wrap the professor in, one for his wife for a canoe ride. Yeah. That makes two blankets. Where's the third one? 
Maybe it was for Fonda. You're wrong, Mike. And about encyclopedias? Twenty volumes to the set, covering everything from A to Z. Right, Angel, right. Where's the other eight volumes? Porter was dumped overboard with A to J. And you think K to Z are with Fonda? Say, anybody on the yacht with that dame? Oh, Taylor's with a shield keep. Well, Fonda didn't keep very well. Well, maybe I left her uncovered so she'd lead us to Fonda. I've got a different slant, Inspector. The only place Annabella lead you is astray. I guess we'd better get back to the yacht. If you're still looking for Fonda, we'd better go. I doubt if there's anyone else there. All right, let's go. Fonda's the lad I'm still looking for. Uh, uh, then you better take along the boys with the long-handled rakes, Inspector. We'll return to Michael Shane and his adventures in just a moment. The front wheel bearings on your automobile are made of finely machined, high-carbon steel. With proper lubrication, these bearings will last the lifetime of the car with no other attention. But notice, ladies and gentlemen, that we say, with proper lubrication. For front wheel bearings do require extra protection. They're exposed to damage from brake dust, grit, and water. In addition, they must support the heavy weight of your automobile. For these reasons, and because they're expensive and difficult to replace nowadays, front wheel bearings should be carefully and thoroughly lubricated. Your neighborhood Union Oil Minuteman knows this. That's why he takes such pains to do a thorough job of lubricating front wheel bearings. First, he washes out all the old grease and dirt with solvent. Then the bearings and races are individually cleaned until they're dry and shiny. Finally, the clean, polished bearings are replaced in the races. Then, with special equipment, every surface is snugly packed in a thick coating of Union Ball Roll grease, and your front wheels are all set for months of well-lubricated, easy rolling. The cost for the entire service of your front wheel bearing assembly is nominal. So for safer, easier driving, just stop in wherever you see the sign of the big orange and blue 76 and ask for Union Oil's front wheel bearing service. Thank you. Mike, Phyllis, and Inspector Faraday are back at the yacht. A crew with grappling hooks is just arriving. It would be old home week if Mrs. Porter and Bill Taylor were there, but they've flown the coop. The inspector mutters to himself. I hope this phone's still working. Hello? Hello? Hello, Sarge? Yes, Inspector? Get Cassidy on the short wave. Tell him to bring Mrs. Porter and Taylor back to the yacht. So, you did have them tailed. How do you think I keep my job, Mike? Mike? Hmm? Mike, you were right about the blankets, and the bags are gone, too. Sure they're gone. Taylor told us they were moving into town. And here's where the encyclopedia set came from. Where is he? An empty shelf, and I never even noticed. Say, let's go out on deck and see if they fished up anything, huh? All right. Hey, fellas, have you found anything? Two tire cases and a couple of pairs of old shoes. Well, keep on raking. Try up forward. Okay. It's beginning to add up, all right. Yeah, sure, sure it adds up. Fonda gets into town, goes to see Uncle Porter. And tries to pick up five grand. No, 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 I'm not buying the blackmail scenario. Why am I? Too well planted like the rest of the deal. Anyhow, a crook working a blackmail racket doesn't have to work as a press agent. Okay, so Fonda goes to see Porter. And Porter isn't in sight. Annabelle and Taylor give Fonda a cock and bull story. He gets suspicious and starts checking. Yeah, but where? Around the neighborhood, at the university. And then? Annabelle and Taylor get ideas. Maybe Fonda is the answer to a little job they've already done. You mean Porter's murder? You're on the beam, Inspector. My guess is Fonda stood to get a slice of the professor's estate, a big slice. <laughs> 
I'm beginning to like your story. Well, wait a minute. Let me finish it. Hmm? They decide to knock off Fonda, hang the porter murder on him, and live happily ever after. Take the whole part, huh? Right, right. So Taylor lets Fonda know that his professor uncle is on the yacht. And when Fonda shows up Sunday night, Taylor drills him. Hey, aren't you boys guessing a bit too far ahead? Huh? You've got no proof that Taylor shot Fonda. In fact, you've got no proof that Fonda's even dead. No. But do you see what I see on that ledge? You mean the lamp? Yes, darling, a lamp. Where it couldn't do anybody any good. No, it's not very ornamental. Okay, okay, quit being clever. Move it. All right. A bullet hole. Yes, honey, a bullet hole. Not very old, either. And since no bullets were used to put the professor out of the way, and Taylor and the professor's wife are still alive... What is it, Sarge? Another bundle, Inspector. Well... Well, Inspector, blanket number three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the same kind of bulges as the other bundle. Yes, Angel. Encyclopedia Britannica, volumes K to Z. Looks like a police car. Cassidy, you hope. With our two murdering lovebirds. Yeah. Yeah, it's Cassidy, all right. Here they are, Inspector. Did you send for us, Inspector? Yes, I wanted to finish our chat. Why, what happened, Inspector? Nothing much. We just found Fonda's body. Get out of the car, Taylor. You too, Annabelle. Duck, guys, he's got a gun. Get him, Faraday, get him. My gun's jammed. That got his tire. Yeah, come on, run for it. Hurry. They're both unconscious. Yeah, pull them out, pull them out. Get her first. Easier that way. Taylor's all in one piece anyway. It's the same with the dame. Just bump your head. Well, that's too bad. Mike, where are you going? To get the robe out of the car before it's burned. Have you gone crazy? No, no. Now, here. Here, let's throw this robe over Annabelle. Pull it up over her face. Hey, Taylor's stirring. He's Mm. coming out of it. Good, good. But I can't have Annabelle awake. Maybe I'd better conquer her. Let me. Wake him up, Inspector. Come on, you get up. Wake Mm. him up. Where am I? You're at the end of the road, fellow. Oh, Oh, where's Annabelle? Mrs. Porter. Mrs. Porter is dead. Oh, no. No, she couldn't be. Yeah? Pull the blanket back, honey. Was she dead? I mean, I mean... I know exactly what you mean, boy. No. Oh, she talked. Talked plenty before she went. You've been out cold for ten minutes, fellow. Come on, you better talk fast. I had nothing to do with it. Oh, I helped dispose of the bodies, yes, but she made me. She threatened my life. She acted like a mad woman. I, I didn't do it. I didn't. Then who did? Annabelle. She poisoned the professor and she shot Fonda. He's lying. Don't believe him. Oh, so you came too, huh? But but you said she was dead. You, you tricked me. Which is nothing compared to what we're going to do to you, both of you. Yes, we tricked you. And you accused her of murder. Now it's her turn. Where did he hide the gun? At my apartment. Oh, you fool. If you'd kept your mouth shut. If you both kept your mouth shut, we'd still have caught you. Every clue that you planted, every clue that you thought would point to Fonda was a signpost leading us right to you. I don't want to talk to them anymore, Inspector. How about you? Not me. I've had all I want. Take them away, Cassidy.
Now, Mike, this is my apartment, remember? Huh? Oh. Oh, yes, Angel, yes. Uh -huh. What are you thinking of, Mike, the redhead? Redhead? Oh, her nose. Oh, no, no. She did sort of go for it, in a mild sort of way. <laughs> Not me, honey. I knew she was a phony. Ah, don't give me that. No, look, Angel, look. What do you think I am, a fool? Yes, where blondes and redheads are concerned, yes. Oh, Angel, from the word go, I had her tagged. She tried to identify Fonda as the guy who kidnapped her. Well, I know it. Well, could you picture Fonda picking her up, wrapping her in a blanket, carrying her to a canoe, and all the time striking matches to light a pipe he was smoking? Tut, tut, Angel. Well, then why didn't you say so before? <laughs> Just because you look so cute when you're jealous. Jealous? Well, uh, you... Angel, please, Angel, not here. The neighbors are watching. <laughs> again next week at 8.30 for another adventure with Michael Shane, Private Detective, starring Wally Mayer and Kathy Lewis, with Joe Forte as Inspector Faraday. Tonight's story was written by Tom Petty and based on the character created by Brett Holliday. Music was composed and directed by Bernard Katz. This is Ed Stevens substituting for John Lang, saying good night for the people who make 76 gasoline and Triton Motor Oil, Union Oil Company. Ladies and gentlemen, despite all our efforts to know that living costs are rising, and certainly the high taxes of war are cutting deeply into our incomes, so why not help yourself and your country by starting a victory garden now? Growing your own vegetables will not only make a big saving on your grocery bill, but will provide a healthy, interesting hobby. Those who have no yards of their own may be able to find space in nearby vacant lots. So wherever you live, whatever you do, Serve yourself and the nation with a victory garden in 45. This is the Mutual Don Lee Broadcasting System. Fun show. April 30th, 1945. This was a Monday. With move to a Tuesday, May 1st, 1945. 18, enter. And now, Dick Tracy! On the case of the empty safe, stand by for action. Let's go, men. Yes, it's Dick Tracy, protector of law and order. Here's a special news bulletin. New York. The British Broadcasting Company has just reported that Adolf Hitler died of a stroke at the Reich Chancellery in the heart of Berlin, Berlin. The German radio at Hamburg, a few minutes earlier, 
simply stated that he had died at his command post, quote, fighting up to his last breath against Bolshevism. The German radio then added that Admiral Karl Dönitz, the former commander of the Nazi Navy, had been appointed as Hitler's successor and had pledged himself to carry on the fight against the British, Americans, and Russians. Hamburg said significantly that Hitler had appointed Dönitz as his successor yesterday, Monday. Blue Network monitors have heard the BBC state in the past few minutes that Admiral Dönitz made the announcement personally over the Bremen radio in northern Germany, indicating that the fight would be directed from the north. Only last week, the most prominent Nazi military commentator surrendering to the American Ninth Army said Hitler's death would mean the end of German resistance. We emphasize, however, there has been no allied confirmation of the German story of Hitler's passing. This bulletin came from our New York newsroom. And now, Dick Tracy. In yesterday's story, you saw how the evidence began to pile up, making Tracy sure that Spike Connolly was responsible for the dynamiting of the empty safe. You remember, too, how Sergeant Martin, while distributing posters of the description of Spike and his girlfriend, reported to Tracy his suspicions concerning the occupants of a certain house. Jumping into their car, Dick and Pat were soon there. While Dick rang the front doorbell... Pat went around to the rear to forestall any escape from that direction. Inside, Spike and Gert didn't know of Pat's whereabouts, made their way slowly toward the rear of the house. Today, Spike and Gert are almost at the back door. Dick is still ringing the front doorbell. Listen. Just follow me, Gert. We'll get out this back door and beat it. But they probably got cops all around the block. We're never going to get away with this, Spike. Shut up and come on. Head for the back door. Listen... They're surrounding the block. Never mind that. Once we're around here, we can get the car out of the garage and give him the slip. Now, take it easy. I'm going to open the door. Okay. It's okay. Come on. All right, not so fast, you oh. fool. Stand right where you are. Oh, he's got... Never mind that, sister. Just stay right where you are. Now, look, mister, we ain't done nothing. We were just going Save out... that. Save that. I know who you both are. Now, stick out your hands. Are you going to handcuff us? Well, these aren't exactly pearl bracelets. Stick them out, I said. Now, just a minute, mister, before you get funny with those handcuffs. Just who are you? Oh, wise guy, eh? Well, you'll find out that soon enough. No more fooling now. I haven't got any time to waste. Dick Tracy is around the front. Dick Tracy? Oh, yes. Oh, so you want to play that way, eh? Well, here goes me, Buckle. Hit him, Gert. Not this time. Now, how do you like that, eh? You hit it up. Oh. Oh. Come on, Spike. I knocked him out. I hit him with my shoe. Let's go. Yeah. Head for the garage. I saw a car in there. A break. The door wasn't locked. Quick, get in. Now, this thing will only start. <laughs> Spike. Spike, we can't go out the front way. The cops. Hang on. Gee, Spike, we made it. That's right, kid. I had to drive through the back of the garage or else go out in the front. They're after us. Look out the back. Can you see them? <laughs> No, I can't see him. But that siren sounds closer. I'm going to take this next corner. Now, take another look. We're okay. We're in the clear. I don't even hear the siren anymore. Did I tell you, kid, I said we'd make it, didn't I? It wouldn't have made it unless I hit that guy in the head with my shoe. Ah, you're great, baby. You're not going cold. Yeah. Well... Where are we going, Spike? Well, I ain't decided yet. 
Had to put a couple of miles between us and the cops. Too busy driving right now to think of anything else. What are you stopping for, Spike? I ain't stopping. Something's the matter with this car. What? We're out of gas. Shut up. Oh. Uh. That's what it is. This bus didn't have any gas in it. Uh, I'd better get out and take a look. Oh. Gas cage seems to be busted. Hurry up, Spike. Give me time, will you? I don't think so. I only had a tank filled this morning. You did have it filled, didn't you? Yeah, I had it filled right to the top. Well, I'll shut this thing off and come over and have a look. Maybe I can help you. Well, if you have a tank full of gas, maybe it's the ignition. That's just what I was looking at when I lifted the hood. I don't know much about car engines myself. Well, just step to one side and let me have a look under that hood. <laughs> I've been fixing my own cars since the days of the old Tin Lizzie. Well, now, ain't that nice. Oh, oh. Come on, Judd. Gee, you knocked him cold. Let me carry him over to the bushes. Okay. Oh. And we'll take his car. Far enough? Yeah, this will be okay. I don't want him to be seen from the road. Now, come on. Come on, Kirk, will you? Come on. feeling, Pat? Oh, boy, this, this head of mine feels as if it had stopped a Nazi shell. Wow. That dame certainly put everything she had behind that shoe. Look at the lump on the top of my head. Why, oh, I can't even get my hat on, Dick. Oh, wait till I lay hands on that pair again. Oh, let's get back to the car. I want to contact headquarters. Uh, they, they certainly made a sucker out of me. What do you think of that dame getting into the strap? That's what fooled me. Where are the rest of the boys, Dick? I sent them out on patrol. Driving through the back of the garage completely caught them flat-footed. Oh, here's the car, Pat. Hey, Dick, isn't that our signal? That's us, all right. Now turn up the amplifier. Inspector Tracy, go ahead. Sergeant Ross speaking, Inspector. Go ahead, Ross. Flash just came in from the highway patrol. I think it may have bearing on your case. Yes? Alan Preston of 575 South Street reports that he stopped to help two motorists that seemed to have mechanical trouble with their car. A man and a woman? That's right. And the minute he got the chance, the man slugged Preston, dragged him into the bushes and took his car. I've questioned Preston. The description of the man and woman tallies with your bulletin. Any more details? Uh, the license number of Preston's car was 4159-M, like in morning. It was a black sedan, four-door, 1938 model. Good work. Uh, here's something else that may help, Inspector. Just as Preston was coming to, he saw the car turn around and start back in a northeasterly direction. The man was driving. The woman was sitting alongside of him in the front seat. Good. Either one of them armed? Uh, apparently not. Thanks, Sergeant. Pat and I will take over. Keep all men on 24-hour duty. Have them stand by for instructions. And pass the word around to the rest of the cars. Have them converge toward Area B. That ought to take enough to cross their trail. Yeah, I'll get right to it, Inspector. Good luck. Now, let's go, Pat. Feel well enough to drive? Okay, Dick. You know, it's just that my head throbs a little. It'll soon be all right. Uh, do you want to go direct on this highway, or shall we take the back roads? Back roads, Pat. They won't stick to the highway. They'll know we'll have every man after them. Step on it and get to the junction of this highway and number six as fast as you can. Ah, uh, no luck, Dick. Been over every back road of the way. No sign of them. 
That doesn't mean they aren't around here somewhere. They have to be, Pat. They can't just disappear. Well, I'm beginning to think they can. You've seen six of the other cars, and they all say the same thing. No sign of them or the car. You know, I'd hope they might have trouble with that one, too. Pull over, Pat. I want to check with the rest of the cars. Okay. Tracy calling car seven. Come in, seven. Car seven. Go ahead, Inspector. What's the report? Nothing to report, Inspector. We're at number 14. No traces as yet. Keep me advised. Yes, sir. Inspector Tracy calling car five. Come in, please. Car five, Inspector. I heard you talking to seven. My report's the same. Okay, five. We'll keep you posted. Proceeding according to plan. Inspector Tracy calling car six. Come in, please. O'Connor in car six. Heard your questions. We haven't got much, Inspector, but here it is. We questioned a farmer walking along the road. Said he thought he'd seen a car like the one we described with a man and woman in it, but couldn't be sure. What direction was it going in? Well, according to this man, it was proceeding in a northwesterly direction. And when last seen, was about four miles from the intersection of Middlebush Road and the highway. Thanks, O'Connor. Pat and I will be right up there. The rest of you stand by. The rest of you stand by. That applies to all cars. That is all. Let's go, Pat. You know, Dick, I think I know just about where O'Connor meant. It's right up in the heart of the farming district. I know, Pat. When we get up there, I think I'll do a little inquiring on my own. Strangers always attract attention in rural districts. We'll start questioning some of the natives. And I'm willing to bet we'll soon run across a clue. Say, Dick, why don't we go ask that guy standing in front of that farmhouse? That's just what I was going to do, Pat. Good afternoon, sir. Howdy. A nice day. Could stand a little rain. Um, I thought you might be able to help us out. We're from headquarters. Figured you was. Saw your car drive up. We're trying to locate a man and a woman. I haven't that... seen him. How do you know you haven't? Because I know a man and woman when I see one. No, you misunderstand. This man and woman were in a car, a stolen car. We had information that they might have come this way. <clears throat> you see, these two are criminals. They're wanted by the law. You sure you haven't seen any strangers around here? <clears throat> now listen, you we came no here. No use, Pat. Come on. Yeah, but this guy. Come Dick... on, Pat. Okay, okay. So we'll try the next place and get the same kind of an answer. Now, if it had been me, I would have... Look behind these trees. Now, what's all this about? I thought we were going to the next place and see if we could pick up Spike's trail. We don't have to go to the next place. Spike and the girl are in the house we just left. What? That's right. Well, tell me, how do you figure that out? While I was talking to the farmer, he tipped me with a wink. They're there, all right, Pat. But why didn't he say so? Probably Spike or the girl was holding a gun on him. I can't be sure of that, but mark my words, they're in there all right, and we have to get them out. Now, let's keep under cover and get back to the car. I want to contact all the other cars and have them block off every path or road in this area. This time, we're not going to miss. In a moment, we return to Dick Tracy. But first... Boys and girls, Dick Tracy fans, you know, teamwork in everything we do is very important. And no one knows it better than the soldiers in our combat ground forces. Men like First Sergeant Marion Hitchens, for instance. While he was manning an anti-aircraft gun in the Admiralty Islands, Japanese ground troops opened up nearby on American soldiers with heavy grenade and small arms fire. Under heavy fire, Sergeant Hitchens dashed to a machine gun and single-handedly placed heavy and accurate fire on the Japs. In addition to killing at least 12, he helped stop the enemy attack. 
Now, boys and girls, that's teamwork where it counts, where a man thinks only of his buddies and not of himself. Every one of our servicemen belong to the same fighting team. And every one of us here at home who buys a war bond joins that team. We don't have to worry about Jap bullets or grenades, and our job at home is much the easiest of all. We've only got to buy more bonds and keep them so that the fighting members of our team never have to let up for the lack of a single gun or bullet. So, boys and girls, do your bit for the team. Buy that war bond today. And now, back to Dick Tracy. You, farmer, get back in here. I'll let you have it with your own gun. You sure you didn't tip him off? He couldn't have, Spike. I heard every word he said. Anyhow, they've gone off. Okay. But if they come back, this guy gets it with this shotgun. Quietly making their way back to their car, Dick and Pat began contacting all the patrol cars and giving them instructions. Be sure to tune in tomorrow, same time, same station, for the adventures of Dick Tracy. This is George Gunn speaking. Boys and girls, every day, thousands and thousands of new friends join the ranks of fans who faithfully follow the adventures of Dick Tracy and Pat Patton. We don't mean just youngsters either. No, indeed, there are plenty of grown-ups who are listening in, too. And did you know this? All over America, and in other countries as well, more than 200 newspapers feature the daily adventures of Dick and Pat. And each weekday, another episode of Dick Tracy, one of your favorite radio broadcasts, comes to you at the same time over more than 100 radio stations from coast to coast. So listen to Dick Tracy Monday through Friday. Don't miss tomorrow's exciting chapter in the adventures of Dick Tracy. This is the Blue Network of the American Broadcasting Company. Okay, we'll move over to NBC at nighttime. February and Molly. The National Broadcasting Company reminds its listeners that regular programs will be interrupted for the broadcast of any important news developments. Today, the Hamburg Radio announced the death of Adolf Hitler. This report from the enemy has had no official confirmation from Allied sources. Should any developments occur on this story of Hitler or any other major story, you will be kept informed by NBC. The Johnson Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. The makers of Johnson Wax products for home and industry present Fibber McGee and Molly, written by Don Quinn and Phil Leslie, with music by the King's Men and Billy Mills Orchestra. I haven't talked to you for a long time about your automobile. Do you mind if I offer a suggestion? You can't change an old car into a new one simply by changing its appearance. You know that as well as I. And, of course, the tires and engine are more important than the finish. But believe me, with very little effort and money, you can make a tremendous difference in the looks of your car and in your satisfaction in driving it. You can do this easily with Johnson's Car New, the popular polish that does an amazing cleaning job without injuring the finish. Removes the dirt and dullness of winter without hard work. Carnew is a liquid. You apply it, let it dry to a powder, and wipe it off. The result is something you'll just have to experience yourself to believe. If I were you, I'd buy a package of Johnson's Carnew and clean and polish my car this week. You won't regret it. It's spelled C-A-R-N-U, Johnson's Carnew.
Metro Vista Post Office serves a variety of people and purposes. Some go there to fill fountain pens, some to read the posters on the wall, some to mail letters, and some, fantastic as it may seem, go to the post office to buy postage stamps. Like Fibber McGee and Molly. Did you get your stamps, dearie? I'll get them in a minute, Molly. I'm busy reading these posters. Look at them. Wanted for murder. Wanted for counterfeiting. Wanted for kidnapping. Wanted for robbery. My goodness. Mm. Look at the one on the left there. Torpedo Gronsky. Mm. He'd make a lovely calendar for some exterminating company. <laughs> boy, oh boy, I haven't seen so many hot mugs since the barbershop caught fire. <laughs> well, let's get on home, dearie. I've oh, got love. Wait a minute, Molly. Wait. I want to look at the rest of these pictures. These crooks fascinate me. Look at this one, for instance. 6,000 bucks reward. Wanted in 12 states. Hmm. I take back what I've always said, McGee. What have you always said? That it was a nice, warm feeling to know that you were really wanted. <laughs> well, they really want this guy For murder, arson, robbery, stealing, starting fires, and picket-pocking Picket-pocking? Don't you mean pocket-picking? No, no, picket-pocking He busted up a union meeting with a shotgun <laughs> Boy, I'd like to lay my hands on that guy Six thousand bucks reward Now, 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 take it easy, Dick Tracy Wow In the first place, this crook... Uh, what's his name? Briefcase Bronson. <laughs> On account of he always carries a couple of guns in a briefcase. Well, he certainly looks harmless. Why, he looks like a schoolteacher. Ah, don't let the glasses fool you, baby. <laughs> that bozo is as heartless as Western Celery. <laughs> Wait just a minute, Fly. I want to memorize his description. Mild blue eyes, light brown hair, slightly bald, neatly dressed, mole on left hip... Well, that's a big help. Mole on left hand. <laughs> How on earth could you... Uh-oh, look who's coming across the lobby, McGee. Mrs. Carstairs. Huh? Oh, my gosh. What's she doing in the post office? Don't she realize she might have to rub shoulders, to say the least, with the common riffraff? Well, for the taxes she pays, dearie, they ought to carry her back and forth in a fur-lined mail yeah. sack. You know, they say that you... <laughs> ah, how do you do, Mrs. Carstairs? How do you do, Mrs. McGee? What a pleasant surprise meeting you. Uh, hi, Carstairs. Oh, how do you do, Mr. McGee? What a pleasant... Uh... My, isn't this a busy place? <laughs> well, it really is, Mrs. Carstairs. Fascinating. My husband and I spent 22 hours in here one day. 22 hours? How frightfully boring. Yeah, painful, too. I had my hand caught in a mail slot. <laughs> Tried to get my letter back when I remembered I didn't have a stamp on it. <laughs> you come down to mail a letter, Mrs. Carstairs? Uh, no, my dear. I came down here to issue a protest. I definitely do not like the new three-cent stamps. Oh, well, that's too bad, Carsty. What's your objection? The glue on them tastes like glue? I object to the color, Mr. McGee. That horrible magenta. For years, I've been using a pale blue stationery, and the combination of pale blue and magenta is simply revolting. And so are you. I beg your pardon? I, I mean you're revolting against the color of the stamps. <laughs> oh? Oh, yes. I see what I hope you mean. <laughs> well, it looks like you got the government in a nasty corner, Karsty. <laughs> They certainly can't ask you to change the color of your stationery. Indeed not. In fact, Mr. McGee, I think I shall suggest that they issue a three-cent stamp. 
in a cerulean or Copenhagen blue, perhaps with your picture on it. Oh, well, gee, thanks. That, that's pretty flattering, Karsty. I thought they never used pictures of living people on stamps. That is correct. <laughs> well, I must be going. Good day. Good day, Miss Carstairs. Well, now there goes a tomato that don't even know she's a tomato. <laughs> no amount of mayonnaise would convince her either. Well, I think she's nice, McGee. You seem to have a gift for antagonizing her, though. Come on now, let's go home. Okay, and I hope we meet Briefcase Bronson on the way. Six thousand bucks would come in awful handy oh, with Mr. me. Oh, Mr. McGee, don't forget your stamps. Oh, my gosh, I almost did. <laughs> Thanks, Benny. Are these mine? Yeah, those are yours. You sure you'll need all those? Oh, yes, we can use them all. Yeah. How much I owe you, bud? Nine cents. Here you are. Come on, McGee. Okay. Mild blue eyes, light brown hair, Billy Mills and the orchestra and Evelina. here in the living room. What are you doing? I'm trying to get WVIS on the radio. Oh, having trouble with it? Yeah, a little. How? I can't find the radio. <laughs> you can't find... Oh, 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 silly, you threw your top coat over it. On the table there. Huh? Oh, 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 yes. See if you can get Walter Winchell. Winchell was on on Sunday. We're a little late. I know, but when we bought this radio, they said it was a late model, so maybe you could... Shh. <laughs> and Mayor Carr Old Treble of Peoria, Illinois, who takes office tonight, announces that Peoria, starting today, will be a regular stop on the American Airlines. Oh. Peoria, as you probably know, is the birthplace of that famous and much-loved radio comedy team... Oh, boy. Amos and Andy. Oh. <laughs> and now for the local news, as time will allow. Wistful Vista police are on the alert today for the notorious briefcase Bronson, bank robber, confidence man, and murderer, who escaped from the custody of deputy sheriffs late yesterday. Authorities at the... 
What'd I tell you, Molly? <laughs> Briefcase Bronson is still on the loose and 6,000 bucks on his head. <laughs> Get that greedy look out of your eyes, dearie. Let the police catch him. You know, that's what we pay taxes for. Oh, yeah. The cops in this town couldn't catch a stalled bus on a dead-end street. <laughs> I think I'll call him up and offer to handle this end of town for him. I'll get a few guys together and drag out the throw net. Throw out the drag net. Sure, sure. I'll take Uncle Sycamore's old six-shooter, and if Briefcase Bronson pulls a gun on me, I'll fill him so full of lead they'll have to embalm him in a smelter. Now, just a minute. <laughs> here, here. I'll blast him down. That's what I'll do. Oh. I'll walk right up to him, and I'll say, quiet and deadly, I'll say. Okay, Bronson, I says. It's curtains this time. Then he'll go for his rod. What for, to hang the curtains? <laughs> <laughs> he'll go for his gun. I beat him to the draw. He sees I got him. He's yellow. He drops his gun. I stoop to pick it up. He hits me on the head and knocks me out. Hey, that didn't work out very good, did it? Yeah. And while you lie there more unconscious than usual, Bronson disguises himself as a bottle of mint sauce and takes it on the land. <laughs> <laughs> well, if the police department will give me a free hand, I'll bet you... Come in. Oh, hello, Dr. Gamble. Hello, Molly. And how are you today, slump seat? <laughs> Hi, stork chaser. I'm as well as a man could be who has a family doctor who took his degree at the stockyards. <laughs> Don't be insulting, McGee. Dr. Gamble is considered one of the best diagnosticians in the country. In the country, that's quite possible. <laughs> Anybody can diagnose a bee sting. And you're just the kind of a simpleton who gets stung by a bee and then runs out and slaps a handful of mud on it. Say, I've heard that was very good for bee stings, doctor. So have I. <laughs> well, is it or ain't it? Frankly, Trout Face, I wouldn't know. The Chinese used fruit mold poultices for a thousand years, but now we call it penicillin and write articles about it. Savages have been dunking themselves in hot mud holes since time began, but we're educated. We call it hydrotherapy. It's very discouraging. Well, I tell you, I'd suggest you don't carry anything very valuable when you make your calls, Doctor. Briefcase Bronson is hiding out in Wistful Vista, Doc. I'm gonna see if I can nail him and collect the 6,000 bucks reward. Look, my boy, I've got enough trouble keeping you on your feet without having to plug up a lot of leaks in your baggy frame <laughs> caused by standing too close to a public enemy with a 45. Oh, I can take care of myself. Yes, you're in fine condition to go chasing gangsters. You wouldn't last two rounds with a revolving door. <laughs> I don't know. He's got a great big pistol that belonged to his Uncle Sycamore, Doctor. You betcha. And he knows where the trigger is without even looking. I'm pretty fast on the draw, too, Doc. Watch this. Suppose I was packing a gun. Guy makes a false move, and I whip my hand back like this. Hey, hey, hey get me loose, will you, Molly? What's the matter with him? Oh, dear, he's got his thumb caught in his belt. <laughs> there you are, dearie. Oh, thanks. And this is the little fumble fist who's going after briefcase Bronson? The way you stick your neck out, buddy, you'd give a giraffe a terrible inferiority complex. Don't worry about me, fatso. You go peddle your pale pills to pink people. I'll do the bandit catching. Yes, you probably will. When he sees you gumshoeing after him, he'll fall down laughing, and you can jump on his stomach. <laughs> well, I'll be at my office pretty late tonight if you need me for anything, like, say, uh, sewing your ears back on. So long now. <laughs> Nobody thinks I can catch Briefcase Bronson, does he? Well, I'll show him. I'm going to call the police right now and get deputized. Hand me the phone. Here you are. Thanks. 
Hello, operator. Give me the whistle, Mr. Police Oh, is that you, Myrtle? Oh, dear. How's <laughs> oh, every little thing, Mert? It is, eh? Let's say, your grandmother got a sock in the what? Oh, that's too bad. Now, Mert. who on earth would hit an old lady, McGee? No, nobody hit any old lady. Her grandmother got a sock in the hinge of her sewing basket. <laughs> <laughs> Tore a big hole in the heel. <laughs> what say, Mert? Okay, well, I was trying anyway. I'll call later. <laughs> Police don't answer. They're probably dragging out the throw net for Bronson. It's throwing out the drag net. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, well, anyway, if they... Hello, folks. What's new? You mean you haven't heard, Junior? Heard what? About briefcase Bronson. Who's he? Who's he? Don't you ever listen to the radio? You mean the one in my car? Yes. I haven't got a radio in my car. But... Oh. <laughs> for goodness sakes, Mr. Wilcox, haven't you heard about briefcase Bronson, the desperado who was somewhere in Wistful Vista? Gee, no. What's he doing here? He's on the lam, Junior, and there's 6,000 bucks reward for him, and I'm just the guy that would like to glom onto it. Well, believe me, pal, he'll be awfully hard to track down in this town. Why, Mr. Wilcox? Well, look, if he's hot, he won't dare go to hotels or restaurants. No. He'll have to eat someplace, won't he? I suppose so. So what's the answer? He'll have to break into houses for food. That's why it'll be so hard to track down. I got a nasty feeling that I'm lowering my guard, Junior. <laughs> but why will he be so hard to track down? Because Johnson's self-polishing glow coat's very popular in this town. <laughs> and any tracks he leaves in Westful Vista kitchens will be wiped off the linoleum so fast by proud housewives, there won't be any trace of him. Mm. Molly, you know how easy a glow-coated floor is to keep clean. Yes, yes, I do, Mr. Wilcox, but after all... You see, at this particular season, with mud and rain so often tracked onto kitchen floors, practically all smart housewives are protecting and preserving and beautifying their kitchen linoleum with Johnson's glow coat. Yeah, but look, what And I'm... the minute they see a muddy footprint or a spot of something spilled, they grab a damp cloth and presto, off it comes. And knowing how easy glow coat is to apply and how it shines as it dries... Why, one housewife tells another, and she spreads the good word, and that's why almost every home in this town uses glow coat. <coughs> well, I gotta go. So soon, Mr. Wilcox? Yeah. Go down and get sworn in as a special cop and go after that $6,000 reward. Now, just a darn minute there, Junior. You're muscling in on my territory. This was my idea. Yeah, but my uncle is on the police force. <coughs> Big Tony Wilcox. I got a drag, and you haven't. However, if you catch him and I don't, I'll split the reward with you. Well, that's better. Shake. Okay. See you later, pal. So long. My, my, that was quite a deal you put over there, pal. Oh, Waxy's a pretty decent sort of a guy. This way, if I catch Bronson and he doesn't, I still get three... Th <laughs> hey, wait a minute. Was that the deal? It certainly was. Oh, and a prettier piece of finagling I haven't seen since my cousin Clancy paid $500 for the exclusive rights to shoot whales in Lake Erie. <laughs> well, I'm going out and help you with dinner, McGee. Okay. Don't go bandit hunting without telling me now. Okay, okay. Ah, there goes a good kid. She knows that as a deputy sheriff, I got more chance of being swore at than swore in. <laughs> if this Bronson ever... Come in. Hi, mister. Oh, hello there, Teeny. Come on, tally -voo. That's French for how's everything. Oh. <laughs> hey, mister, can I borrow some salt? I want to sprinkle my victory garden. Sprinkle your garden with salt? Mm -hmm. What What are you raising? Peanuts. Oh. <laughs> well, I hope you're not going to work in a garden wearing that pretty white dress, are you? Sure. All the gardening magazines have ladies in them, all dressed up with gloves on and stuff. Well, that's just mm -hmm. for the photographer, sis. The minute the photographers leave, then women run in the house and get into some run-down shoes and... 
pair of slacks that make them look like they'd been put in on the bicycle pump. Uh, well, what difference does it make what you wear, mister? Plenty, sis. You gotta dress for different occasions. And I speak as an authority. Gee, honest? Yes, sir. I've always been known for my taste and judgment in clothes. Oh? Why, even when I worked in a sawmill way up there in Oregon, I was known as the biggest dude in the mill. Oh. <laughs> mill Dude McGee, I was known as. Mill Dude McGee, a magnificent mask of masculine muscle, mesmerizing moonstruck maidens from Minneapolis, Minnesota to Missoula, Montana, in my made-to-measure moleskin Mackinac with matching moccasins, maroon mittens, and magenta muffler, oh. <laughs> mentioned most every month in many of the men's magazines as the mirror and model for male millinery merchants, meticulous material manufacturers, and miscellaneous members of the metropolitan mob, a merry modest mug. But have you got a question, sis? No, well, I'm gonna spam if you're gonna go on like this. The King's Men and the Martins and the Coys. Gather round me, children, and I'll tell a story Of the mountains in the days when guns was law When two families got disputin', it was bound to end in shootin' So just listen, and I'll tell you what I saw All their fighting started one bright Sunday morning When old Grandpa Coy was full of Mountain Dew Just as quiet as a church mouse, shh, he stole in the Martin's hen house, shh, for the coys they needed eggs for breakfast too, shh. Oh, the Martin's and the coys, they was reckless mountain boys, and old Grandpa Coy, he was the first to go. Though he saw the Martin's coming, he had hardly started running when a volley shook the hills and laid him low. started out to fight in earnest and they scarred the mountain up with shot and shell there was uncles brothers cousins why they bumped each other off by the dozen just how many bit the dust it's hard to tell now the sole remaining coy was handsome henry while the one surviving martin's name was grace Hank was set to pull the trigger when he saw her pretty figure. You could see that love had kicked him in the face. Oh, the Martins and the Coys, they was reckless mountain boys. But they say their ghostly cussing gives you chills. Cause a hatchet sure was buried when sweet Grace and Henry married. It broke up the best darn feud in this year. Hey, Molly, I was just listening to the radio, and they think Briefcase Bronson is holed up in the old car barn. Oh, really? Yeah, they're searching the amusement park now. Why are they searching the amusement park if they think he's in the old car barn? Hmm. What do you want them to do, get shot? <laughs> I think I'll drop down to the police station right after dinner, and... Hey, when is dinner? Almost any time now. I'll ask Beulah. Yeah. Oh, Beulah! Beulah! Somebody ball for Beulah? <laughs> When'll dinner be ready, Beulah? Well, sir, if you don't mind my saying so, if you had let Beulah select the pot roast for tonight... Yes, if you let Beulah select the pot roast for tonight, dinner would have been ready several minutes hitherto. <laughs> However, that beef 
you pick out Mr. McGee must have been a tired old bull when the Indians give General Custer that last scalp treatment. <laughs> <laughs> Tough, is it, Beulah? Tough? Oh, ma'am, you got no idea. I, 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 I soak it in vinegar. I slaps the Jackson of it with a rolling pin. I boils it for three hours and it been roasting for five hours. And I still feel like a toreador when I sticks the fork in it. Well, that's odd, Beulah. I picked that piece of beef out myself. The butcher says I was a chump to take it, but I thought he just said that because he was trying to save it for a special customer. He ain't gonna make no friends and influence, no people selling stuff like that. I'm telling you, it was a shame to butcher a steel like that. Mm. Still had 10,000 miles left in him. <laughs> well, it'll probably make a good hash tomorrow, Beulah. Yes, ma'am, if we can get Mr. Charles Atlas over here to turn the meat grinder. <laughs> Is it really that bad, Beulah? Ma'am, I swear on a stack of ration books, I have never seen a pot roast like that. <laughs> the potatoes and carrots and onions I was cooking with it has long since been mush. <laughs> but that meat's still soaking in that red hot water like it was just relaxing in a warm bath. <laughs> That's probably a cut off the cow that jumped over the moon, Beulah. All muscles. Oh, <laughs> cut to jump over the moon. You know, he's he just laying back waiting for me with that. go out and take a look at that pot roast myself, dearie. Okay, I'll see if I can find Uncle Sycamore's old pistol. So if I get deputized by the police, I'll be all set. Well, now, be careful. <clears throat> be careful, she says. As if I didn't know how to handle guns. Why, my father gave me a 22 rifle when I was 13, and bullets for it when I was 25. <laughs> Anyways, I ought to be... Come in. Good evening. Hi, bud. What's on your mind? If you got magazines in that briefcase, I warn you that we... <gasps> briefcase? Oh, my gosh. You must be... Oh, no. <laughs> yes, I'm afraid I am. I wondered if you'd know. Neatly dressed, brown hair, slightly bald, mild blue eyes. Hey, hey, did you ever do anything about that mole on your left hip briefcase? Oh, now, let's not get personal, my friend. Do you mind if I sit down before we get to business? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Here, sit, sit down. <laughs> Excuse me a minute. Hey, where are you going? I, I, I thought I'd get a drink of telephone. I mean, I... <laughs> I got to call a glass of water. I'll see about... <laughs> Oh, sit down. This won't take long. Okay, but take it easy now, will you, briefcase? I, I don't care so much for myself, but my wife, my little wife, she's in the kitchen there. Yes, it's her I was thinking about, friend. <laughs> Tell me, if anything should happen to you, is she provided for? Yeah, but, 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 is something going to happen to me? <laughs> one never knows, does one? Life is so uncertain, accidents, hold-ups. Tell me. You carry much money with you usually? Well, no. Now, what I, I mean a... is, suppose, for instance, you were held up, you didn't have enough money with you, thus angering the hold-up man. He might shoot you down like a dog. Uh, don't you, uh, I mean, uh, don't this hold-up man like dogs? <laughs> <laughs> That's irrelevant, my friend. Now I have here in my briefcase. I know darn well what you got in that briefcase. Briefcase? And I don't want to see him. Now get out of here, will you? Oh, you don't think much of your life, do you? Oh, please, bud. You wouldn't actually... I mean, well, would you? Well, <laughs> that's what I came here for, but I suppose I'll have to give you a chance to think it over. But remember, I'll be back. Sure, sure, sure. Come back anytime, anytime at all. Just get out of here now. That's all I want. Very well. 
I'm sorry you feel that way about it. How do I get out of here? This door here? Sure, right. No, no, no. Take that door there. Huh? That's it. That's the one. Oh, thank you. Now, remember, think this over. I think you'll see the wisdom of doing business with me. Oh, I'm sure I will, briefcase. I'm sure I will. Well, so long. So long. Boy, oh boy, oh boy, the moose head got him. Knocked him cold. I got him. I got him. Hey, Molly. Molly, come here, quick. What on earth are you yelling about, McGee? And what have you done to Mr. Davis? I let him open the closet door and that moose head knocked him cold. Get the police. Get the... Who? Mr. Davis, the new insurance man. Insurance man? Why, sure, he always calls on Tuesday to collect our 35-cent premium. Oh, my gosh. Then this isn't... Mr. Davis, I'm terribly sorry. Are you hurt? Oh, my arm. I, I think it's broken. Gee whiz, bud, I wouldn't have had this happen for the world. It was all a mistake. You sure that arm is busted? Yes, I'm sure. Oh, and me with no insurance. <laughs> this is ridiculous. <laughs> If you're going to do a little spring house cleaning, I'd like to offer you a suggestion, one I'm sure you'll welcome. Undoubtedly, you'll be cleaning and polishing your furniture and woodwork, and I'm very anxious for you to try Johnson's Cream Wax for this purpose. Cream Wax is a very special product developed just for furniture and woodwork. It contains several cleansing ingredients so that it really does an amazing job of cleaning. You'll appreciate this the first time you use Cream Wax on light-painted woodwork or on your white refrigerator. Dirt, fingerprints, and smudges disappear in a flash. Then, with a minimum of rubbing, the surface takes on a beautiful, lustrous polish that's easy to keep clean. Johnson's Cream Wax leaves a tough film of wax that protects the surface. Your dining room tabletop and sideboard will take on new beauty when you protect them with Johnson's Cream Wax, the new white wax polish. Try a bottle. I know you'll like it. Here's a short message to all our friends in Canada. We want to wish you a complete and overwhelming success with your eighth victory loan drive. The citizens of the United States have a great admiration and respect, not only for the fighting qualities, but for the loyalty and determination of their Canadian neighbors. And we know that you'll guarantee the future security and economic welfare of yourselves and your returning servicemen by buying Canadian victory bonds to the utmost of your abilities. Good luck. And good night. Good night, all. This is Harlow Wilcox, speaking for the makers of Johnson Wax Finishes for Home and Industry, inviting you all to be with us again next Tuesday night. Good night. This is the National Broadcasting Company. One Tuesday, May 1, 1945. 20, enter. The Bob Hope Show.
that fly out of my script? <laughs> There's a sparrow in the auditorium. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Bob broadcasting for future civilians at the Santa Ana Separation Center, California, Hope. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, here we are. Here we are at Santa Ana. In just three days, these fellas will have their discharge. A discharge. That's a little piece of paper that changes the lieutenant's name from Sir to Stinky. I'm just kidding. All the old army feuds are forgotten. Sergeants are slapping corporals in the back, and corporals are slapping PFCs in the back, and PFCs are slapping buck privates in the back, and buck privates are patting their dog tags. <laughs> right now, these fellas are interested in good jobs. I know they are. I saw a couple of guys following one down the street in Santa Ana. And one Air Force colonel got out and bought a farm. He had, he had been in action so long, every morning before the chickens started laying eggs, he called him into the chicken coop and briefed him. <laughs> I, knew these boys, I knew these boys would be glad to see me here today. I said, look, fellas, here's the kind of clothes you'd be wearing when you get out, and 50 guys re-enlisted. <laughs> I saw some of these fellas shopping for clothes in Hollywood, and they're so used to getting stuff from a supply sergeant, the clerk had to throw the suits on the floor before these guys would try them on. One soldier had been fighting in the jungles for years, and I don't know if it affected him or not, but when the clerk handed him a tweed suit to try on, he spent three hours searching through the fuzz for snipers. <laughs> a lot of these boys went to Hollywood Park. It was a great day for racing. Dorothy Lamoran, Sheridan, and Lana Turner were studying their forms. 4,000 soldiers stood around them doing the same thing. <laughs> Hollywood Park, that's another type of separation and redistribution center. I invited... <laughs> I thought you'd grab that, suckers. <laughs> me too. I invited Dottie Lamore. I invited Dottie Lamore and Betty Grable to share my box with me, but they all wanted to go inside. And <laughs> my brother got arrested at the track. Somebody went through the crowd yelling, pickpocket, pickpocket, pickpocket. And he stepped up and said, What initial? <laughs> One of the horses there was a French horse. I know he was French. Instead of lumps of sugar, they kept feeding him chocolate bars. Boys are from the Pacific, huh? <laughs> I put $2 on one horse's nose, but he kept grabbing it and using it for Kleenex. The horse I bet on was head and shoulders above the others, and why shouldn't he have been? The jockey was carrying him. I won't, I won't say how old my horse was, but when the jockey climbed on, the horse said, are we going through Lexington or Concord? Yes, sir. What a horse. He was so sway back, the jockey had to use a periscope to see where he was going. <laughs> I didn't mind when he came out of the starting gate on his knees, and I didn't mind when he looked at the judges and said, which way did they go? But when the jockey got halfway around the track and started milking him, that was too much. <laughs> Got a date with an angel, I'm on my way to heaven. She's so lovely beside me, and whatever beside me, got an angel to guide me, so I'm on my way to heaven. Sooner the bells ring out, and the choir will sing out, when the pearly gates swing out, oh, she'll beckon to me. I've been waiting a lifetime, 
Cause this evening at seven Got a date with an angel I'm on my way to heaven Tomorrow I'll be out of this separation center. And I just found out my girl Francie is waiting for me at the front gate. Boy, it sure is foggy out here. Oh, there she is. I'll sneak up behind her and give her a big kiss. Margie, is that you? Whoops, I thought she needed a shave. Here I am, Robert. Oh, hello, baby. Have you been sitting under the apple tree with anyone else but me? Of course not, Robert. But we had to move. The apples kept falling on our heads. Yeah. Oh, we? Oh, yes, of course, you and your sister, yeah. But just think. Francie, I'll walk out of these gates tomorrow a free man. That's wonderful, Robert. Will your mother be here to meet you? No, she doesn't get out till next week. I told her not to go to OCS. Gee, let me look at you, Robert. You put on weight. No, I haven't. I just haven't turned in my parachute yet. <laughs> Say, Francie, close your eyes and stick your hand out. I want to put something on your finger. Okay. Oh, Robert, this is wonderful. Mm -hmm. My dreams finally came true. Gee, I thought you'd never return my high school ring. <laughs> well, I just wanted back this morning. Gee, Francis, I can hardly wait till I leave this separation center and we're married. 
Yes, Robert, and in two or three years from now, we'll stick our heads through the bedroom door and hear soft cooing. Yeah. Then more cooing. Won't that make you happy, Robert? Yeah, I always said there's good money in pigeon raising. time. Hello, Francie. Gee, Robert, you sure have been at this separation base a long time. <laughs> yeah, if I'm here much longer, I won't have to be separated. You won't? No, pretty soon it'll just fall apart. Robert, I've been waiting for you a long time. Well, how do you think I feel? I've been in the army so long, my dice are round. <laughs> how about a kiss, Francie? Okay, Robert. <laughs> Gee, Robert, you are getting old, aren't you? What makes you think I'm getting old, Francie? Well, when you kissed me 30 years ago, you didn't have to use that drift meter. <laughs> yeah, but now I gotta find out which way the wind is blowing. <laughs> Last breeze pulled my pucker inside out. Guys, Robert. I don't see why you just don't walk out of this here separation base. Oh, can't do that. You know I'm essential. <laughs> You're essential? Yep. The commanding general likes to boil his eggs in my hot water bottle. <laughs> Besides, I can't walk out. This front gate is locked. Well, why don't you just go through that fence? And doggone, that's a good idea. There's a board out of that fence over there. I'll go through that. You said there was a board out of that fence. What happened? Doggone, it turned out to be a crack in my glasses. <laughs> it's been a long, long time. It's been a long, long Changed. He's kind of different from the boy I used to know. 
much he says without a word And when he holds my hand I understand I'm his but forevermore He's mine, mine alone We'll have to part But he's close to my heart James, he's kind of different from the boy I used to know a while ago. Strange how much he says without a word, and when he holds my hand, I understand I'm his, but forevermore, he's mine. He's close to my heart for the little while he's Now, ladies and gentlemen, ranking with the chaplains and the medics in the list of slightly unsung heroes of our late fracas with a correspondence who braved dangers daily to serve up names, places, and dates of the bravery of others for you along with your morning toast. And the photographers who faced death to give you pictures of the toughest action that you could look over at your leisure from the comfort of an armchair. Yes, sir. And a lot of those guys didn't make the trip back because they were more interested in facts and photos for you than they were in their own safety. But with us tonight... We have a member of the 5th Air Force, a fellow we met in the Pacific two summers ago, a combat photographer, Lieutenant Ben Rays, right here. Thanks, fellas, and thanks, Bob. Well, Ben, it's nice to have you with us tonight. Well, I'm certainly proud to be here, Bob, on the top comedy show of the year with the world's greatest comedian. Oh, let's skip that, Ben. Why? After we rehearsed it so much? <laughs> That clears up one thing for the audience. We really do have rehearsals. <laughs> Say, Ben, the last time I saw you was down in the South Pacific. Remember, the, we really covered those islands with that plane, didn't we, Ben? I'll say. And it was quite an experience flying with you, Bob. What do you mean? Well, not everyone flies in a plane with their parachute open. <laughs> well, it wasn't my fault. I didn't know the pilot was being personal when he yelled jerk. Say, <laughs> you played most of the island. Please. Please. When they come, pause, Ben. I'll wait, I'll wait. Ben, when you get a belly, pamper it. You hear me, don't you? <laughs> Not your type. Go ahead, it's all right. You belly laugh, you know. Belly laugh, old man. You come play... in, come in. You thank look you, great. Thank you. You played most of the islands What in the time did they Pacific pump you up today? You know it's all right. I'm sorry. You played most of the islands in the South Pacific, didn't you, Bob? Uh, yes, I, uh, yeah. We played the Marianas, Carolinas, Guadalcanal, New Guinea, Mindanao, Saipan, and the George Marshalls. The George Marshalls? I thought they were the Marshalls. Well, that's the name of my director at Paramount, Ben. I get an extra close-up if I mention them this week. <laughs> if I can get through. Well, but Ben, I've... 
Hey, Ben. I've talked. I've talked about myself long enough. Let's talk about you for a second. You know, I'm very... I'm very interested in photography. In fact, recently I started collecting pictures. Yes, Bob? They told me you'd been to Paris. <laughs> yes, and I did very well over there. I sold French soldiers, American postcards. <laughs> I sold French soldiers, American postcards. <laughs> That's the last chance I'll give that joke right there. <laughs> there we are. Hey, but really, I am an amateur photographer, Ben. I've taken plenty of pictures. What's your best shot? For the hard way. No, I look. No, I'm just kidding. I've got some great equipment. In fact, I've got an amazing projector. Yes, I see it. But I thought you were sensitive about it. <laughs> well, it comes in handy for getting olive olives out of martini glasses anyway. <laughs> Tell me, Ben, have you ever photographed any famous celebrities? Yes. I have a picture of Lana Turner, Hedy Lamarr, and Bing Crosby. And how about male stars? No, no kidding, uh -huh. Bob. <laughs> no, no kidding, Bob. I once took a photograph of Bing in a bathing suit. Crosby in a bathing suit? Yeah, what's so surprising about that? I didn't know you went in for group pictures. <laughs> Ben, I hear that you'll soon be a civilian again. Is that right? That's right, Bob. What? I'm pretty happy about getting fa out. In fact, <laughs> you're just the guy I want to talk to. I am? Yeah. Say, where do you get those cheap suits? <laughs> Are you kidding? You're kidding, of course. This outfit costs $22.50 secondhand. <laughs> Say, Ben, how about you and I having dinner tonight? We can hash over past experiences. That'd be great, Bob. But I left my wallet at home and I'm broke. Well, good night, Ben. It was nice talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lieutenant Ben Ray. Thank you. Here comes the Dennis. Here comes the Dennis. It's only paper moon sailing over a cardboard sea. But it wouldn't be make believe. If you believe in me Yes, it's only a candy sky Hanging over a muslin tree But it wouldn't be make-believe If you believed in me Love your love It's a honky-tonk parade Without your love It's a melody play And a penny arcade It's a Barnum and Bailey world Just as phony as it can be but it wouldn't be make-believe if you believed in me. Without your love, 
are being released as fast as possible, and of course, there's an excellent employment advisor here in the camp to help them find jobs. However, a lot of phony agencies are making a racket of finding jobs for servicemen. Tonight, we show you what happens when a couple of ex-servicemen fall in the hands of a phony job broker. Hey, soldier. Hmm? Soldier, you want hmm? a job? Oh, I'm... <laughs> I'm loaded. I know, but... I know, but do you want a job? Colonna, you a job broker now? That's right, Hope. Just what kind of a job did you have in mind? Well, I'd like something soft. Yes, and how tall? <laughs> Just a second, Colonna. I want you to meet my buddy. Hey, Ennis. Colonna, this is skin. I beg pardon? I said, this is skin. Yeah, and why don't you put somebody in it? <laughs> Colonna, your IQ keeps dropping more every day. Well, I'll get a tighter belt. Well, come on, Colonna. We want jobs. Look in your file and see what you got. Okay, uh, here's something. 5320 Sunset Boulevard. Husband comes home early. Oops. <laughs> Wrong file. <laughs> well, I want a legitimate job, Colonna. I don't care how easy it is, but it has to be honest. Oh, well, then uh, I have just the job for you, Hope. It's a pushover. Well, that sounds better. What do I do? Well, every day at 2 o'clock, yeah. you get shot out of a cannon with a, with a mailbag between your teeth. And as you pass over Pomona, you hand it to the pilot of a plane on its way to Albuquerque. Colonna, what happened to the last guy that had the job? They fired him, Hope, for breaking a company rule. What did he do? On the second trip, he got bored and started reading the letters. <laughs> Look, Maltese Mush, I don't think you can get me and Skinny a job at all. Come on, Skin, I'll buy a newspaper. Yeah, let's look in the one ad, Pop. Okay. That itchy got away again, didn't he? <laughs> Say, here's something. Listen to this. Young men wanted to travel. Good pay, room, and board. Let's go. Where is it? U.S. Army Reenlistment Center. What is it? <laughs> hey, the phone's over there in the booth, Bob. Okay. Hello? You're not very original, are you? All right, hello. Whom is this speaking place? No, Colonna, you mean who? Again? Who, 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 who? Yeah, this happens every time I phone from an owl drugstore. <laughs> Good news, Hope. Good news. I got a job for you. Do you know anything about parking cars? Of course, Colonna. Well, park yours in front of the First National Bank right away and keep the motor running. Colonna, you're not breaking into the bank, are you? Oh, of course not, Hope. I'm just sitting here having a cup of tea with a night watchman. <laughs> Too much lemon. Colonna, when you're looking for jobs, you're not supposed to pound the pavement with your head. I know, but... 
Listen, listen, Hope, I've got a job for you and Ennis. Go over to a little hotel on 99th Street. A couple of our city's loveliest girls have taken it over. Oh, boy, pretty girls. Let's go, Skin. I wonder what they look like. Randolph, what is it, Copina? <laughs> Imagine running a hotel. What are our rates? $5 a day for soldiers. Gosh, only $5 a day? Well, that's all we can afford. <laughs> oh, I just love running this hotel for servicemen. It's so romantic with all these generals and colonels around. Oh, I just love to snuggle up and rest my cheek on their shoulders. Who are you kidding, Cobina? The closest you ever got to brass was the time you got your head caught in the cut for door. <laughs> Now, what should I do? I just offered one soldier a small room, but he's afraid of claustrophobia. Well, promise you won't bite him. <laughs> oh, gee, ain't it lucky we got this hotel, Brenda? How would you like to be still living in the park? Oh, don't mention it. I think those squirrels were beginning to get a little jealous of us. <laughs> oh, they're so silly. We're bigger than they are, so naturally we could store more nuts in our cheeks. <laughs> And I hope we don't get overworked here. I'm a little worried about my health. Every time my head gets below my waist, I get dizzy. Well, Kabina, I told you time and again, you ought to stop walking that way. <laughs> hey, by the way, I'm getting hungry, ain't you? Let's put on the feed bag. Okay, Brenda, it's hanging on that nail there. <laughs> oh, 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 look, here's a customer. Oh, hello, girls. I'll have a room. Oh, here's a pen. Just sign the register. <laughs> oh, that's fine. Now let me blot it for you. Kabina, that ain't dignified. Put your hair back on your head. <laughs> Say, doesn't that bear skin rug look grand in the lobby? Yeah, that's the one I got the time we went on our hunting trip. I don't remember you shooting a bear. I didn't shoot him. Remember, I hugged him to death. <laughs> You should be ashamed of yourself hugging a poor bear to death. Oh, you should talk, Brenda. You know, that moose head on the wall didn't walk in here. <laughs> well, Skin, this looks like the place. Oh, how do you do? What can we do for you? Well, Brenda and Cabina, I knew they'd close the track, but I didn't think they'd close the stables, too. <laughs> well, how's old Hubba Blubber? Uh <laughs> Are you looking for a job, Bobsy? Well, what's the salary? We let you keep half of what you steal. <laughs> say, say, Hope, did you get the job? Oh, come in, Colonna. I want you to meet a couple of friends of mine, Brenda and Kavina. Hello, Hello Professor. Professor. Dad, we must never use the atom bomb again. <laughs> hey, what do you want, Colonna? I came over to collect my commission for getting you this job, Hope. Reach for the ceiling. This is a stick-up. A stick-up? So this is how you play your hand, huh? Yes, this is how I play my hand, Hope. Now open the cash register and start dealing. Fine. Now, nobody move for six hours. Why do you want anyone to move for six hours, Colonna? I'm making my getaway on the Santa Ana bus. Bobby! Bobby, follow him. Don't let him I'll, take our money. I'll He's going up the stairs to the roof. Okay. All right, Colonna, we got you trapped. You can't get off this roof. That's what you think, Hope. I'm going to jump over to the roof of that building across the street. You'll get killed, Colonna. It's a wide street. You can't jump that far. Oh, no. Here I go. <laughs> oh, 
you that telephone wire was there. <laughs> of veterans of the air who made freedom their affair who proved to all our creed can't fall when placed within your care and we thank you so much and thanks for the memory to each and every guy who helped our planes to fly each one of you a victory crew that kept our flag on high and thank you so much. Say thanks to General A.E. Easterbrook, Major Morris Abram, Major Merrill Fiat, and all you men for a swell time here tonight. We're in a hurry, so good night. Thanks very much. the Armed Forces Radio Service. Feature one more show from Tuesday, May 1, 1945. 21, enter. Words at War. Dearest Hanishka, at last I have the hope that someday you will learn the true facts of my strange story. The good people about whom I want to tell you promise that they can take these notes somewhere to safety and give them to you after the war is over. For the last three years, I've been living in a little cellar with one window through which I can see nothing and a chink in the wall through which I can see very little. I eat after a fashion. I read the papers. Sometimes I listen to the radio, but I hardly ever hear a human voice. I seldom see a human being going by outside. You've been waiting, and not in vain, dear Honishka. Someday you'll read what I'm writing now. Otherwise, nothing would have any meaning. Our life, our marriage, our worries, our mistakes. No, not even my approaching death. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with the Council on Books and Wartime, presents another of the most significant programs on the air today.
Words at War, dramatizing the most representative books to come out of this great world conflict. Tonight, the psychological study of a man who tried to run away from himself, The Hideout by Egon Hostovsky, with Arnold Moss as the narrator, in a radio adaptation by Ben Kagan. Dearest Hanishka, you must live to get this because you and I have to understand each other. And I'm ready to understand you only now. I've realized so much, so much has become clear since I've been living like a trapped rat in this cellar. Do you know when I first felt absolutely certain that something was wrong in my work, in my marriage, my plans, and everything I was saying and doing? It was in March 1939, just before Hitler took over Czechoslovakia. We'd come back to Prague after a week in the country, and that particular evening we were expecting guests for dinner. My chief, my secretary from the factory, and Bertha Mandel. I was very upset, pretended to read. Then suddenly you turned to me and your tone was casual. Almost indifferent. What kind of a man is that director of yours? Well, I don't know much about him, Hanischke. He's only been at the factory two weeks. He's a little loud, but I, I think that's because he's shy. He really invited himself tonight. He said we ought to talk privately sometime, and besides, he'd like to meet my wife. I don't know what he's after. Maybe nothing at all. I doubt that. What's his name? Uh, Kraus, Otto Kraus. And, and please, let, let's not talk about politics or Jews or about what's going to happen to Czechoslovakia. On account of Bertha Mandel? Yes. Isn't it really only panic that makes her want to go away and try to find work in France? Oh, no, no, it's not. It's going to be very bad for the Jews here, no matter what happens. She... She's coming to say goodbye to us, so... Why upset her for the last time? There's no need for you to worry. I'm very fond of Bertha. And you know that I'm not jealous. You frightened me when you said that. How could you have known that I'd been thinking of Bertha Mandel? Wondering whether I'd find the courage to tell her that I loved her and... whether it would be true if I said it. The doorbell saved me from answering you. My chief had arrived. After dinner, my chief and I went into the library. My mind was far away, but even so, I realized that he talked as if he were talking against time. There is one thing I must have clear, absolutely clear, do you understand? Is it true that you're planning not to finish your gun sight? Yes. But do you realize that the factory which gave you the time and the means to do your work is to some extent part owner of your idea? Well, I don't agree, Mr. Krauss. I, I, don't, I don't understand why you're blaming me for a fault which we share. I believe you're a Czech, too, and in that case... Look, my friend, this way we'll never come to any agreement. We're living in a revolutionary era, and we don't have much time. Give me your blueprints, finish your work, and there will come a day when you won't be sorry you did. Sir, the Czechoslovak government no longer has any interest in my gun. Colleague, please don't play the proud and capricious inventor. If you'll only turn over your blueprints... It's useless to talk further, Mr. Cruz. Useless? Is this your final answer? It's the only answer I can give. The day after Munich, I burned all the blueprints. He jumped up as if I'd poured boiling water over him. In that instant, my unfortunate thought was born. I'd follow Bertha. At least for two days, for two days, I'd be with her. For two whole days, I'd get away from everything, from my life, from Krauss. Yes, Hanischke. 
even from you. The next day, I did not go to Ostrava, as I told you at the time, but I flew to Paris. All too soon, I discovered that I'd set out on a journey into emptiness. I'd just checked in at the Hotel Glacier and was on my way to the cafe on the Boulevard Saint-Michel, where I hoped to find her. When I saw a group of excited people running out of a building and a newsboy ahead of me shouting... Extra, extra, the end of Czechoslovakia! Germans take over Czechoslovakia! In that moment, I aged ten years. I had to hide, to wait, to escape. I rushed back to the hotel, hoping to find some word for my secretary. My letterbox was empty. During the next week, I spent most of the time in my room. I sat on the bed, stared into space. I ate only once a day, and... Whenever I found myself out in the street, I felt horrified that people still drank, laughed, went about their business just as if nothing had happened. Finally, after six days of waiting, the letter I'd been expecting from my secretary arrived. Dear sir, as I tried to warn you before you left for Paris, your chief, Mr. Krauss, was a traitor. He has informed the Germans about your gun sight. They have issued a warrant for your arrest. And if they find out you're in Paris, no one will ever be able to convince them that you have not given the blueprints to the French. You must not return to Czechoslovakia. So, Hanishka, it was all finished now. I could never go back. I could never see you and the children and explain... I moved from hotel to hotel, from more expensive ones to cheaper ones, and at last I was living on the outskirts of town in a dirty little attic room. I grew a beard, and my hair got so long it covered my collar. Day in, day out, I wandered through the streets of Paris, and people followed me with their eyes as if I were a freak. I submitted my gun sight to the French, but it was turned down as an unnecessary, luxurious plaything. One day I was standing on the banks of the Seine, aimlessly staring into the water. I felt a man walking past me and watching me. I was already reaching for my papers, sure it was a policeman, but I was too lazy to turn around. Uh, would you do me a small favor, sir? You'll be disappointed. My papers are in perfect order. I don't want any papers, but now that you've spoken, I beg you even more urgently for a small favor. Please turn around. If you insist... Thank you, that's all. I made a mistake. Forgive me for interrupting your philosophy. Wait, wait, wait. Yes? You've made no mistake, Dr. Aubin. Dr. Aubin was an old friend of mine. I believe I spoke about him to you, Hanishka. I told Dr. Aubin my story briefly. In the end, he invited me to stay in his villa outside of Paris. June of the following year, the Germans were in Paris. There was panic in the air, and I stood trembling inside Dr. Aubin's villa, watching the terrified crowds who clogged the roads. 
It was almost dusk when I heard the door open. Oh, there you are. I was afraid you might have gone outside and walked right into their hands. Dr. Obama, I can't stay here. I must get away. Please, you must help no, it's me. it's too late for that. You must stay I can't. Here. I can't. They'll find me. They're sure to search. I'll hide you. I have a nice bed in the basement. I'll keep you hidden through the whole war if necessary. You mustn't go out, of course, not even take a step out of doors, but I'll never lock the door. You must train your will. You must say, I know that I can go out into the light whenever I want to, but I won't do it. You understand? Yes. Yes, I understand. Very well. Come along now and we'll look over your new bedroom. I've been in this cellar ever since, Hanishka. In the darkness of the cellar with all the Germans around me. At first I felt safest in bed. Bundled up in the covers with a pillow wrapped around my head, but... It was necessary to walk around, too, to stretch my legs, get washed, somehow keep myself occupied. Every, every rustle strained my nerves. I had no appetite. I, I, I lived on fear. Dr. Aubin came to me once a day, always at midnight, like a ghost on tiptoe in the dark. Over here, I brought you some cheese and some newspapers. Thank you. Sit down and eat. No, I'm not very hungry. Now go on, eat. I have something to tell you. What is it? Now, don't be frightened, but one of them lives right above you, an officer. He says he'll stay with me for a week. Yes. I think that the locked door was... Taking the lock off the door was an excellent idea. It, it, it's, it's a relief to you, isn't it, to know that you're really free, that you can... Walk out of here any time you want to? Yes. Yes, a great relief. Good. Well, I'll have to go back now. He might get suspicious. I'll see you tomorrow. Time passed. Days vanished. Weeks, months, many months. I suffered rejoiced. I believed and did not believe. Hoped and grew despondent. Soviet Union was in a war. America was in a war. My teeth started to fall out. All my fingers and toes burned with cold. Once the Gestapo examined Dr. O'Brien for four days, I couldn't eat or drink during all that time. Then, then, then I lay in a fever for six weeks and was delirious for three more. I thought I'd changed into a spider. A spider crawling around the walls. Time passed. Throughout the day, I stood at the hole in the cellar wall. I didn't budge from the narrow chink through which I could see a strip of earth, a broken pump, and two linden trees. One spring afternoon, standing on a chair and peering through the crack, I saw a short, stumpy fellow in a black uniform who came up to the house. And suddenly, I, I realized I was looking at a German soldier... And do you know who it was? It was Fischer, 
Fisher from, from Brunoff. You knew him, that fat, awkward, squinting fellow. He was the only German schoolfellow I had in high school. Fisher! 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 Don't you recognize me? Huh? Who are you? What the devil's pussyfoot? You are pussyfoot, aren't you? Yes. Well, it's good to see you. Say, you certainly changed. I have to go back in. Well, let's go back then. How did you get here, pussyfoot? Did they send you to work in the French factories? Hey, you're in some kind of mess, aren't you? That's why you want to get out of sight. Hey, where are you taking me? In here, in here, please, Fish. I, I have to close the door. Well, all right, pussyfoot. Spill the beans. I'll tell you the whole thing, Fisher. All through 1937-38, I worked on a site for anti-aircraft guns. After Munich, I burned all my blueprints. A few days before the occupation of Prague, I flew to Paris. And that, that trip had absolutely no political background. Mm. My, my chief reported me. He thought I'd run away from Prague to turn my plans over to the French. I'm not going to keep anything from you, Fisher. Later on, I, I, I really did offer my gun site to the French, but they didn't take it. And since then, I've been hiding from you people. Mm. Just, just now. It was the first time in three years that I've left this hall. Pussyfoot, you're an ox. Boy, are you an ox. Who's a swine that's been keeping you in prison here? Pr prison? Huh. You don't understand. A man in whose home I'm hiding is the finest man I've ever met. He, he's a doctor. And a fine pig? The... We'll throw some light on him yet. Heaven's sake, Fisher, what are you talking about? Do you know, you old fool, that you can be home in a week? Home? Home to Prague? You think that an I... engineer in our time, an inventor, an unpolitical person, and he the idiot hides. Look, stupid. Within a week you're in Prague and you won't catch a thing. That 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 French pig will catch it all for you. I'll take care of him himself. But Fisher, how could you want me to bring misfortune to my troop? Well, perhaps my only friend. I'm surprised at your pussyfoot. I'll tell it to you straight. From now on, it's none of your business what I do. This, this, this French swine will be charged with holding you prisoner. That's final. Just, just, just tell me once more, please. Are you absolutely inflexible about uh, my friend? That that's your last word, Fisher. Of course. It'll be the firing squad for him. I see. All right. Let's go. Let, 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 let's go outside. Good. I'm finding it hard to breathe in here already. Now, don't worry, old man. We'll agree in the end and come to a good understanding. Hey, it's dark, isn't it? Where do I... Straight ahead, Fisher. Oh. Keep going. I'm right behind you. Hey, what was that? Hey, Pussyfoot, what... Turn around, Fisher! What? Pussyfoot! What are you... Pussyfoot! What are you doing? Drop that spade. Push it. I struck him three times before he collapsed, and then I threw away the spade, took the lifeless body by the legs, and dragged it back into my burrow. Ages passed. I, I, I wasn't alive, and I wasn't dead. My head changed into an anthill... Instead of my brain, I had in my skull a repulsive mass of tiny, self-devouring little creatures. I half sat, half lay on the bed under which I'd put the corpse. 
Well, have you starved on me? Here's some bread and cheese and... What the devil's happened? I killed him. He's under the bed. You killed whom? Speak, man, whom did you kill? I'm very close. If you want to hear me, very little strength left here. Sit down. I went out of the cellar because I saw a German outside here, an old schoolfellow of mine. He sat here beside me. I told him everything about myself. He, he, he wanted to help me. He wanted to make it possible for me to go home, but in return, he was going to arrest you, and so I, I, I killed him with a spade. Stairway must be full of blood. Do you think that anyone saw you while you were standing outside? Oh, no, no one. His, his name is Fisher. I, I'm sorry that you... Quiet. Be... Let's try to figure out what we're going to do with this dead German. Maybe those people whom you treated secretly. The, the underground. I'm thinking of them. I'll look for a grave digger. In the meantime, you eat and get some sleep. Our only hope is that they won't look for him in houses and cellars. Yes. I must say one thing, my friend. Fellow doesn't get bored with you around. Wake up. Wake up. Why? <coughs> Not asleep. You've slept 24 hours. Here, I have some milk for you. Take it, drink it. And we have company. While you were sleeping, I found some people who buried your friend. We also scrubbed the stairs and the floors. These people who helped me came back here tonight. They want to ask you about something. Yes. You'd like to get away from this place, sir. Perhaps we can help you. Dr. Robert has told us you're an engineer, an inventor. We want to ask you about something. Ask me what you wish. Do you understand ships? Why? Don't ask. Answer. Please, Augusta, let me. Just imagine, sir, that we had the possibility of getting false credentials for you and getting you aboard a certain ship as a stoker. A ship's going to sail after a time to pick up certain immensely vital materials which it's necessary to destroy. The crew will be partly German, partly French. Would you know how to sink a ship? Maybe, maybe if I had a bomb. We're wasting time with this man. He wants a bomb. If you could put a bomb into the suitcase of the man we have on that boat, then we wouldn't be sending you... Augustin, calm down. Look, sir, you're an engineer. Perhaps you can figure out a way of sinking a ship like that without an explosion. What kind of a ship is it? I wouldn't explain another thing Be to quiet him. quiet a moment, please. It's a freighter, sir. Not quite 16,000 tons. What kind of power? Two diesel engines. Oh, to sink a boat with your bare hands, that, that, that's him. No, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm terribly sorry, but I, I frankly don't know. I wish I could help Too you, Too bad. I... Come, Augustine. Let's go. I, I, I'm sorry. Yes, we're all sorry. never occurred to me that now I was in the gravest danger that I might be discovered by the Germans at any moment. After that visit of the underground people to my prison, I changed beyond recognition. Walking from wall to wall of my cage like a desperate animal, I tried to solve that question of questions. How to sink a big ship barehanded. Didn't interest me why a certain boat should be sunk. I wasn't interested in the cargo of the ship. All I wanted, all I strained for was an answer to the question. I was no longer walking up and down, but running madly around the walls. And then, suddenly, a week, a month later, I don't know just when, suddenly, it came to me. Doctor! 
Doctor, I've got it. I've got it. Go and get them. Bring them here. I, I get it all straight in my own mind. Go for those people, please, right away. It was only after Dr. O'Brien left that I suddenly realized that the problem which I'd just solved would have a concrete performance and that I was to be the hero of that performance. I just drawn the lot of death. All that I'd solved for myself was a means of committing suicide. My enthusiasm vanished. To die? For nothing? Oh, no, no, that's not why I hid myself, why I suffered like an animal in a trap, why I became a murderer. Again, I ran around in circles like a madman chasing himself. All at once, time began to pass too quickly. I was hoping that Dr. O'Brien wouldn't find them, that he'd never get here. They were in the cellar. They'd come. I, I could feel them standing near me in the darkness. Good evening, sir. I think, my friends, I can give you some advice, but first of all, please answer a few of my questions. Is, is there access to the screw propeller on this boat? Yes. Could you get hoists on board? On every decent ship, there are lots of hoists. And could the man who was to sink the boat have at hand a very long steel or, or, or chain? Yes, there are many chains aboard a ship. All right, then. Here's the plan. A force can be generated on the boat by a proper combination of pulleys. Your man will set and fasten the hoists on the main beams of the boat and will then connect these hoists with a very long and powerful cable or chain into one system. The cable from the hoist leads to the propeller shaft and will wind around it at least four or five times. The, the, the rotating propeller shaft will pull the chain and break the beams and the hull. Only part of the assignment seems difficult. That's, that's to secure the pulley systems... However, if you'll bring your man to me, I'll discuss with him all possibilities and give him instructions. How long would it take the ship to sink with your plan? Uh, well, I can't say exactly. I, I, I should think about 15 minutes. Would one man be enough for it? Or would he need a helper? You've told me so little about this ship that I can hardly anticipate whether... We it... ourselves hardly know. We, too, are only half initiated into the action. Please, no details. Could you do it alone? Yes or no? Well, let's come to me later. A skillful man would not need a helper. Only the unlucky man who does it will die. He won't have any outlet from the chamber when the water pours in. But you'll still undertake it, won't you? I? Why do you want me to die? I've found your solution. I've answered your question. Otherwise... But you've been shut up here for a long time, haven't you? Yes, yes. Very long time. And you probably don't know what's going on around you. I, I think I know. Uh, are you a believer? Yes. Do you believe that everything that's happened to you so far was only chance? And that your reason is adequate to measure and weigh every occurrence and find a way out of it? Uh, I don't know. Are you a priest, sir? Priest? Whatever gave you such a thought? I'm a woman. Oh, a woman? And you really believe you know what's going on around you. When you're so absorbed in yourself, your solitude and your own wretchedness, that you don't even recognize a woman by her voice. A woman? A 
voice of a woman? No. No, your reason would scarcely be adequate for anything. Why did you confide in a Nazi when you should have known that such a course would only lead to disaster? Why did you expose yourself when by so doing you were also exposing your friends? Do you know that Dr. Robin, who is certainly fond of you, never once comes near you without a revolver, that he would shoot you without hesitation if you were to become dangerously mad? A woman's voice. I'm, I'm speaking for the people who are here with you now. And these people speak for unknown millions outside. Yield yourself to them. Try to do a big thing. If you die, you die. But for a little while, you'll be a man. You'll be one of us. That voice. Now I knew. It belonged to my mother. It belonged to you, Hanishka. To my sisters, my daughters. When it finished speaking, I was half kneeling, half lying on the floor. The walls of my prison had vanished. Well, sir, we are waiting for an answer. I'll do it. Yes, I'll do it. I'll be one of you. I'll be a man. No longer a mouse in a trap. But a man. A man. Tonight on Words at War, we've brought you a dramatization of Egan Hostovsky's novel, The Hideout. The radio dramatization was written by Ben Kagan. Arnold Moss was the narrator. Others in the cast were Norma Chambers, Joan Shea, Joe DeSantis, Edgar Staley, and Jim Bowles. The music was arranged and played by William Meader, direction Garnet Garrison. Next week, Words at War will present the radio dramatization of The Road to Serfdom by Frederick Hayek. This series of programs is brought to you in cooperation with the Council on Books and Wartime by the National Broadcasting Company and the independent radio stations associated with the NBC network. This is the National Broadcasting Company. We'll talk to you later tonight, here on Yesterday, USA. All tab.
Alt-Tab, MSN Outlook, Office, Alt-Tab, 042, Alt-Tab, Document, MS, Alt-Tab, 0427, Alt-F4, 04, Alt-Tab, MSN Outlook, Alt-Tab, 0427, Alt-F4, MSN Outlook, Office, Alt-F4, Alt-Tab, SoundForge Pro 11, Escape, Escape, Enter, Enter, Menu, File Menu, A, Leaving Menus, Sound 1 Star, Save as dialog, file name, sound one, edit. S A T U R D A Y N I G H T W I T H P A T R I C I A S E C O N D P C four dash two eight dash one eight. Save as type, save but enter. Jaws Professional Replay Radio Alt-Tab 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 Registration Alt-Tab Replay Radio Alt-Tab Registra- Alt-Tab SoundForge Pro Escape Escape Enter Replay Radio 9 Dialog. Wait for the program to Alt-Tab. Replay Alt-Tab. Sound Forge Pro. 